Sansa. They had been singing in the Sept all morning, since the first report of enemy sails had reached the castle. The sound of their voices mingled with the wicker of horses, the clank of steel, and the groaning hinges of the great bronze gates to make a strange and fearful music. In the Sept they sing for the Mother's mercy, but on the walls it's the warrior they pray to, and all in silence. She remembered how Septim Ordain used to tell them that the warrior and the mother were only two faces of the same great God. But if there's only one, whose prayers will be heard? Sir Merrin Trant held the blood bay for Joffrey to mount. Boy and horse alike wore gilded mail and enameled crimson plate, with matching golden lions on their heads. The pale sunlight flashed off the golds and reds every time Joff moved. Bright, shining, and empty, Sansa thought. The imp was mounted on a red stallion, armoured more plainly than the king, in battle gear that made him look like a little boy dressed up in his father's clothes. But there was nothing childish about the battle-axe slung below his shield. Sir Mandon Moore rode at his side, white steel, icy bright. When Tyrion saw her, he turned his horse her way. Lady Sansa, he called from the saddle, surely my sisters ask you to join the other high-born ladies in Magor's? She has, my lord, but King Joffrey sent for me to see him off. I mean to visit the Sept as well, to pray. I won't ask for whom. His mouth twisted oddly. If that was a smile, it was the queerest she had ever seen. This day may change all. For you, as well as for House Lannister, I ought to have sent you off with Tommen, now I think on it. Still, you'll be safe enough in Magus, so long as— Sansa! The boyish shout rang across the yard. Joffrey had seen her. Sansa, here! He calls for me as if he were calling a dog, she thought. His grace has need of you, Tyrion Lannister observed. We'll talk again after the battle, if the gods permit. Sansa threaded her way through a file of gold-cloaked spearmen as Joffrey beckoned her closer. It will be battle soon. Everyone says so. May the gods have mercy on us all. My uncle's the one who will need mercy, but I won't give him any. Joffrey drew his sword. The pommel was a ruby cut in the shape of a heart set between a lion's jaws. Three fullers were deeply incised in the blade. My new blade, Heart Eater. He'd owned a sword named Lion's Tooth once, Sansa remembered. Arya had taken it from him and thrown it in a river. I hope Stannis does the same with this one. It's beautifully wrought, Your Grace. Bless my steel with a kiss. He extended the blade down to her. Go on, kiss it. It never sounded more like a stupid little boy. Sansa touched her lips to the metal, thinking that she would kiss any number of swords sooner than Joffrey. The gesture seemed to please him, though. He sheathed the blade with a flourish. You'll kiss it again when I return, and taste my uncle's blood. Only if one of your king's guards kills him for you. Three of the white swords would go with Joffrey and his uncle, Sir Merrin, Sir Mandon, and Sir Osmond Kettleblack. 
Will you lead your knights into battle? Sansa asked, hoping. I would, but my uncle the imp says my uncle Stannis will never cross the river. I'll command the three whores, though. I'm going to see to the traitors myself. The prospect made Joff smile. His plump pink lips always made him look pouty. Sansa had liked that once, but now it made us sick. They say my brother Rob always goes where the fighting is thickest, she said recklessly, though he's older than your grace, to be sure. A man grown. That made him frown. I'll deal with your brother after I've done with my traitor uncle. I'll gut him with heart-eater, you'll see. He wheeled his horse about and spurred toward the gate. Sir Merrin and Sir Osmond fell in to his right and left, the gold cloaks following four abreast. The imp and Sir Mandon Moore brought up the rear. The guard saw them off with shouts and cheers. When the last was gone, a sudden stillness settled over the yard, like the hush before a storm. Through the quiet, the singing pulled at her. Sansa turned toward the sept. Two stable boys followed, and one of the guards whose watch was ended. Others fell in behind them. Sansa had never seen the sept so crowded, nor so brightly lit. Great shafts of rainbow-colored sunlight slanted down through the crystals in the high windows, and candles burned on every side, their little flames twinkling like stars. The mother's altar and the warrior swam in light, but Smith and Crone and Maid and Father had their worshippers as well, and there were even a few flames dancing below the stranger's half-human face. For what was Stannis Baratheon, if not the stranger come to judge them? Sansa visited each of the seven in turn, lighting a candle at each altar, and then found herself a place on the benches between a wizened old washerwoman and a boy no older than Rickon, dressed in the fine linen tunic of a knight's son. The old woman's hand was bony and hard with callous, the boy small and soft, but it was good to have someone to hold on to. The air was hot and heavy, smelling of incense and sweat. Crystal kissed and candle bright. It made her dizzy to breathe it. She knew the hymn. Her mother had taught it to her once, a long time ago in Winterfell. She joined her voice to the others. Gentle mother, font of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows, let them know a better day. Gentle mother, strength of women, help our daughters through this fray. Soothe the wrath and tame the fury, teach us all a kinder way. Across the city, thousands had jammed into the great sept of Baylor on Visenya's hill, and they would be singing too, their voices swelling out over the city, across the river, and up into the sky. Surely the gods must hear us, she thought. Sansa knew most of the hymns, and followed along on those she did not know as best she could. She sang along with grizzled old serving men and anxious young wives, with serving girls and soldiers, cooks and falconers, knights and knaves, squires and spitboys, and nursing mothers. 
She sang with those inside the castle walls and those without, sang with all the city. She sang for mercy for the living and the dead alike, for Bran and Rickon and Rob, for her sister Arya and her bastard brother, Jon Snow, away off on the wall. She sang for her mother and her father, for her grandfather, Lord Huster, and her uncle, Edmure Tully, for her friend, Jane Poole, for old drunken King Robert, for Septim Ordain, and Sir Dantus, and Jory Cassell, and Maester Lewin, for all the brave knights and soldiers who would die today, and for the children and the wives who would mourn them. And finally, toward the end, she even sang for Tyrion the Imp and for the Hound. He is no true knight, but he saved me all the same, she told the mother. Save him if you can, and gentle the rage inside him. But when the Septon climbed on high and called upon the guards to protect and defend their true and noble king, Sansa got to her feet. The aisles were jammed with people. She had to shoulder through, while the Septon called upon the smith to lend strength to Joffrey's sword and shield, the warrior to give him courage, the father to defend him in his need. Let his sword break and his shield shatter, Sansa thought coldly as she shoved out through the doors. Let his courage fail him and every man desert him. A few guards paced along on the gatehouse battlements, but otherwise the castle seemed empty. Sansa stopped and listened. Away off she could hear the sounds of battle. The singing almost drowned them out, but the sounds were there, if you had the ears to hear. The deep moan of war-horns, the creak and thud of catapults, flinging stones, the splashes and splinterings, the crackle of burning pitch, and thrum of scorpions, loosing their yard-long iron-headed shafts, and beneath it all, the cries of dying men. It was another sort of song, a terrible song. Sansa pulled the hood of her cloak up over her ears and hurried towards Mager's Holdfast, the castle within a castle where the Queen had promised they would all be safe. At the foot of the drawbridge she came upon Lady Tander and her two daughters. Felissa had arrived yesterday from Castle Stokeworth with a small troop of soldiers. She was trying to coax her sister onto the bridge, but lollies clung to her maid, sobbing. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. The battle is begun, Lady Tander said in a brittle voice. I don't want to. I don't want to. There was no way Sansa could avoid them. She greeted them courteously. May I be of help? Lady Tander flushed with shame. No, my lady, but we thank you kindly. You must forgive my daughter. She has not been well. I don't want to. Lollis clutched at her maid. A slender, pretty girl with short dark hair, who looked as though she wanted nothing so much as to shove her mistress into the dry moat onto those iron spikes. Please, please, I don't want to. Sansa spoke to her gently. We'll all be thrice protected inside, and there's to be food and drink and song as well. Lollies gaped at her, mouth open. She had dull brown eyes that always seemed to be wet with tears. I don't want to. You have to, her sister Felicia said sharply, and that is the end of it. She helped me. 
They each took an elbow, and together, half-dragged and half-carried lollies across the bridge. Sansa followed with their mother. She's been sick, Lady Tander said. If a babe can be termed a sickness, Sansa thought. It was common gossip that lollies was with child. The two guards at the door wore lion-crested helms and crimson cloaks of House Lannister. But Sansa knew they were only dressed-up sellswords. Another sat at the foot of the stair. A real guard would have been standing, not sitting on a step with his halberd across his knees. But he rose when he saw them, and opened the door to usher them inside. The Queen's ballroom was not a tenth the size of the castle's great hall, only half as big as the small hall in the Tower of the Hand, but it could still seat a hundred, and it made up in grace what it lacked in space. Beaten silver mirrors backed every wall sconce, so the torches burned twice as bright. The walls were panelled in richly carved wood, and sweet-smelling rushes covered the floors. From the gallery above drifted down the merry strains of pipes and fiddle. A line of arched windows ran along the south wall, but they had been closed off with heavy draperies. Thick velvet hangings admitted no thread of light, and would muffle the sound of prayer and war alike. It makes no matter, Sansa thought. The war is with us. Almost every high-born woman in the city sat at the long trestle tables along with a handful of old men and young boys. The women were wives, daughters, mothers, and sisters. Their men had gone out to fight Lord Stannis. Many would not return. The air was heavy with the knowledge. As Joffrey's betrothed, Sansa had the seat of honor on the Queen's right hand. She was climbing the dais when she saw the man standing in the shadows by the back wall. He wore a long hauberk of oiled black mail and held his sword before him, her father's great sword, Ice, near as tall as he was. Its point rested on the floor, and his hard, bony fingers curled around the crossguard on either side of the grip. Sansa's breath caught in her throat. Sir Ilian Payne seemed to sense her stare. He turned his gaunt, pucks-ravaged face toward her. "'What is he doing here?' she asked Osfrid Kettleblack. He kept in the Queen's new red cloak guard. Osfrid grinned. "'Her grace expects we shall have need of him before the night's done.' Sir Ilian was the King's justice. There was only one service he might be needed for. "'Whose head does she want?' All rise for Her Grace, Cersei of House Lannister, Queen Regent and Protector of the Realm, the royal steward cried. Cersei's gown was snowy linen, white as the cloaks of the King's Guard. Her long, dagged sleeves showed a lining of gold satin. Masses of bright yellow hair tumbled to her bare shoulders in thick curls. Around her slender neck hung a rope of diamonds and emeralds. The white made her look strangely innocent, almost maidenly, but there were points of colour in her cheeks. "'Be seated,' the Queen said, when she had taken her place on the dais, "'and be welcome.' Osfrid Kettleblack held her chair. A page performed the same service for Sansa. "'You look pale, Sansa,' Cersei observed. "'Is your red flower still blooming?' 
Yes. How apt. The men will bleed out there, and you in here. The Queen signalled for the first course to be served. Why is Sir Elian here? Sansa blurted out. The Queen glanced at the mute headsman. To deal with treason, and to defend us if need be. He was a knight before he was a headsman. She pointed her spoon toward the end of the hall, where the tall wooden doors had been closed and barred. When the axes smash down those doors, you may be glad of him. I would be gladder if it were the hound, Sansa thought. Harsh as he was, she did not believe Sandor Clegane would let any harm come to her. Won't your guards protect us? And who will protect us from my guards? The queen gave Osfrid a sideways look. Loyal sailswords are rare as virgin whores. If the battle is lost, my guards will trip on those crimson cloaks in their haste to rip them off. They'll steal what they can and flee, along with the serving men, washerwomen, and stable boys, all out to save their own worthless hides. Do you have any notion what happens when a city is sacked, Sansa? No, you wouldn't, would you? All you know of life you learn from singers, and there's a dearth of good sacking songs. True knights would never harm women and children. The words rang hollow in her ears, even as she said them. True knights? The queen seemed to find that wonderfully amusing. <laughs> no doubt you're right. So why don't you just eat your broth like a good girl and wait for Simeon Star-Eyes and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight to come rescue you, sweetling? I'm sure it won't be very long now. Davos Blackwater Bay was rough and choppy, white caps everywhere. Black Betha rode the flood tide, her sail cracking and snapping at each shift of wind. Wraith and Lady Maria sailed beside her, no more than twenty yards between their hulls. His sons could keep a line. Davis took pride in that. Across the sea, war horns boomed, deep, throaty moans like the calls of monstrous serpents, repeated ship to ship. Bring down the sail, Davis commanded. Lower mast! Oarsmen to your oars! His son Mathis relayed the commands. The deck of Black Betha churned as crewmen ran to their tasks, pushing through the soldiers who always seemed to be in the way, no matter where they stood. Sir Imri had decreed that they would enter the river on oars alone, so as not to expose their sails to the scorpions and spitfires on the walls of King's Landing. Davis could make out fury well to the southeast, her sails shimmering golden as they came down. The crown stag of Baratheon blazoned on the canvas. From her decks, Stannis Baratheon had commanded the assault on Dragonstone sixteen years before, but this time he had chosen to ride with his army, trusting fury and the command of his fleet to his wife's brother, Sir Imri, who'd come over to his cause at Storm's End with Lord Alistair and all the other Florence. Davis knew fury as well as he knew his own ships. Above her three hundred oars was a deck given over wholly to scorpions, and topside she mounted catapults fore and aft, large enough to fling barrels of burning pitch 
a most formidable ship, and very swift as well, although Sir Imre had packed her bow to stern with armoured knights and men-at-arms, at some cost of her speed. The war-horns sounded again, commands drifting back from the fury. Davis felt a tingle in his missing fingertips. Out oars, he shouted. Form line! A hundred blades dipped down into the water as the oarmaster's drum began to boom. The sound was like the beating of a great slow heart, and the oars moved at every stroke, a hundred men pulling as one. Wooden wings had sprouted from the wraith and Lady Maria as well. The three galleys kept pace, their blades churning the water. Slow cruise, Davis called. Lord Valerian's silver-hulled pride of driftmark had moved into a position to port of wraith, and bold laughter was coming up fast. But Harridan was only now getting her oars into the water, and Seahorse was still struggling to bring down her mast. Davis looked astern. Yes, there, far to the south, that could only be swordfish, lagging as ever. She dipped two hundred oars and mounted the largest ram in the fleet, though Davis had grave doubts about her captain. He could hear soldiers shouting encouragement to each other across the water. They'd been little more than ballast since Storm's End, and were eager to get at the foe, confident of victory. In that they were of one mind with their admiral, Lord High Captain Sir Emery Florent. Three days passed, he had summoned all his captains to a war council aboard the Fury, while the fleet lay anchored at the mouth of the Wendwater in order to acquaint them with his dispositions. Davis and his sons had been assigned a place in the second line of battle, well out on the dangerous starboard wing. A place of honour! Allard had declared, well satisfied with the chance to prove his valour. A place of peril, his father had pointed out. His sons had given him pitying looks, even young Marrick. The Onion Knight has become an old woman, he could hear them thinking. Still a smuggler at heart. Well, the last was true enough. He would make no apologies for it. Seaworth had a lordly ring to it, but down deep he was still Davis of Flea Bottom, coming home to his city on its three high hills. He knew as much of ships and sails and shores as any man in the Seven Kingdoms, and had fought his share of desperate fights, sword to sword, on a wet deck. But to this sort of battle he came a maiden, nervous and afraid. Smugglers do not sound war-horns and raise banners. When they smell danger, they raise sail and run before the wind. Had he been admiral, he might have done it all differently. For a start, he would have sent a few of his swiftest ships to probe upriver and see what awaited them, instead of smashing in headlong. When he had suggested as much to Sir Emery, the Lord High Captain had thanked him courteously, but his eyes were not as polite. Who is this low-born craven? those eyes asked. Is he the one who bought his knighthood with an onion? With four times as many ships as the boy king, Sir Imry saw no need for caution or deceptive tactics. He had organized the fleet into ten lines of battle, each of twenty ships. The first two lines would sweep up the river to engage and destroy Joffrey's little fleet, 
or the boys' toys, as Sir Imry dubbed them to the mirth of his lordly captains. Those that followed would land companies of archers and spearmen beneath the city walls, and only then join the fight on the river. The smaller, slower ships to the rear would ferry over the main part of Stannis's host from the south bank, protected by Salador San and his Lyseni, who would stand out in the bay in case the Lannisters had other ships hidden up along the coast, poised to sweep down on their rear. To be fair, there was reason for Sir Imry's haste. The winds had not used them kindly on the voyage up from Storm's End. They had lost two cogs to the rocks of Shipbreaker Bay on the very day they set sail, a poor way to begin. One of the Mearish galleys had foundered in the Straits of Tarth, and a storm had overtaken them as they entered the gullet, scattering the fleet across half the narrow sea. All but twelve ships had finally regrouped behind the sheltering spine of Massey's Hook in the calmer waters of Blackwater Bay, but not before they had lost considerable time. Stannis would have reached the rush days ago. The King's Road ran from Storm's End straight to King's Landing, a much shorter route than by sea, and his host was largely mounted, near twenty thousand knights, light horse and free riders, Renly's unwilling legacy to his brother. They would have made good time, but armoured destriers and twelve-foot lances would avail them little against the deep waters of Blackwater Rush and the high stone walls of the city. Stannis would be camped with his lords on the south bank of the river, doubtless seething with impatience, and wondering what Sir Emery had done with his fleet. Off Merlin Rock two days before, they had sighted a half-dozen fishing skips. The fisherfolk had fled before them, but one by one they had been overtaken and boarded. A small spoon of victory is just the thing to settle the stomach of all battle, Sir Emery had declared happily. It makes the men hungry for a larger helping. But Davis had been more interested in what the captives had to say about the defences of King's Landing. The dwarf had been busy building some sort of boom to close off the mouth of the river, though the fishermen differed as to whether the work had been completed or not. He found himself wishing it had. If the river was closed to them, Sir Imry would have no choice but to pause and take stock. The sea was full of sounds, shouts and calls, war-horns and drums and the trill of pipes, the slap of wood on water as thousands of oars rose and fell. "'Keep loin!' Davis shouted. A gust of wind tugged at his old green cloak. A jerkin of boiled leather and a pot-helm at his feet were his only armour. At sea, heavy steel was as light to cost a man his life as to save it, he believed. Sir Imry and the other high-born captains did not share his view. They glittered as they paced their decks. Harridan and Seahorse had slipped into their places now, and Lord Celtigar's red claw beyond them. To starboard of Allard's Lady Maria were the three galleys that Stannis had seized from the unfortunate Lord Sunglass, piety, prayer, and devotion, their decks crawling with archers. Even Swordfish was closing, lumbering, and rolling through a thickening sea under both oars and sail. A ship that has that many oars ought to be much faster, Devis reflected with disapproval. 
It's that ram she carries. It's too big. She has no balance. The wind was gusting from the south, but under oars it made no matter. They would be sweeping in on the flood tide, but the Lannisters would have the river current to their favour, and the Blackwater rush flowed strong and swift where it met the sea. The first shock would inevitably favour the foe. We are fools to meet them on the Blackwater, Davis thought. In any encounter on the open sea, their battle lines would envelop the enemy fleet on both flanks, driving them inward to destruction. On the river, though, the numbers and weight of Sir Emery's ships would count for less. They could not dress more than twenty ships abreast, lest they risk tangling their oars and colliding with each other. Beyond the line of warships, Davis could see the Red Keep up on Agen's high hill, dark against a lemon sky, with the mouth of the rush opening out below. Across the river, the south shore was black with men and horses, stirring like angry ants as they caught sight of the approaching ships. Stannis would have kept them busy building rafts and fletching arrows. Yet even so, the waiting would have been a hard thing to bear. Trumpets sounded among them, tiny and brazen, soon swallowed by the roar of a thousand shouts. Davis closed his stubby hand around the pouch that held his finger bones and mouthed a silent prayer for luck. Fury herself would centre the first line of battle, flanked by the Lord Stephen and the Stag of the Sea, each of two hundred oars. On the port and starboard wings were the hundreds, Lady Hera, Bright Fish, Laughing Lord, Sea Demon, Horned Honour, Ragged Jenna, Trident Three, Swift Sword, Princess Rainies, Dog's Nose, Scepter, Faithful, Red Raven, Queen Alisanne, Cat, Courageous, and Dragonsbane. From every stern streamed the fiery heart of the Lord of Light, red and yellow and orange. Behind Davis and his sons came another line of hundreds, commanded by knights and lordly captains, and then the smaller, slower, Murrish contingent, none dipping more than eighty oars. Farther back would come the sailed ships, carracks, and lumbering great cogs, and last of all, Salador San in his proud Valyrian, a towering three hundred, paced by the rest of his galleys with their distinctive striped hulls. The flamboyant Lyseni princeling had not been pleased to be assigned the rear guard, but it was clear that Sir Imri trusted him no more than Stannis did. Too many complaints, and too much talk of the gold he was owed. Davis was sorry nonetheless. Salador San was a resourceful old pirate, and his crews were born seamen, fearless in a fight. They were wasted in the rear. The call rolled across white caps and churning oars from the forecastle of the Fury. Sir Imri was sounding the attack. Swordfish had joined the line at last, though she still had her sail raised. Fast cruise, Davis barked. The drum began to beat more quickly, and the stroke picked up the blades of the oars cutting water. Splash-whoosh! 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 On deck, 
soldiers banged sword against shield, while archers quietly strung their bows and pulled the first arrow from the quivers at their belts. The galleys of the first line of battle obscured his vision, so Davis paced the deck, searching for a better view. He saw no sign of any boom. The mouth of the river was open, as if to swallow them all, except... In his smuggling days, Davis had often jested that he knew the waterfront at King's Landing a deal better than the back of his hand, since he had not spent a good part of his life sneaking in and out of the back of his hand. The squat towers of raw new stone that stood opposite one another at the mouth of the Blackwater might mean nothing to Sir Imry Florent, but to him it was as if two extra fingers had sprouted from his knuckles. Shading his eyes against the westering sun, he peered at those towers more closely. They were too small to hold much of a garrison. The one on the north bank was built against the bluff with the red keep frowning above. Its counterpart on the south shore had its footing in the water. They dug a cut through the bank, he knew at once. That would make the tower very difficult to assault. Attackers would need to wade through the water or bridge the little channel. Stannis had posted bowmen below to fire up at the defenders whenever one was rash enough to lift his head above the ramparts, but otherwise had not troubled. Something flashed down low, where the dark water swirled around the base of the tower. It was sunlight on steel, and it told Davis Seaworth all he needed to know. A chain boom, and yet they have not closed the river against us. Why? He could make a guess at that as well, but there was no time to consider the question. A shout went up from the ships ahead, and the war horns blew again. The enemy was before them. Between the flashing oars of Scepter and Faithful, Davis saw a thin line of galleys drawn across the river, the sun glinting off the gold paint that marked their hulls. He knew those ships as well as he knew his own. When he had been a smuggler, he always felt safer knowing whether the sail on the horizon marked a fast ship or a slow one, and whether her captain was a young man hungry for glory or an old one serving out his days. The war horns called. Battle speed! Davis shouted. On port and starboard, he heard Dale and Allard giving the same command. Drums began to beat furiously, oars rose and fell, and Black Betha surged forward. When he glanced towards Wraith, Dale gave him a salute. Swordfish was lagging once more, wallowing in the wake of the smaller ships to either side. Elsewise, the line was straight as a shield wall. The river that had seemed so narrow from a distance now stretched wide as a sea, but the city had grown gigantic as well. Glowering down from Aegon's high hill, the red keep commanded the approaches. Its iron-crowned battlements, massive towers, and thick red walls gave it the aspect of a ferocious beast hunched above the river and streets. The bluffs on which it crouched were steep and rocky, spotted with lichen and gnarled thorny trees. The fleet would have to pass below the castle to reach the harbour and city beyond. The first line was in the river now, but the enemy galleys were backing water. They mean to draw us in, 
They want us jammed close, constricted, no way to sweep round their flanks, and with that boom behind us. He paced his deck, craning his neck for a better look at Joffrey's fleet. The boy's toys included the ponderous God's Grace he saw, the old slow Prince Aemon, the Lady of Silk and her sister, Lady Shame, Wildwind, Kingslander, Whiteheart, Lance, Seaflower. But where was the Lion Star? Where was the beautiful Lady Lyanna that King Robert had named in honour of the maid he loved and lost? And where was King Robert's hammer? She was the largest war galley in the royal fleet, four hundred oars, the only warship the boy king owned capable of overmatching fury. By rights, she should have formed the heart of any defence. Davis tasted a trap. Yet he saw no sign of any foes sweeping in behind them. Only the great fleet of Stannis Baratheon in their ordered ranks, stretching back to the watery horizon. Will they raise the chain and cut us in two? He could not see what good that would serve. The ships left out in the bay could still land men north of the city. A slower crossing, but safer. A flight of flickering orange birds took wing from the castle, twenty or thirty of them. Pots of burning pitch, arcing out over the river, trailing threads of flame. The waters ate most, but a few found the decks of galleys in the first line of battle, spreading flame where they shattered. Men at arms were scrambling on Queen Alassane's deck, and he could see smoke rising from three different spots on Dragon's Bane nearest the bank. By then a second flight was on its way, and arrows were falling as well, hissing down from the archers' nests that studded the towers above. A soldier tumbled over the cat's gunwale, crashed off the oars, and sank. The first man to die today, Davis thought but he will not be the last. Atop the Red Keep's battlements streamed the Boy King's banners, the crown stag of Baratheon on its gold field, the line of Lannister on crimson. More pots of pitch came flying. Davis heard men shriek as fire spread across Courageous. Her oarsmen were safe below, protected from missiles by the half-deck that sheltered them, but the men-at-arms, crowded topside, were not so fortunate. The starboard wing was taking all the damage, as he had feared. It'll be our turn soon, he reminded himself, uneasy. Black Bether was well in range of the firepots, being the sixth ship out from the north bank. To starboard she had only Allard's Lady Maria, the ungainly swordfish, so far behind now that she was nearer the third line than the second, and piety, prayer, and devotion who would need all the godly intervention they could get, placed as vulnerably as they were. As the second line swept past the Twin Towers, Davis took a closer look. He could see three lengths of a huge chain, snaking out from a hole no bigger than a man's head, and disappearing under the water. The towers had a single door, set a good twenty feet off the ground. Bowmen on the roof of the northern tower were firing down at prayer and devotion. The archers on devotion fired back, and Davis heard a man scream as the arrows found him. Captain, sir. His son Mathis was at his elbow. Your elm. 
Davis took it with both hands and slid it over his head. The butt helm was visorless. He hated having his vision impeded. By then the pitch pots were raining down around them. He saw one shatter on the deck of Lady Maria, but Allard's crew quickly beat it out. To port, war horns sounded from the pride of Driftmark. The oars flung up sprays of water with every stroke. The yard-long shaft of a scorpion came down not two feet from Mathis and sank into the wood of the deck, thrumming. Ahead, the first line was within bowshot of the enemy. Flights of arrows flew between ships, hissing like striking snakes. South of the Blackwater, Davis saw men dragging crude rafts toward the water, while ranks and columns formed up beneath a thousand streaming banners. Their fiery heart was everywhere, though the tiny black stag imprisoned in the flames was too small to make out. We should be flying the crown stag, he thought. The stag was King Robert's sigil. The city would rejoice to see it. This stranger's standard serves only to set men against us. He could not behold the fiery heart without thinking of the shadow Melisande had burst in the gloom beneath Storm's End. At least we fight this battle in the light, with the weapons of honest men, he told himself. The red woman and her dark children would have no part of it. Stannis had shipped her back to Dragonstone with his bastard nephew, Edric Storm. His captains and bannermen had insisted that a battlefield was no place for a woman. Only the Queen's men had dissented, and then not loudly. All the same, the King had been on the point of refusing them until Lord Bryce Caron said, Your Grace, if the sorceress is with us, afterward men will say it was her victory, not yours. They will say you owe your crown to her spells. That turned the tide. Davis himself had held his tongue during the arguments, but if truth be told, he had not been sad to see the back of her. He wanted no part of Melisande or her guard. To starboard, devotion drove toward shore, sliding out a plank. Archers scrambled into the shallows, holding their bows high above their heads to keep the strings dry. They splashed ashore on the narrow strand beneath the bluffs. Rocks came bouncing down from the castle to crash among them, and arrows and spears as well. But the angle was steep, and the missiles seemed to do little damage. Prayer landed two dozen yards upstream, and piety was slanting towards the bank when the defenders came pounding down the riverside, the hooves of their war horses sending up gouts of water from the shallows. The knights fell among the archers like wolves among chickens, driving them back toward the ships and into the river before most could notch an arrow. Men-at-arms rushed to defend them with spear and axe, and in three heartbeats the scene had turned to blood-soaked chaos. Davis recognized the dog's head helm of the hound. A white cloak streamed from his shoulders as he rode his horse up the plank onto the deck of prayer, hacking down anyone who blundered within reach. Beyond the castle, King's Landing rose on its hills behind the encircling walls. The river front was a blackened desolation. The Lannisters had burned everything and pulled back within the mud gate. The charred spars of sunken hulks sat in the shallows, forbidding access to the long stone keys. We shall have no land in there. 
he could see the tops of three huge trebuchets behind the mudgate. High on Vesenius Hill, sunlight blazed off the seven crystal towers of the great Sept of Baelor. Davos never saw a battle joined, but he heard it. A great rending crash as two galleys came together. He could not say which two. Another impact echoed over the water an instant later, and then a third. Beneath the screech of splintering wood, he heard the deep thrum-thump of the Fury's fore-catapult. Stag of the Sea split one of Joffrey's galleys clean in half, but Dog's Nose was afire, and Queen Alassane was locked between Lady of Silk and Lady's Shame, her crew fighting the borders rail to rail. Directly ahead, Davis saw the enemy's Kingslander drive between Faithful and Scepter. The former slid her starboard oars out of the way before impact, but Scepter's portside oar snapped like so much kindling as Kingslander raked along her side. Loose! Davis commanded, and his bowmen sent a withering rain of shafts across the water. He saw Kingslander's captain fall and tried to recall the man's name. Ashore, the arms of the great trebuchets rose one, two, three, and a hundred stones climbed high into the yellow sky. Each one was as large as a man's head. When they fell, they sent up great gouts of water, smashed through oak planking, and turned living men into bone and pulp and grizzle. All across the river, the first line was engaged. Grappling hooks were flung out. Iron rams crashed through wooden hulls. Borders swarmed. Flights of arrows whispered through each other in the drifting smoke, and men died. But so far, none of his. Black Betha swept upriver, the sound of her oarmaster's drum thundering in her captain's head as he looked for a likely victim for her ram. The beleaguered Queen Alisan was trapped between two Lannister warships, the three made fast by hooks and lines. Ram in speed! Davis shouted. The drum beats blurred into a long, fevered hammering, and Black Betha flew, the water turning white as milk as it parted for her prow. Allard had seen the same chance. Lady Maria ran beside them. The first line had been transformed into a confusion of separate struggles. The three tangle ships loomed ahead, turning. Their decks a red chaos as men hacked at each other with sword and axe. A little more, Davis Seaworth beseeched the warrior. Bring around a little more. Show me your broadside. The warrior must have been listening. Black Betha and Lady Maria slammed into the side of Lady's shame within an instant of each other, ramming her fore and aft with such force that men were thrown off the deck of Lady of Silk three boats away. Davis almost bit his tongue off when his teeth jarred together. He spat out blood. Next time, close your mouth, you fool. Forty years at sea and yet this was the first time he'd rammed another ship. His archers were loosing arrows at will. Backwater, he commanded. When Black Betha reversed her oars, the river rushed into the splintered hole she left, and Lady Shame fell to pieces before his eyes, spilling dozens of men into the river. Some of the living swam, 
Some of the dead floated. The ones in heavy mail and plate sank to the bottom. The quick and the dead alike. The pleas of drowning men echoed in his ears. A flash of green caught his eye, ahead and off to port, and a nest of writhing emerald serpents rose burning and hissing from the stern of Queen Alisan. An instant later, Davis heard the dread cry of, Wildfire! He grimaced. Burning pitch was one thing. Wildfire, quite another. Evil stuff, and well-nigh unquenchable. Smother it under a cloak, and the cloak took fire. Slap at a fleck of it with your palm, and your hand was aflame. Piss on wildfire, and your cock burns off, old seamen like to say. Still, Sir Emery had warned them to expect a taste of the alchemist's vile substance. Fortunately, there were few true pyromancers left. They will soon run out, Sir Emery had assured them. Davis reeled off commands. One bank of oars pushed off, while the other backed water, and the galley came about. Lady Maria had one clear, too, and a good thing. The fire was spreading over Queen Alisan and her foes faster than he would have believed possible. Men wreathed in green flame leapt into the water, shrieking like nothing human. On the walls of King's Landing, spitfires were belching death, and the great trebuchets behind the mudgate were throwing boulders. One the size of an ox crashed down between Black Betha and Wraith, rocking both ships and soaking every man on deck. Another, not much smaller, found bold laughter. The Valerian galley exploded like a child's toy dropped from a tower, spraying splinters as long as a man's arm. Through black smoke and swirling green fire, Davis glimpsed a swarm of small boats bearing down river, a confusion of ferries and wherries, barges, skiffs, rowboats and hulks that looked too rotten to float. It stank of desperation. Such driftwood could not turn the tide of a fight, only get in the way. The lines of battle were hopelessly ensnarled, he saw. Off to port, Lord Stephen, ragged Jenner, and swift sword had broken through and were sweeping up river. The starboard wing was heavily engaged, however, and the centre had shattered onto the stones of those trebuchets, some captains turning downstream, others veering to board anything to escape that crushing rain. Fury had swung her aft catapult to fire back at the city, but she lacked the range. The barrels of pitch were shattering under the walls. Scepter had lost most of her oars, and Faithful had been rammed and was starting to list. He took Black Betha between them and struck a glancing blow at Queen Circe's ornate carved and gilded pleasure barge, laden with soldiers instead of sweetmeats now. The collision spilled a dozen of them into the river, where Betha's archers picked them off as they tried to stay afloat. Mathis' shout alerted him to the danger from port. One of the Lannister galleys was coming about to ram. Hard to starboard! Davis shouted. His men used their oars to push free of the barge, while others turned the galley so her prow faced the onrushing white heart. For a moment he feared he'd been too slow, that he was about to be sunk. But the current helped to swing Black Betha, and when the impact came it was only a glancing blow, the two hulls scraping against each other 
both ships snapping oars. A jagged piece of wood flew past his head, sharp as any spear. Davis flinched. Board her! he shouted. Grappling lines were flung. He drew his sword and led them over the rail himself. The crew of the White Hart met them at the rail, but Black Betha's men at arms swept over them in a screaming steel tide. Davis fought through the press, looking for the other captain, but the man was dead before he reached him. As he stood over the body, someone caught him from behind with an axe, but his helm turned the blow, and his skull was left ringing where it might have been split. Dazed, it was all he could do to roll. His attacker charged, screaming. Davis grasped his sword in both hands and drove it up, point first, into the man's belly. One of his crewmen pulled him back to his feet. Captain, sir, the heart is ours. It was true, Davis saw. Most of the enemy were dead, dying or yielded. He took off his helm, wiped blood from his face, and made his way back to his own ship, trotting carefully on boards slimy with men's guts. Mathis lent him a hand to help him back over the rail. For those few instants, Black Betha and White Hart were the calm eye in the midst of the storm. Queen Adasan and Lady of Silk, still locked together, were a ranging green inferno, drifting down river and dragging pieces of Lady's shame. One of the Moorish galleys had slabbed into them, and was now afar as well. Cat was taking on men from the fast-thinking Courageous. The captain of Dragonsbane had driven her between two keys, ripping out her bottom. Her crew poured ashore with the archers and men-at-arms to join the assault on the walls. Red Raven, rammed, was slowly listing. Stag of the Sea was fighting fires and borders both, but the fiery heart had been raised over Joffrey's loyal man. Fury, her proud bow smashed in by a boulder, was engaged with God's grace. He saw Lord Valerian's pride of Driftmark crash between two Lannister river runners, overturning one and lighting the other up with fire arrows. On the south bank, knights were leading their mounts aboard the cogs, and some of the smaller galleys were already making their way across, laden with men-at-arms. They had to thread cautiously between sinking ships and patches of drifting wildfire. The whole of King Stannis's fleet was in the river now, save for Salador San's Lyseni. Soon enough they would control the Blackwater. Sir Imran will have his victory, Davos thought, and Stannis will bring his host across. But gods be good. The cost of this. Captain, sir, Mathis touched his shoulder. It was Swordfish, her two banks of oars lifting and falling. She had never brought down her sails, and some burning pitch had caught in her rigging. The flames spread as Davis watched, creeping out over ropes and sails, until she trailed ahead of yellow flame. Her ungainly iron ram, fashioned off the likeness of the fish from which she took her name, parted the surface of the river before her. Directly ahead, drifting toward her and swinging around to present a tempting plump target, was one of the Lannister hulks, floating low in the water. Slow, green blood was leaking out between her boards.
When he saw that, Davis Seaworth's heart stopped beating. No, he said. No, no! Above the roar and crash of battle, no one heard him but Mathis. Certainly the captain of the swordfish did not, intent as he was on finally spearing something with his ungainly fat sword. The swordfish went to battle speed. Davis lifted his maimed hand to clutch at the leather pouch that held his finger bones. With a grinding, splintering, tearing crash, swordfish split the rutted hulk asunder. She burst like an overripe fruit, but no fruit ever screamed that shattering wooden scream. From inside her, Davis saw green gushing from a thousand broken jars, poison from the entrails of a dying beast, glistening, shining, spreading across the surface of the river. Backwater! he roared. Away! Get us off her! Backwater! Backwater! The grappling lines were cut, and Davis felt the deck move under his feet as Black Betha pushed free of White Hart. Her oars slid down into the water. Then he heard a short, sharp, woof, as if someone had blown in his ear. Half a heartbeat later came the roar. The deck vanished beneath him, and black water smashed him across the face, filling his nose and mouth. He was choking, drowning. Unsure which way was up, Davis wrestled the river in blind panic until suddenly he broke the surface. He spat out water, sucked in air, grabbed hold of the nearest chunk of debris, and held on. Swordfish and the hulk were gone. Blackened bodies were floating downstream beside him, and choking men clinging to bits of smoking wood. Fifty feet high, a swirling demon of green flame danced upon the river. It had a dozen hands, in each a whip, and whatever they touched burst into fire. He saw Black Betha burning, and Whiteheart, and loyal man to either side. Piety, Cat, Courageous, Scepter, Red Raven, Harridan, Faithful, Fury, they had all gone up. King's Lander, and God's Grace as well. The demon was eating his own. Lord Valerian's shining pride of Driftmark was trying to turn, but the demon ran a lazy green finger across her silvery oars, and they flared up like so many tapers. For an instant, she seemed to be stroking the river with two banks of long, bright torches. The current had him in its teeth by then, spinning him around and around. He kicked to avoid a floating patch of wildfire. My sons, Davis thought, but there was no way to look for them amidst the roaring chaos. Another hulk, heavy with wildfire, went up behind him. The black water itself seemed to boil in its bed, and burning spars and burning men and pieces of broken ships filled the air. I'm being swept out into the bay. Wouldn't be as bad there. He ought to be able to make sure. He was a strong swimmer. Salador San's galleys would be out in the bay as well. Sir Imri had commanded them to stand off. And then the current turned him about again, and Davis saw what awaited him downstream. The chain. God save us, 
They've raised the chain. Where the river broadened out into Blackwater Bay, the boom stretched taut, a bare two or three feet above the water. Already a dozen galleys had crashed into it, and the current was pushing others against them. Almost all were aflame, and the rest soon would be. Davis could make out the striped hulls of Salador San ships beyond, but he knew he would never reach them. A wall of red-hot steel, blazing wood, and swirling green flame stretched before him. The mouth of the Blackwater Rush had turned into the mouth of hell. Tyrion Motionless as a gargoyle, Tyrion Lannister hunched on one knee atop a merlin. Beyond the mudgate and the desolation that had once been the fish market and wharves, the river itself seemed to have taken fire. Half of Stannis' fleet was ablaze, along with most of Joffrey's. The kiss of wildfire turned proud ships into funeral pyres and men into living torches. The air was full of smoke and arrows and screams. Downstream, commoners and high-born captains alike could see the hot green death swirling toward their rafts and carracks and ferries, borne on the current of the Blackwater. The long white oars of the Murrish galleys flashed like the legs of maddened centipedes as they fought to come about, but it was no good. The centipedes had no place to run. A dozen great fires raged under the city walls, where casts of burning pitch had exploded, but the wildfire reduced them to no more than candles in a burning house, their orange and scarlet pennons fluttering insignificantly against the jade holocaust. The low clouds caught the color of the burning river and roofed the sky in shades of shifting green, eerily beautiful. A terrible beauty, like dragon fire. Tyrion wondered if Aegon the Conqueror had felt like this as he flew over his field of fire. The furnace wind lifted his crimson cloak and beat at his bare face, yet he could not turn away. He was dimly aware of the gold cloaks cheering from the hoardings. He had no voice to join them. It was a half-victory. It will not be enough. He saw another of the hulks, his stuff full of King Aerys' fickle fruits, engulfed by the hungry flames. A fountain of burning jade rose from the river, the blast so bright he had to shield his eyes. Plumes of fire thirty and forty feet high danced upon the waters, crackling and hissing. For a few moments they washed out the screams. There were hundreds in the water, drowning or burning or doing a little of both. Do you hear them shrieking, Stannis? Do you see them burning? This is your work as much as mine. Somewhere in that seething mass of men, south of the Blackwater, Stannis was watching too, Tyrion knew. He never had his brother Robert's thirst for battle. He would command from the rear, from the reserve, much as Lord Tywin Lannister was wont to do. Like as not, he was sitting on a war horse right now, clad in bright armor, his crown upon his head. A crown of red gold, Varys says, its points fashioned in the shape of flames. My ships! Joffrey's voice cracked as he shouted up from the wall walk, where he huddled with his guards behind the ramparts. 
the golden circlet of kingship adorned his battle helm. My Kingslanders burning. Queen Circe, loyal man, look, that sea flower there. He pointed with his new sword, out where the green flames were licking at Seaflower's golden hull and creeping up her oars. Her captain had turned her upriver, but not quickly enough to evade the wildfire. She was doomed, Tyri knew. There was no other way. If we had not come forth to meet them, Stannis would have sensed the trap. An arrow could be aimed, and a spear, even the stone from a catapult, but wildfire had a will of its own. Once loosed, it was beyond the control of mere men. It could not be helped, he told his nephew. Our fleet was doomed in any case. Even from atop the Merlon, he had been too short to see over the ramparts, so it had them boost him up. The flames and smoke and chaos of battle made it impossible for Tyrion to see what was happening downriver under the castle. But he had seen it a thousand times in his mind's eye. Bronn would have whipped the oxen into motion the moment Stannis's flagship passed under the Red Keep. The chain was ponderous heavy, and the great winches turned but slowly, creaking and rumbling. The whole of the usurper's fleet would have passed by the time the first glimmer of metal could be seen beneath the water. The links would emerge dripping wet, some glistening with mud, link by link by link, until the whole great chain stretched taut. King Stannis had rowed his fleet up the Blackwater, but he would not row out again. Even so, some were getting away. A river's current was a tricky thing, and the wildfire was not spreading as evenly as he had hoped. The main channel was all aflame, but a good many of the mermen had made for the south bank and looked to escape unscathed and at least eight ships had landed under the city walls. Landed or wrecked, but it comes to the same thing. They've put men ashore. Worse, a good part of the south wing of the enemy's first two battle lines had been well upstream of the inferno when the hulks went up. Stannis would be left with thirty or forty galleys, at a guess, more than enough to bring his whole host across, once they had regained their courage. That might take a bit of time. Even the bravest would be dismayed after watching a thousand or so of his fellows consumed by wildfire. Halen said that sometimes this substance burned so hot that flesh melted like tallow. Yet even so, Tyrion had no illusions where his own men were concerned. If the battle looks to be going sour, they'll break, and they'll break bad. Jaslyn Bywater had warned him. So the only way to win was to make certain the battle stayed sweet start to finish. He could see dark shapes moving through the charred ruins of the riverfront wharfs. Time for another sortie, he thought. Men were never so vulnerable as when they first staggered ashore. He must not give the foe time to form up on the north bank. He scrambled down off the merlin. Tell Lord Jocelyn... We've got enemy on the river front, he said to one of the runners Bywater had assigned to him. To another he said, Bring my compliments to Sir Arnold and ask him to swing the hawes thirty degrees west. The angle would allow them to throw further, if not as far out into the water. 
Mother promised I could have the horse, Joffrey said. Trin was annoyed to see that the king had lifted the visor of his helm again. Doubtless the boy was cooking inside all that heavy steel, but the last thing he needed was some stray arrow punching through his nephew's eye. He clanged the visor shut. Keep that closed, your grace. Your sweet person is precious to us all. And you don't want to spoil that pretty face either. The whores are yours. It was as good a time as any. Flinging more fire parts down onto burning ships seemed pointless. Joff had the antler men trussed up naked in the square below, antlers nailed to their heads. When they had been brought before the Iron Throne for justice, he had promised to send them to Stannis. A man was not as heavy as a boulder or a cask of burning pitch, and could be thrown a deal farther. Some of the gold cloaks had been waging on whether the traitors would fly all the way across the Blackwater. "'Be quick about it, Your Grace,' he told Joffrey. "'We'll want the trebuchets, throwing stones again soon enough, even while fire does not burn forever.' Joffrey hurried off happy, escorted by Sir Merrin. But Tyrion caught Sir Osmond by the wrist before he could follow. "'Whatever happens, keep him safe.' and keep him there. Is that understood? As you command, Sir Osmond smiled amiably. Tyrion had warned Trant and Kettleblack what would happen to them should any harm come to the king, and Joffrey had a dozen veteran gold cloaks waiting at the foot of the steps. I'm protecting your wretched bastard as well as I can, Cersei, he thought bitterly. See you do the same for Alayaya. No sooner was Joff off, then a runner came panting up the steps. "'My lord! Uh, hurry!' he threw himself to one knee. "'They've landed men on the tourney grounds. Hundreds! They're bringing a ram up to the king's gate!' Tyrion cursed and made for the steps with a rolling waddle. Podrick Payne waited below with their horses. They galloped off down River Row, Pod and Sir Mandon Moore coming hard behind. The shuttered houses were steeped in green shadow, but there was no traffic to get in their way. Tyrion had commanded that the streets be kept clear so the defenders could move quickly from one gate to the next. Even so, by the time they reached the king's gate, he could hear a booming crash of wood on wood that told him the battering ram had been brought into play. The groaning of the great hinges sounded like the moans of a dying giant. The gatehouse square was littered with the wounded, but he saw lines of horses as well, not all of them hurt, and sell swords and go cloaks enough to form a strong column. Form up! he shouted as he leapt to the ground. The gate moved under the impact of another blow. Who commands here? You're going out! No! A shadow detached itself from the shadow of the wall to become a tall man in dark grey armour. Sandor Clegane wrenched off his helm with both hands and let it fall to the ground. The steel was scorched and dented. The left ear of the snarling hound sheared off. A gash above one eye had sent a wash of blood down across the hound's old burn scars, masking half his face. Yes! Tyrion faced him. Clegane's breath came ragged. Bugger that! And you! A sellsword stepped up beside him. We've been out three times, 
Have our men are killed or hurt? Wildfire bursting all around us? Horses screaming like men, and men like horses? Do you think we are you to fight in a tourney? Shall I bring you a nice iced milk and a bowl of raspberries? No? Then get on your fucking horse! You too, dog! The blood on Kilgain's face glistened red, but his eyes showed white. He drew his longsword. He is afraid, Tyrion realized, shocked. The hound is frightened. He tried to explain their need. They've taken a ram to the gate. You can hear them. We need to disperse them. Open the gates. When I rush inside, surround them and kill them. The hound thrust the point of his longsword into the ground and leaned upon the pummel, swaying. I've lost half my men. Horse as well. I'm not taking more into that fire. Samandon Moore moved to Tyrion's side, immaculate in his enameled white plate. The king's hand commands you. Bugger the king's hand. Where the hound's face was not sticky with blood, it was pale as milk. Someone, bring me a drink. A go-cloak officer handed him a cup. Clegane took a swallow, spit it out, flung the cup away. Water? Fuck your water! Bring me wine! He is dead on his feet. Tyrion could see it now. The wound. The fire. He's done. I need to find someone else. But who? Samandan? He looked at the men and knew it would not do. Clegane's fear had shaken them. Without a leader, they would refuse as well. And Sir Mandon? A dangerous man, Jamie said. Yes, but not a man other men would follow. In the distance, Tyrion heard another great crash. Above the walls, the darkening sky was awash with sheets of green and orange light. How long could the gate hold? This is madness, he thought, but sooner madness than defeat. Defeat is death and shame. Very well, I'll lead the sortie. If he thought that would shame the hound back to valor, he was wrong. Clegane only laughed. You? Tyrion could see the disbelief on their faces. Me. Samandon, you'll bear the king's banner. Pod, my helm. The boy ran to obey. The hound leaned on that notched and blood-streaked sword and looked at him with those wide, white eyes. Samandon helped Tyrion mount up again. Form up, he shouted. His big red stallion wore crinet and chamfron. Crimson silk draped his hindquarters over a coat of mail. The high saddle was gilded. Podrick Payne handed up helm and shield, heavy oak emblazoned with a golden hand on red, surrounded by small golden lions. He walked his horse in a circle, looking at the little force of men. Only a handful had responded to his command, no more than twenty. They sat their horses with eyes as white as the hounds. He looked contemptuously at the others, the knights and sellswords who had ridden with Clegane. They say I'm half a man, he said. What does that make the lot of you? That shamed them well enough. A knight mounted, helmetless, and rode to join the others. A pair of sellswords followed, then more. The king's gate shuddered again. In a few moments, the size of Tyrion's command had doubled. He had them trapped. 
If I fight, they must do the same, or they are less than dwarfs. You won't hear me shout out Joffrey's name, he told them. You won't hear me yell for Castle Rock either. This is your city, Stannis means to sack, and that's your gate he's bringing down. So come with me, and kill the son of a bitch. Tyrion unsheathed his axe, wheeled the stallion around, and trotted toward the sally port. He thought they were following, but never dared to look. Sansa The torches shimmered brightly against the hammered metal of the wall sconces, filling the Queen's ballroom with silvery light. Yet there was still darkness in that hall. Sansa could see it in the pale eyes of Sir Ilian Payne, who stood by the back door, still as stone, taking neither food nor wine. She could hear it in Lord Giles' racking cough, and the whispered voice of Osney Kettleblack when he slipped in to bring Cersei the tidings. Sansa was finishing her broth when he came the first time, entering through the back. She glimpsed him talking to his brother, Osfrid. Then he climbed the dais and knelt beside the high seat, smelling of horse, four long, thin scratches on his cheek crusted with scabs, his hair falling down past his collar and into his eyes. For all his whispering, Sansa could not help but hear. The fleets are locked in battle. Some archers got ashore, but the hounds cut them to pieces, Your Grace. Your brother's raising his chain. I heard the signal. Some drunkards, down to flea bottom, are smashing doors and climbing through windows. Lord Bywater sent the gold cloaks to deal with them. Baylor Sept is jammed full. Everyone praying. And my son? The king went to Baylor's to get the high septon's blessing. Now he is walking the walls with a hand, telling the men to be brave, lifting their spirits, as it were. Cersei beckoned to her page for another cup of wine, a golden vintage from the arbor, fruity and rich. The queen was drinking heavily, but the wine only seemed to make her more beautiful. Her cheeks were flushed, and her eyes had a bright, feverish heat to them as she looked down over the hall. Eyes of wildfire, Sansa thought. Musicians played, jugglers juggled. Moon Boy lurched about the hall on stilts, making mock of everyone, while Sodontus chased serving girls on his broomstick horse. The guests laughed, but it was a joyless laughter, the sort of laughter that can turn into sobbing in half a heartbeat. Their bodies are here, but their thoughts are on the city walls, and their hearts as well. After the broth came a salad of apples, nuts, and raisins. At any other time, it might have made a tasty dish, but tonight all the food was flavoured with fear. Sansa was not the only one in the hall without an appetite. Lord Giles was coughing more than he was eating. Lolly Stokeworth sat hunched and shivering, and the young bride of one of Sir Lancel's knights, began to weep uncontrollably. The queen commanded Maester Franken to put her to bed with a cup of dream wine. Tears, she said scornfully to Sansa, as the woman was led from the hall. The woman's weapon, my lady mother used to call them. The man's weapon is a sword. And that tells us all you need to know, doesn't it? 
Ben must be very brave, though, said Sansa, to ride out and face swords and axes, everyone trying to kill you. Jamie told me once that he only feels truly alive in battle and in bed. She lifted her cup and took a long swallow. Her salad was untouched. I would sooner face any number of swords than sit helpless like this, pretending to enjoy the company of this flock of frightened hens. You are some here, Your Grace. Certain things are expected of a queen. They will be expected of you, should you ever wed Joffrey. Best learn. The queen studied the wives, daughters, and mothers who filled the benches. Of themselves, the hens are nothing, but their cocks are important for one reason or another, and some may survive this battle. So it behooves me to give their women my protection. If my wretched dwarf of a brother should somehow manage to prevail, they will return to their husbands and fathers full of tales about how brave I was, how my courage inspired them and lifted their spirits, how I never doubted our victory even for a moment. And if the castle should fall? You'd like that, wouldn't you? Cersei did not wait for a denial. If I'm not betrayed by my own guards, I may be able to hold here for a time. Then I can go to the walls and offer to yield to Lord Stannis in person. That will spare us the worst. But if Magor's Holdfast should fall before Stannis can come up, why then, most of my guests are in for a bit of rape, I'd say. And you should never rule out mutilation, torture, and murder at times like this. Sansa was horrified. These are women, unarmed and gently born. Their births protects them, Cersei admitted, though not as much as you'd think. Each one's worth a good ransom. But after the madness of battle, soldiers seem to want flesh more than coin. Even so, a golden shield is better than none. Out in the streets, the women won't be treated near as tenderly. Nor will our servants. Pretty things like that serving wench of Lady Tanders could be in for a lively night. But don't imagine the old and the infirm and the ugly will be spared. Enough drink will make blind washerwomen and reeking pig girls seem as comely as you, sweetling. Me? Try not to sound so like a mouse, Sansa. You're a woman now, remember? And betrothed to my firstborn. The queen sipped at her wine. Were it anyone else outside the gates, I might hope to beguile him. But this is Stannis Baratheon. I'd have a better chance of seducing his horse. She noticed the look on Sansa's face and laughed. Have I shocked you, my lady? She leaned close. You little fool. Tears are not a woman's only weapon. You've got another one between your legs, and you'd best learn to use it. You'll find men use their swords freely enough, both kinds of swords. Sansa was spared the need to reply when two kettleblacks re-entered the hall. Sir Osmond and his brothers had become great favourites about the castle. They were always ready with a smile and a jest. They got on with grooms and huntsmen, as well as they did with knights and squires. With the serving wenches, they got on best of all. It was gossiped. Of late, Sir Osmond had taken Sandor Kilgain's place by Joffrey's side, and Sansa had heard the women at the washing well saying he was as strong as a hound, only younger and faster. If that were so, she wondered why she had never once heard of these kettle blacks before Sir Osmond was named to the king's guard. Osnia was all smiles as he knelt beside the queen. 
The hulks have gone up, your grace. The whole black water awash with wildfire. A hundred ships burning, maybe more. And my son? He's at the mudgate, with the hand and the king's guard, your grace. He spoke to the archers on the hoardings before, and gave them a few tips on handling a crossbow he did. All agree he's a right brave boy. He'd best remain a right live boy. Cersei turned to his brother, Osfrid, who was taller, sterner, and wore a drooping black moustache. Yes? Osfrid had donned a steel half-helm over his long black hair, and the look on his face was grim. Your Grace, he said quietly, the boys caught a groom and two maidservants trying to sneak out a postern with three of the king's horses. The knights first traitors, the queen said, but not the last, I fear. Have Sir Ilion see to them and put their heads on pikes outside the stables as a warning. As they left, she turned to Sansa. Another lesson you should learn, if you hope to sit beside my son. Be gentle on a night like this, and you'll have treasons popping up all around you like mushrooms after a hard rain. The only way to keep your people loyal is to make certain they fear you more than they do the enemy. I will remember, Your Grace, said Sansa, though she had always heard that love was a surer route to the people's loyalty than fear. If I am ever a queen, I will make them love me. Crab-claw pies followed the salad. Then came mutton, roasted with leeks and carrots, served in trenches of hollowed bread. Lollies ate too fast, got sick, and retched all over herself and her sister. Lord Giles coughed, drank, coughed, drank, and passed out. The Queen gazed down in disgust to where he sprawled with his face in his trencher and his hand in a puddle of wine. The guards must have been mad to waste manhood on the likes of him, and I must have been mad to demand his release. Osfrid Kettleback returned, crimson cloak swirling. There's folks gathered in the square, Your Grace, asking to take refuge in the castle, not a mob, rich merchants and the like. Command them to return to their homes, the Queen said. If they won't go, have our crossbowmen kill a few. No sorties. I won't have the gates open for any reason. As you command. He bowed and moved off. The Queen's face was hard and angry. Would that I could take a sword to their necks myself. Her voice was starting to slur. When we were little, Jamie and I were so much alike that even our Lord Father could not tell us apart. Sometimes, as a lark, we would dress in each other's clothes and spend a whole day each as the other. Yet even so, when Jamie was given his first sword, there was none for me. What do I get? I remember asking. We were so much alike. I can never understand why they treated us differently. Jamie learned to fight with sword and lance and mace, while I was taught to smile and sing and please. He was heir to Castle Rock, while I was to be sold to some stranger like a horse, to be ridden whenever my new owner liked, beaten whenever he liked, and cast aside in time for a younger filly. Jamie's lot was to be glory and power, while mine was birth and moonblood. But you were queen of all the seven kingdoms, Sansa said. When it comes to swords, a queen is only a woman after all. 
Circe's wine cup was empty. The page moved to fill it up again, but she turned it over and shook her head. No more. I must keep a clear head. The last course was goat cheese served with baked apples. The scent of cinnamon filled the hall as Osney Kettleblack slipped in to kneel once more between them. Your Grace, he murmured, Stannis has landed men on the tawny grounds, and there's more coming across. The mudgate's under attack, and they brought a ram to the king's gate. The imp's gone out to drive them off. Well, that will fill them with fear, the queen said dryly. He hasn't taken Joff, I hope. No, your grace. The king's with my brother at the whores, flinging antler men into the river. With the mudgate under assault? Folly. Tell Sir Osmond... I want him out of there at once. It's too dangerous. Fetch him back to the castle. The, the imp said, It's what I say that ought to concern you. Cersei's eyes narrowed. Your brother will do as he's told, or I'll see to it that he leads the next sortie himself, and you'll go with him. After the meal had been cleared away, many of the guests asked leave to go to the sept. Cersei graciously granted their request. Lady Tanda and her daughters were among those who fled. For those who remained, a singer was brought forth to fill the hall with the sweet music of the high harp. He sang of Jonquil and Florian, of Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, and his love for his brother's queen, of Nymeria's ten thousand ships. They were beautiful songs, but terribly sad. Several of the women began to weep, and Sansa felt her own eyes growing moist. "'Very good, dear,' the Queen leaned closer. "'You want to practice those tears. "'You'll need them for King Stannis.' Sansa shifted nervously. "'Your Grace?' "'Oh, spare me your hollow courtesies. "'Matters must have reached a desperate strait out there "'if they need a dwarf to lead them, "'so you might as well take off your mask. "'I know all about your little treasons in the Godswood.' "'The Godswood?' Don't look at Sedantus, don't, don't, Sansa told herself. She doesn't know, no one knows. Dantus promised me. My Florian would never fail me. I've done no treasons. I only visit the gods would to pray. For Stannis, or your brother, it's all the same. Why else seek your father's gods? You're praying for our defeat. What would you call that, if not treason? I pray for Joffrey she insisted nervously. Why? Because he treats you so sweetly? The queen took a flagon of sweet plum wine from a passing serving girl and filled Sansa's cup. Drink, she commanded coldly. Perhaps it will give you the courage to deal with truth for a change. Sansa lifted the cup to her lips and took a sip. The wine was cloyingly sweet, but very strong. You can do better than that. Cersei said. Drain the cup, Sansa. Your queen commands it. It almost gagged her, but Sansa emptied the cup, gulping down the thick, sweet wine until her head was swimming. More? Cersei asked. No, please. The queen looked displeased. When you asked about Sir Ilian earlier, I lied to you. Would you like to hear the truth, Sansa? Would you like to know why he's really here? She did not dare answer, but it did not matter. The queen raised a hand and beckoned, never waiting for a reply. 
Sansa had not even seen Sir Ilian return to the hall, but suddenly there he was, striding from the shadows behind the dais as silent as a cat. He carried ice on sheaths. Her father had always cleaned the blade in the guard's wood after he took a man's head, Sansa recalled, but Sir Ilian was not so fastidious. There was blood drying on the rippling steel, the red already fading to brown. Tell Lady Sansa why I keep you by us, said Circe. Sir Ilian opened his mouth and emitted a choking rattle. His puck-scarred face had no expression. He's here for us, he says, the Queen said. Stannis may take the city, and he may take the throne. But I will not suffer him to judge me. I do not mean for him to have us alive. Us? You heard me. So perhaps you had best pray again, Sansa, and for a different outcome. The Starks will have no joy from the fall of House Lannister, I promise you. She reached out and touched Sansa's hair, brushing it lightly away from her neck. Tyrion The slot in his helm limited Tyrion's vision to what was before him, but when he turned his head he saw three galleys beached on the tawny grounds, and a fourth, larger than the others, standing well out into the river, firing barrels of burning pitch from a catapult. Wedge! Tyrion commanded, as his men streamed out of the sally port. They formed up in spearhead, with him at the point. Sir Mandenmore took the place to his right, flame shimmering against the white enamel of his armour, his dead eyes shining passionlessly through his helm. He rode a coal-black horse, barded all in white, with a pure white shield of the King's Guard strapped to his arm. On the left, Tyrion was surprised to see Podrick Payne, a sword in his hand. "'You're too young,' he said at once. "'Go back!' "'But I'm your squire, my lord.' Tyrion could spare no time for argument. "'With me, then. Stay close.' He kicked his horse into motion. They rode knee to knee, following the line of the looming walls. Joffrey's standard streamed crimson and gold from Sir Mandan's staff. Stag and lion dancing hoof to paw. They went from a walk to a trot, wheeling wide around the base of the tower. Arrows darted from the city walls, while stones spun and tumbled overhead, crashing down blindly onto earth and water, steel and flesh. Ahead loomed the king's gate, and a surging mob of soldiers wrestling with a huge ram, a shaft of black oak with an iron head. Archers off the ships surrounded them, loosing their shafts at whatever defenders showed themselves on the gatehouse walls. Lances! Tyrion commanded. He sped to a canter. The ground was sudden and slippery, equal parts of mud and blood. His stallion stumbled over a corpse, his hooves sliding and churning the earth, and for an instant Tyrion feared his charge would end with him tumbling from the saddle before he could even reach the foe, but somehow he and his horse both managed to keep their balance. Beneath the gate, men were turning, horridly trying to brace for the shock. Tyrion lifted his axe and shouted, King's Landing! Other voices took up the cry, and now the arrowhead flew 
a long scream of steel and silk, pounding hooves and sharp blades kissed by fire. Sir Mandon dropped the point of his lance at the last possible instant and drove Joffrey's banner through the chest of a man in a studded jerkin, lifting him full off his feet before the shaft snapped. Ahead of Tyrion was a knight whose surcoat showed a fox peering through a ring of flowers. Florent, was his first thought, but Helmless ran a close second. He smashed the man in the face with all the weight of axe and arm and charging horse, taking off half his head. The shock of impact numbed his shoulder. Shago would laugh at me, he thought, riding on. A spear thudded against his shield. Pod galloped beside him, slashing down at every foe they passed. Dimly he heard cheers from the men on the walls. The battering ram crashed down into the mud, forgotten in an instant, as its handlers fled or turned to fight. Tyrion rode down an archer, opened a spearman from shoulder to armpit, glanced to blow off a swordfish-crested helm. At the ram his big red reared, but the black stallion leapt the obstacle smoothly, and Sir Mandon flashed past him, death in snow-white silk. His sword sheared off limbs, cracked heads, broke shields asunder, though few enough of the enemy had made it across the river with shields intact. Tyrion urged his mount over the ram. Their foes were fleeing. He moved his head right to left and back again, but saw no sign of Podrick Payne. An arrow clattered against his cheek, missing his eye slit by an inch. His jolt of fear almost unhorsed him. If I'm to sit here like a stump, I had as well paint a target on my breastplate. He spurred his horse back into motion, trotting over and around a scatter of corpses. Downriver, the black water was jammed with the hulks of burning galleys. Patches of wildfire still floated atop the water, sending fiery green plumes swirling twenty feet into the air. They had dispersed the men on the battering ram, but he could see fighting all along the river front. Sir Balin Swan's men, most like, or Lancel's, trying to throw the enemy back into the water as they swarmed ashore off the burning ships. We'll ride for the mud gate, he commanded. Sir Mandon shouted, The mud gate! And they were off again. King's Landing! His men cried raggedly, and Half Man! Half Man! He wondered who had taught them that. Through the steel and padding of his helm, he heard anguished screams, the hungry crackle of flame, the shuddering of war horns, and the brazen blast of trumpets. Fire was everywhere. Gods be good. No wonder the hound was frightened. It's the flames he fears. A splintering crash rang across the black water as a stone the size of a horse landed square amidships on one of the galleys. Ours or theirs? Through the roiling smoke, he could not tell. His wedge was gone. Every man was his own battle now. I should have turned back, he thought, riding on. The axe was heavy in his fist. A handful still followed him, the rest dead or fled. He had to wrestle his stallion to keep his head to the east. The big desture liked fire no more than Sandor Clegane had, but the horse was easier to cow. Men were crawling from the river, men burned and bleeding, coughing up water, staggering, most dying. He led his troop among them, 
delivering quicker, cleaner deaths to those strong enough to stand. The war shrank to the size of his eye slit. Knights twice his size fled from him, or stood and died. They seemed little things and fearful. Lannister! he shouted, slaying. His arm was red to the elbow, glistening in the light off the river. When his horse reared again, he shook his axe at the stars and heard them call out, Half man! Half man! Tyrion felt drunk. The battle fever. He had never thought to experience it himself, though Jamie had told him of it often enough. How time seemed to blur and slow and even stop, how the past and the future vanished until there was nothing but the instant, how fear fled and thought fled, and even your body. You don't feel your wounds then, or the ache in your back from the weight of the armor, or the sweat running down into your eyes? You stop feeling, you stop thinking, you stop being you. There is only the fight, the foe, this man, and then the next, and the next, and the next. And you know that they are afraid and tired. But you're not, you're alive, and death is all around you. But their swords move so slowly, you can dance through them laughing. Battle fever. I'm half a man, and drunk with slaughter. Let them kill me if they can. They tried. Another spearman ran at him. Tyrion lopped off the head of his spear, then his hand, then his arm, trotting around him in a circle. An archer, bowless, thrusted him with an arrow, holding it as if it were a knife. The destrier kicked at the man's thigh to send him sprawling, and Tyrion barked laughter. He rode past a banner planted in the mud, one of Stannis's fiery hearts, and chopped the staff in two with a swing of his axe. A knight rose up from nowhere to hack at his shield with a two-handed greatsword, again and again, until someone thrust a dagger under his arm. One of Tyrion's men, perhaps, he never saw. "'I yield, sir!' a different knight called out farther down the river. "'Yield, sir knight, I yield to you, my, my pledge, here, here!' The man lay in a puddle of black water, offering up a lobstered gauntlet in token of submission. Tyrion had to lean down to take it from him. As he did, a pot of wildfire burst overhead, spraying green flame. In the sudden stab of light, he saw that the puddle was not black but red. The gauntlet still had the knight's hand in it. He flung it back. Yield! The man sobbed, hopelessly, helplessly. Tyrion reeled away. A man-at-arms grabbed the bridle of his horse and thrust at Tyrion's face with a dagger. He knocked the blade aside and buried the axe in the nape of the man's neck. As he was resting it free, a blaze of white appeared at the edge of his vision. Tyrion turned, thinking to find Sir Mandon Moore beside him again. But this was a different white knight. Sir Balon Swan wore the same armor, but his horse trappings bore the battling black-and-white swans of his house. He's more a spotted knight than a white one, Tyrion thought inanely. Every bit of Sir Balon was splattered with gore and smudged by smoke. He raised his mace to point down river. Bits of brain and bone clung to its head. My lord, look! Tyrion swung his horse about to peer down the black water. The current still flowed black and strong beneath, but the surface 
was a royal of blood and flame. The sky was red and orange and garish green. What? he said. Then he saw. Steel-clad, men-at-arms were clambering off a broken galley that had smashed into a pier. So many? Where are they coming from? Squinting into the smoke and glare, Tyrion followed them back into the river. Twenty galleys were jammed together out there, maybe more. It was hard to count. Their oars were crossed, their hulls locked together with grappling lines. They were impaled on each other's rams, tangled in webs of fallen rigging. One great hulk floated hull up between two smaller ships. Wrecks, but packed so closely that it was possible to leap from one deck to the other and so cross the Blackwater. Hundreds of Stannis Baratheon's boldest were doing just that. Tyrion saw one great fool of a knight trying to ride across, urging a terrified horse over gunnels and oars, across tilting decks slick with blood and crackling with green fire. We made them a bloody bridge, he thought in dismay. Parts of the bridge were sinking, and other parts were afire, and the whole thing was creaking and shifting, and like to burst asunder at any moment. But that did not seem to stop them. Those are brave men, he told Sir Balin in admiration. Let's go kill them. He led them through the guttering fires and the soot and ash of the river front, pounding down a long stone quay with his own men and Sir Balin's behind him. Sir Mandon fell in with them, his shield a ragged ruin. Smoke and cinders swirled through the air, and the foe broke before their charge, throwing themselves back into the water, knocking over other men as they fought to climb up. The foot of the bridge was a half-sunken enemy galley, with Dragonsbane painted on her prow. Her bottom ripped out by one of the sunken hulks Tyrion had placed between the keys. A spearman, wearing the red crab badge of House Celtigar, drove the point of his weapon up through the chest of Balon Swan's horse before he could dismount, spilling the knight from the saddle. Tyrion hacked at the man's head as he flashed by, but by then it was too late to rein up. His talion leapt from the end of the quay and over a splintered gunwale, landing with a splash and a scream in ankle-deep water. Tyrion's axe went spinning, followed by Tyrion himself, and the deck rose up to give him a wet smack. Madness followed. His horse had broken a leg and was screaming horribly. Somehow he managed to draw his dagger and slit the poor creature's throat. The blood gushed out in a scarlet fountain, drenching his arms and chest. He found his feet again and lurched to the rail. And then he was fighting, staggering, and splashing across crooked decks awash with water. Men came at him. Some he killed, some he wounded, and some went away. But always there were more. He lost his knife and gained a broken spear. He could not have said how. He clutched it and stabbed, shrieking curses. Men ran from him, and he ran after them, clambering over the rail to the next ship and then the next. His two white shadows were always with him, Balon Swan and Mandon Moore, beautiful in their pale plate. Surrounded by a circle of Valarian spearmen, they fought back to back. They made battle as graceful as a dance. His own killing was a clumsy thing. He stabbed one man in the kidney when his back was turned, and grabbed another by the leg and upended him into the river. 
Arrows hissed past his head and clattered off his armor. One lodged between his shoulder and breastplate. He never felt it. A naked man fell from the sky and landed on the deck, body bursting like a melon dropped from a tower. His blood spattered through the slit in Tyrion's helm. Stones began to plummet down, crashing through the decks and turning men to pulp, until a whole bridge gave a shudder and twisted violently underfoot, knocking him sideways. Suddenly, the river was pouring into his helm. He ripped it off and crawled along the listing deck until the water was only neck deep. A groaning filled the air, like the death cries of some enormous beast. The ship, he had time to think, the ship's about to tear loose. The broken galleys were ripping apart, the bridge breaking apart. No sooner had he come to that realization than he heard a sudden crack, loud as thunder. The deck lurched beneath him, and he slid back down into the water. The list was so steep he had to climb back up, hauling himself along a snapped line inch by bloody inch. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw the hulk they'd been tangled with drifting downstream with the current, spinning slowly as men leapt over her side. Some wore Stannis's flaming heart, some Joffrey's stag and lion, some other badges, but it seemed to make no matter. Fires were burning upstream and down. On one side of him was a raging battle, a great confusion of bright banners waving above a sea of struggling men, shield walls forming and breaking, mounted knights cutting through the press, dust and mud and blood and smoke. On the other side, the Red Keep loomed high on its hill, spitting fire. They were on the wrong sides, though. For a moment Tyrion thought he was going mad that Stannis and the castle had traded places. How could Stannis cross to the north bank? Belatedly, he realized that the deck was turning, and somehow he had gotten spun about, so the castle and battle had changed sides. Battle? What battle? If Stannis hasn't crossed, who is he fighting? Tyrion was too tired to make sense of it. His shoulder ached horribly, and when he reached up to rub it, he saw the arrow and remembered. I have to get off this ship. Downstream was nothing but a wall of fire, and if the wreck broke loose, the current would take him right into it. Someone was calling his name faintly through the din of battle. Tyrion tried to shout back, Here! Here! I'm here! Help me! His voice sounded so thin he could scarcely hear himself. He pulled himself up the slanting deck and grabbed for the rail. The hull slammed into the next galley over and rebounded so violently he was almost knocked into the water. Where had all his strength gone? It was all he could do to hang on. My lord, take my hand! My lord Tyrion! There on the deck of the next ship, across a widening gulf of black water, stood Sir Mandon Moore, a hand extended. Yellow and green fire shone against the white of his armour, and his lobstered gauntlet was sticky with blood, but Tyrion reached for it all the same, wishing his arms were longer. It was only at the very last, as their fingers brushed across the gap, that something niggled at him. Sir Mandon was holding out his left hand. Why? Was that why he reeled backward? Or did he see the sword after all? He would never know. The point slashed just beneath his eyes, and he felt its cold, hard touch, 
and then a blaze of pain. His head spun around as if he'd been slapped. The shock of the cold water was a second slap more jolting than the first. He flailed for something to grab onto, knowing that once he went down, he was not like to come back up. Somehow his hand found the splintered end of a broken oar. Clutching it tight as a desperate lover, he shinned up foot by foot. His eyes were full of water, his mouth was full of blood, and his head throbbed horribly. God give me strength to reach the deck. There was nothing else, only the oar, the water, the deck. Finally, he rolled over the side and lay breathless and exhausted, flat on his back. Balls of green and orange flame crackled overhead, leaving streaks between the stars. He had a moment to think how pretty it was before Sir Mandon blocked out the view. The night was a white steel shadow, his eyes shining darkly behind his helm. Tyrion had no more strength than a rag doll. Sir Mandon put the point of his sword to the hollow of his throat and curled both hands around the hilt. And suddenly he lurched to the left, staggering into the rail. Wood split, and Sir Mandon Moore vanished with a shout and a splash. An instant later the hulls came slamming together again so hard the deck seemed to jump. Then someone was kneeling over him. Jamie, he croaked, almost choking on the blood that filled his mouth. Who else would save him, if not his brother? Be still, my lord. You're hurt bad. A boy's voice. That makes no sense, thought Tyrion. It sounded almost like Pod. Sansa when Sir Lancel Lannister told the Queen that the battle was lost, she turned her empty wine cup in her hands and said, Tell my brother, sir. Her voice was distant, as if the news were of no great interest to her. Your brother's likely dead. Sir Lancel's surcoat was soaked with the blood seeping out under his arm. When they had arrived in the hall, the sight of him had made some of the guests scream. He was on the bridge of boats when it broke apart, we think. Sir Mandon's likely gone as well, and no one can find the hound. Gods be damned, Cersei, why did you have them fetch Joffrey back to the castle? The gold cloaks are throwing down their spears and running, hundreds of them. When they saw the king leaving, they lost all heart. The whole Blackwater's awash with wrecks and fire and corpses. But we could have held if— Osney Kettleblack pushed past him. There's fighting on both sides of the river now, Your Grace. It may be that some of Stannis's lords are fighting each other, no one's sure. It's all confused over there. The hound's gone, no one knows where, and Sir Balin's fallen back inside the city. The riverside's theirs. They're ramming at the King's Gate again, and Sir Lancel's right. Your men are deserting the walls and killing their own officers. There's mobs at the Iron Gate and the Gate of the Guards fighting to get out, and flee bottoms. One great drunken riot. Gods be good, Sansa thought. It is happening. Joffrey's lost his head, and so have I. She looked for Sir Ilian, but the king's justice was not to be seen. I can feel him, though. He's close. I'll not escape him. He'll have my head. 
strangely calm. The Queen turned to his brother, Osfrit. Raise the drawbridge and bar the doors. No one enters or leaves Magor's without my leave. What about them women who went to pray? They chose to leave my protection. Let them pray. Perhaps the guards will defend them. Where's my son? The castle gatehouse. He wanted to command the crossbowmen. There's a mob howling outside, half of them gold cloaks, who came with him when we left the mud gate. Bring him inside, Magor's now. No! Lancel was so angry he forgot to keep his voice down. Heads turned toward them as he shouted, We'll have the mud gate all over again. Let him say where he is. He's the king. He's my son, Cersei Lannister rose to her feet. You claim to be a Lannister as well, cousin. Prove it. Osfrid, why are you standing there? Now means today. Osfrid Kettleblack hurried from the hall, his brother with him. Many of the guests were rushing out as well. Some of the women were weeping, some praying. Others simply remained at the tables and called for more wine. Cersei, Sir Lancel pleaded, If we lose the castle, Joffrey will be killed in any case, you know that. Let him stay. I'll keep him by me, I swear. Get out of my way! Cersei slammed her open palm into his wound. Sir Lancel cried out in pain and almost fainted as the queen swept from the room. She spared Sansa not so much as a glance. She's forgotten me. Sir Elian will kill me, and she won't even think about it. Oh, gods! An old woman wailed. We're lost! The battle's lost! She's running! Several children were crying. They can smell the fear. Sansa found herself alone on the dais. Should she stay here, or run after the queen and plead for her life? She never knew why she got to her feet, but she did. Don't be afraid, she told them loudly. The queen has raised the drawbridge. This is the safest place in the city. There's thick walls, the moat, the spikes. What's happened? demanded a woman she knew slightly, the wife of a lesser lordling. What did Osni tell her? Is the king hurt? Has the city fallen? Tell us! Someone else shouted. One woman asked about her father, another her son. Sansa raised her hands for quiet. Joffrey's come back to the castle. He's not hurt. They're still fighting, that's all I know. They're fighting bravely. The queen will be back soon. The last was a lie, but she had to soothe them. She noticed the fool standing under the galley. Moonboy, make us laugh. Moonboy did a cartwheel and vaulted on top of a table. He grabbed up four wine cups and began to juggle them. Every so often one of them would come down and smash him in the head. A few nervous laughs echoed through the hall. Sansa went to Sir Lancel and knelt beside him. His wound was bleeding afresh where the queen had struck him. Madness, he gasped. Gods, the imp was right, was right. Help him, Sansa commanded two of the serving men. One just looked at her and ran, flagon and all. Other servants were leaving the hall as well, but she could not help that. Together Sansa and the serving man got the wounded knight back on his feet. Take him to Maester Franken. Lancel was one of them, yet somehow she still could not bring herself to wish him dead. I am soft and weak and stupid, 
just as Joffrey says. I should be killing him, not helping him. The torches had begun to burn low, and one or two had flickered out. No one troubled to replace them. Cersei did not return. Sir Duntus climbed the dais while all eyes were on the other fool. Go back to your bedchamber, sweet Jonquil, he whispered. Lock yourself in. You'll be safer there. I'll come for you when the battle's done. Someone will come for me, Sansa thought. But will it be you, or will it be Sir Ilian? For a mad moment she thought of begging Dantas to defend her. He'd been a knight, too, trained with a sword, and sworn to defend the weak. No, he has not the courage, or the skill. I would only be killing him as well. It took all the strength she had in her to walk slowly from the Queen's ballroom, when she wanted so badly to run. When she reached the steps, she did run, up and around, until she was breathless and dizzy. One of the guards knocked into her on the stair. A jeweled wine cup and a pair of silver candlesticks spilled out of the crimson cloak it wrapped them in and went clattering down the steps. He hurried after them, paying Sansa no mind, once he decided she was not going to try and take his loot. Her bedchamber was black as pitch. Sansa barred the door and fumbled through the dark to the window. When she ripped back the drapes, her breath caught in her throat. The southern sky was a swirl with glowing, shifting colors, the reflections of the great fires that burned below. Baleful green tides moved against the bellies of the clouds, and pools of orange light spread out across the heavens. The reds and yellows of common flame warred against the emeralds and jades of wildfire, each color flaring and then fading, birthing armies of short-lived shadows to die again an instant later. Green dawns gave way to orange dusks in half a heartbeat. The air itself smelled burnt, the way a soup kettle sometimes smelled, if it was left on the fire too long and all the soup boiled away. Embers drifted through the night air like swarms of fireflies. Sansa backed away from the window, retreating towards the safety of her bed. I'll go to sleep, she told herself, and when I wake, it will be a new day, and the sky will be blue again. The fighting will be done, and someone will tell me whether I am to live or die. Lady, she whimpered softly, wondering if she would meet her wolf again when she was dead. Then something stirred beside her, and a hand reached out of the dark and grabbed her wrist. Sansa opened her mouth to scream, but another hand clamped down over her face, smothering her. His fingers were rough and calloused and sticky with blood. Little bird, I knew you'd come. The voice was a drunken rasp. Outside, a swirling lance of jade light split at the stars, filling the room with green glare. She saw him for a moment, all black and green, the blood on his face dark as tar, his eyes glowing like a dog's in the sudden glare. Then the light faded, and he was only a hulking darkness in a stained white cloak. If you scream, I'll kill you. Believe that. He took his hand from her mouth. Her breath was coming ragged. The hound had a flagon of wine on her bedside table. 
he took a long pull. Don't you want to ask who's winning the battle, little bird? Who? she said, too frightened to defy him. The hound laughed. I only know who's lost. Me. He's drunken I've ever seen him. He was sleeping in my bed. What does he want here? What have you lost? All. The burnt half of his face was a mask of dried blood. Bloody dwarf! Should have killed him years ago. He's dead, they say. Dead? Ah, oh, bugger that. I don't want him dead. He cast the empty flagon aside. I want him burned. If the gods are good, they'll burn him. But I won't be here to see. I'm going. Going? She tried to wriggle free, but his grasp was iron. The little bird repeats whatever she is. Going, yes. Where will you go? Away from here. Away from the fires. Go out the iron gate, I suppose. North somewhere. Anywhere. You won't get out, Sansa said. The Queen's closed up Magor's, and the city gates are shut as well. Not to me. I have the white cloak, and I have this. He patted the pommel of his sword. The man who tries to stop me is a dead man. <laughs> Honest, he's on fire. <laughs> he laughed bitterly. Why did you come here? You promised me a song, little bird. Have you forgotten? She didn't know what he meant. She couldn't sing for him now, here, with the sky swirl with fire, and men dying in their hundreds and their thousands. I can't, she said. Let me go, you're scaring me. Everything scares you. Look at me. Look at me. The blood masked the worst of his scars, but his eyes were white and wide and terrifying. The burnt corner of his mouth twitched and twitched again. Sansa could smell him, a stink of sweat and sour wine and stale vomit, and over it all the reek of blood, blood, blood. I could keep you safe, he rasped. They're all afraid of me. No one would hurt you again, or I'd kill them. He yanked her closer, and for a moment she thought he meant to kiss her. He was too strong to fight. She closed her eyes, wanting it to be over. But nothing happened. Still can't bear to look, can you? She heard him say. He gave her arm a hard wrench, pulling her around and shoving her down onto the bed. I'll have that song. Florian and Junkwall, you said. His dagger was out, poised at her throat. Sing, little bird, sing for your little life. Her throat was dry and tight with fear, and every song she had ever known had fled from her mind. Please don't kill me, she wanted to scream. Please don't. She could feel him twisting the point, pushing it into her throat. And she almost closed her eyes again. But then she remembered. It was not the song of Florian and Jonquil, but it was a song. Her voice sounded small and thin and tremulous in her ears. Gentle mother, fond of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows. Let them know a better day. 
gentle mother, strength of women, help our daughters through this fray, soothe the wrath and tame the fury, teach us all a kind way. She had forgotten the other verses. When her voice trailed off, she feared he might kill her, but after a moment the hound took the blade from her throat, never speaking. Some instinct made her lift her hand and cup his cheek with her fingers. The room was too dark for her to see him, but she could feel the stickiness of the blood and a wetness that was not blood. Little bird, he said once more, his voice raw and harsh as steel on stone. Then he rose from the bed. Sansa heard cloth ripping, followed by the softer sound of retreating footsteps. When she crawled out of bed, long moments later, she was alone. She found his cloak on the floor, twisted up tight, the white wall stained by blood and fire. The sky outside was darker by then, with only a few pale green ghosts dancing against the stars. A chill wind was blowing, banging the shutters. Sansa was cold. She shook out the torn cloak and huddled beneath it on the floor, shivering. How long she stayed there she could not have said, but after a time she heard a bell ringing, far off across the city. The sound was a deep-throated bronze booming, coming faster with each knell. Sansa was wondering what it might mean when a second bell joined in and a third, their voices calling across the hills and hollows, the alleys and towers, to every corner of King's Landing. She threw off the cloak and went to her window. The first faint hint of dawn was visible in the east, and the Red Keep's own bells were ringing now, joining in the swelling river of sound that flowed from the seven crystal towers of the great sept of Baelor. They had rung the bells when King Robert died, she remembered, but this was different. No slow, dolorous death knell, but a joyful thunder. She could hear men shouting in the streets as well, and something that could only be cheers. It was Sedantus who brought her the word. He staggered through her open door, wrapped her in his flabby arms, and whirled her round and around the room, whooping so incoherently that Sansa understood not a word of it. He was as drunk as the hound had been but in him it was a dancing, happy drunk. She was breathless and dizzy when he let her down. What is it? She clutched at a bedpost. What's happened? Tell me. It's done, done, done. The city is saved. Lord Stannis is dead. Lord Stannis has fled. No one knows. No one cares. His host is broken. The danger's gone. Slaughtered, scattered, or gone over, they say. Oh, the bright banners, the banners, Jonquil, the banners. <laughs> you have any wine? We ought to drink to this day. Yes, it means you're safe, don't you see? Tell me what's happened. Sansa shook him. Sir Dantus laughed and hopped from one leg to the other, almost falling. They came up through the ashes while the river was burning. 
The river, oh, Stannis was neck deep in the river, and they took him from the rear. Oh, to be a knight again, to have been part of it. His own men hardly fought, they say. Some ran, but more bent the knee and went over, shouting for Lord Renly. <laughs> what must Stannis have thought when he heard that? I had it from Osney Kettleblack, who had it from us husband, but Sir Balin's back now, and his men say the same, and the gold cloaks as well. We're delivered, sweet laden. They came up the Rose Road and along the river bank through all the fields Stannis had burned, the ashes puffing up around their boots and turning all their armor gray. But, oh, the banners must have been bright. The golden rose and golden lion and all the others, the marbrand tree and the rowan, Tarley's huntsman and red wine's grapes and Lady Oakheart's leaf, <laughs> all the Westermen, all the power of High Garden and Castle Rock, Lord Tywin himself had their right wing on the north side of the river, with Randall Tarley commanding the centre and Mace Tyrell the left. But the vanguard won the fight. They plunged through Stannis like a lance through a pumpkin. Every man of them howling like some demon in steel. And you know who led the vanguard? Do you? Do you? Do you? Rob? It was too much to be hoped, but it was Lord Renly! <laughs> Lord Renly in his green armour with the fire shimmering off his golden antlers. Lord Renly with his tall spear in his hand. They say he killed Sir Gaiad Morrigan himself in single combat, and a dozen other knights as well. It was Renly! <laughs> it was Renly! It was Renly! Oh, the banners, darling, Sancha! Oh, to be a knight! Daenerys She was breaking her fast on a bowl of cold shrimp and persimmon soup, when Iri brought her a Carthian gown, an airy confection of ivory samite patterned with seed pearls. Take it away, Denny said. The docks are no place for ladies' finery. If the milkman thought her such a savage, she would dress the part for them. When she went to the stables, she wore faded sand silk pants and woven grass sandals. Her small breast moved freely beneath a painted Dothraki vest and a curved dagger hung from her medallion belt. Jeque had braided her hair Dothraki fashion, and fastened a silver bell to the end of the braid. "'I have won no victories,' she tried telling her handmaid when the bell tinkled softly. Jeque disagreed. "'You burned the Meiji in their house of dust and sent their souls to hell.' "'That was Drogon's victory, not mine,' Danny wanted to say, but she held her tongue. The Dothraki would esteem her all the more for a few bells in her hair. She chimed as she mounted her silver mare, and again with every stride, but neither Sir Jorah nor her blood riders made mention of it. To guard her people and her dragons in her absence, she chose Rakara. Jogo and Ego would ride with her to the waterfront. They left the marble palaces and fragrant gardens behind, and made their way through a poorer part of the city where modest brick houses 
turned blind walls to the street. There were fewer horses and camels to be seen, and a dearth of palanquins, but the streets teem with children, beggars, and skinny dogs the color of sand. Pale men in dusty linen skirts stood beneath arched doorways to watch them pass. They know who I am, and they do not love me. Danny could tell from the way they looked at her. Sir Jorah would sooner have tucked her inside her palanquin, safely hidden behind silken curtains, but she refused him. She had reclined too long on the satin cushions, letting oxen bear her hither and yon. At least when she rode, she felt as though she were getting somewhere. It was not by choice that she sought the waterfront. She was fleeing again. Her whole life had been one long flight, it seemed. She had begun running in her mother's womb, and never once stopped. How often had she and Viserys stolen away in the black of night, a bare step ahead of the usurper's hired knives? But it was run or die. Zaro had learned that Piat Pri was gathering the surviving warlocks together to work ill on her. Danny had laughed when he told her. Was it not you who told me warlocks were no more than old soldiers, vainly boasting of forgotten deeds and lost prowess? Zaro looked troubled. And so it was then, but now <laughs> I am less certain. It is said that the glass candles are burning in the house of Urathan Nightworker, that have not burned in a hundred years. Ghostgrass grows in the garden of Gethane. Phantom tortoises have been seen carrying messages between the windowless houses on Warlock's Way, and all the rats in the city are chewing off their tails. The wife of Mathis Malarawan, who once mocked a warlock's drab, moth-eaten robe, has gone mad and will wear no clothes at all. Even fresh-washed silks make her feel as though a thousand insects were crawling on her skin. And blind Cybassian, the eater of eyes, can see again, or so his slaves do swear. <laughs> a man must wander, he sighed. These are strange times in Karth, and strange times are bad for trade. It grieves me to say so, yet it might be best if you left Karth entirely, eh? and sooner rather than later. Zara stroked her fingers reassuringly. You need not go alone, though. You have seen dark visions in the Palace of Dust. But Zaro has dreamed brighter dreams. I see you happily abed, with our child at your breast. Sail with me around the Jade Sea, and we can yet make it so. It is not too late. Give me a son, my sweet song of joy. Give you a dragon, you mean? I will not wed you, Zaro. His face had grown cold at that. Then go. But where? Somewhere, far from here. Well, perhaps it was time. The people of Akalasar had welcomed the chance to recover from the ravages of the Red Waste, but now that they were plump and rested once again, they began to grow unruly. Dothraki were not accustomed to staying long in one place. They were a warrior people, not made for cities. 
Perhaps she had lingered in Carth too long, seduced by its comforts and its beauties. It was a city that always promised more than it would give you, it seemed to her, and her welcome here had turned sour since the house of the undying had collapsed in a great gout of smoke and flame. Overnight the Carthian had come to remember that dragons were dangerous. No longer did they vie with each other to give her gifts. Instead, the Tormaline Brotherhood had called openly for her expulsion, and the ancient Guild of Spices for her death. It was all Zaro could do to keep the Thirteen from joining them. But where am I to go? Sir Jorah proposed that they journey farther east, away from her enemies in the Seven Kingdoms. Her blood riders would sooner have returned to their great grass sea, even if it meant braving the Red Waste again. Danny herself had toyed with the idea of settling in Vase Toloro until her dragons grew great and strong, but her heart was full of doubts. Each of these felt wrong somehow, and even when she decided where to go, the question of how she would get there remained troublesome. Zaro Zoandaxis would be no help to her. She knew that now. For all his professions of devotion, he was playing his own game, not unlike Pyat Pri. The night he asked her to leave, Danny had begged one last favor of him. An army, is it? Zaro asked. A kettle of gold? <laughs> A galley, perhaps? Danny blushed. She hated begging. A ship, yes. Zaro's eyes had glittered as brightly as the jewels in his nose. I am a trader, Khaleesi, so perhaps we should speak no more of giving, eh? but rather of trade. For one of your dragons, you shall have ten of the finest ships in my fleet. You need only say that one sweet word. No, she said. Alas, <laughs> Zaro sobbed. That was not the word I meant. Would you ask a mother to sell one of her children? Why ever not, eh? They can always make more. Mothers sell their children every day. Not the mother of dragons. Not even for twenty ships. Not for a hundred. His mouth curled downward. I do not have a hundred. But you have three dragons, eh? Grant me one. For all my kindnesses, you will still have two, and thirty ships as well. Thirty ships would be enough to land a small army on the shores of Westeros. But I do not have a small army. How many ships do you own, Zara? Eighty-three, if one does not count my pleasure barge. And your colleagues in the thirteen? Among us all... Perhaps a thousand. And the Spices, and the Tourmaline Brotherhood. Their trifling fleets are of no account. Even so, she said, tell me. Twelve or thirteen hundred for the Spices. No more than eight hundred for the Brotherhood. And the Ashai, the Bravasi, the Summer Islanders, the Ibanese, and all the other peoples who sail the Great Salt Sea, how many ships do they have all together? Many and more, he said irritably. What does this matter? I am trying to set a price on one of the three living dragons in the world. Danny smiled at him sweetly. 
It seems to me that one-third of all the ships in the world would be fair. Zara's tears ran down his cheeks on either side of his jewel-encrusted nose. Did I not warn you not to enter the palace of dust? Eh? This is the very thing I feared. The whispers of the warlocks have made you as mad as Malarowan's wife. A third of all the ships in the world? Ha! Ha! I say, ha! Danny had not seen him since. His seneschal brought her messages, each cooler than the last. She must quit his house. He was done feeding her and her people. He demanded the return of his gifts, which she had accepted in bad faith. Her only consolation was that at least she had had the great good sense not to marry him. The warlocks whispered of three treasons, once for blood, and once for gold, and once for love. The first traitor was surely Miramazdur, who had murdered Karl Drogo and their unborn son to avenge her people. Could Piat Pri and Zarozo and Daxus be the second and the third? She did not think so. What Piat did was not for gold, and Zaro had never truly loved her. The streets grew emptier as they passed through a district given over to gloomy stone warehouses. Ego went before her and Jogo behind, leaving Sir Jorah Mormont at her side. Her bell rang softly, and Danny found her thoughts returning to the Palace of Dust once more, as the tongue returns to a space left by a missing tooth. Child of three, they had called her, daughter of death, slayer of lies, bride of fire. So many threes, three fires, three mounts to ride, three treasons. The dragon has three heads, she sighed. Do you know what that means, Jonah? Your grace, the sigil of House Targaryen is a three-headed dragon, red on black. I know that, but there are no three-headed dragons. The three heads were Aegon and his sisters. Vesenia and Rhaenys, she recalled. I am descended from Aegon and Rhaenys through their son Aenys and their grandson Jaehaerys. Blue lips speak only lies. Isn't that what Zaro told you? Why do you care what the warlocks whispered? All they wanted was to suck the life from you. You know that now. Perhaps, she said reluctantly. Yet the things I saw... A dead man in the prow of a ship, a blue rose, a banquet of blood. What does any of it mean, Khaleesi? A mummer's dragon, you said. What is a mummer's dragon, pray? A cloth dragon on poles, Danny explained. Mummers use them in their follies, to give the heroes something to fight. So Jorah frowned. Danny could not let it go. His is the song of ice and fire, my brother said. I'm certain it was my brother, not Viserys, Rhaegar. He had a harp with silver strings. Sir Jorah's frown deepened until his eyebrows came together. Prince Rhaegar played such a harp, he conceded. You saw him? She nodded. There was a woman in a bed with a babe at her breast. My brother said the babe was the prince that was promised, and told her to name him Aegon. 
Prince Aegon was Rhaegar's heir by a liar of dawn, Sir Jorah said. But if he was the prince that was promised, the promise was broken along with his skull when the Lannisters dashed his head against a wall. I remember, Danny said sadly. They murdered Rhaegar's daughter as well, the little princess. Rhaenys, she was named, like Aegon's sister. There was no Visenya, but he said the dragon has three heads. What is the song of ice and fire? It's no song I've ever heard. I went to the warlocks hoping for answers, but instead they've left me with a hundred new questions. By then there were people in the streets once more. Make way! Ego shouted, while Jogo sniffed at the air suspiciously. I smell it, Khaleesi, he called. The poison water! The Dothraki distrusted the sea and all that moved upon it. Water that a horse could not drink was water they wanted no part of. They will learn, Danny resolved. I braved their sea with Karl Drogo. Now they can brave mine. Karth was one of the world's great ports, its great sheltered harbour, a riot of colour and clangour and strange smells. Wine sinks, warehouses, and gaming dens lined the streets, cheek by jowl with cheap brothels and the temples of peculiar gods. Cut purses, cut throats, spell sellers and money changers mingled with every crowd. The waterfront was one great marketplace where the buying and selling went on all day and all night, and goods might be had for a fraction of what they cost at the bazaar, if a man did not ask where they came from. Wizened old women, bent like hunchbacks, sold flavoured waters and goat's milk from glazed ceramic jugs strapped to their shoulders. Seamen from half a hundred nations wandered amongst the stalls, drinking spice liquors and trading jokes in queer-sounding tongues. The air smelled of salt and frying fish, of hot tar and honey, of incense and oil and sperm. Ego gave an urchin a copper for a skewer of honey-roasted mice and nibbled them as he rode. Jogo bought a handful of fat white cherries. Elsewhere they saw beautiful bronze daggers for sale, dried squids, and carved onyx, a potent magical elixir made of virgin's milk and shade of the evening, even dragon's eggs, which look suspiciously like painted rocks. As they passed the long stone keys reserved for the ships of the Thirteen, she saw chests of saffron, frankincense, and pepper being offloaded from Zara's ornate vermilion kiss. Beside her, casks of wine, bales of sour leaf, and pallets of striped hides were being trundled up the gangplank onto the bride in azure, to sail on the evening tide. Farther along, a crowd had gathered around the Spicer Galley, Sunblaze, to bid on slaves. It was well known that the cheapest place to buy a slave was right off the ship, and the banners floating from her mast proclaimed that the Sunblaze had just arrived from Astapor on Slaver's Bay. Danny would get no help from the Thirteen, the Tormali Brotherhood, or the ancient Guild of Spices. She rode her silver past several miles of their quays, docks, and storehouses, all the way out to the far end of the horseshoe-shaped harbour where the ships from the Summer Islands, Westeros, 
and the nine free cities were permitted to dock. She dismounted beside a gaming pit, where a basilisk was tearing a big red dog to pieces amidst a shouting ring of sailors. Egger, Joger, you will guard the horses while Sir Joran and I speak to the captains. As you say, Khaleesi, we will watch you as you go. It was good to hear men speaking Valyrian once more, and even the common tongue, Danny thought, as they approached the first ship. Sailors, dock workers, and merchants alike gave way before her, not knowing what to make of the slim young girl with silver-gold hair, who dressed in the Dothraki fashion and walked with a knight at her side. Despite the heat of the day, Sir Jorah wore his green wool surcoat over chain mail, the black bear of Mormont sewn on his chest. But neither her beauty nor his size and strength would serve with the men whose ships they needed. You require passage for a hundred Dothraki, all their horses, yourself and this knight, and three dragons, said the captain of the great cog, ardent friend, before he walked away laughing. When she told Elysene on the trumpeteer that she was Daenerys Stormborn, queen of the Seven Kingdoms, he gave her a dead-faced look and said, Aye, and I'm Lord Tywin Lannister, and shit gold every night. The cargo master of the Moorish galley, Silken Spirit, opined that dragons were too dangerous at sea, where any stray breath of flame might set the rigging afire. The owner of Lord Faro's belly would risk dragons, but not Dothraki. I'll have no such godless savages in my belly, I'll not. The two brothers who captained the sister ships, Quicksilver and Greyhound, seemed sympathetic and invited them into the cabin for a glass of Arbor Red. They were so courteous that Danny was hopeful for a time, but in the end the price they asked was far beyond her means and might have been beyond Zara's. Pinchbottom Petto and Slow-Eyed Maid were too small for her needs. Bravo was bound for the Jade Sea, and Magister Manola scarce looked seaworthy. As they made their way toward the next quay, Sir Jorah laid a hand against the small of her back. Your Grace, you are being followed. No, do not turn. He guided her gently towards a brass seller's booth. This is a noble work, my queen, he proclaimed loudly, lifting a large platter for her inspection. See how it shines in the sun. The brass was polished to a high sheen. Danny could see her face in it, and when Sir Joro angled it to the right, she could see behind her. I see a fat brown man and an older man with a staff. Which is it? Both of them, Sir Joro said. They have been following us since we left Quicksilver. The ripples in the brass stretched the strangers queerly, making one man seem long and gaunt, the other immensely squat and broad. A most excellent brass, great lady, the merchant exclaimed. Bright as the sun, and for the mother of dragons only thirty others. The plateau was not worth more than three. Where are my guards? Danny declared. This man is trying to rub me. For Jorah, she lowered her voice and spoke in the common tongue. They may not mean me ill. Men have looked at women since time began. Perhaps it's no more than that. The brass seller ignored their whispers. 
Thirty, did I say thirty? Oh, such a fool I am. The price is twenty honours. All the brass in this booth is not worth twenty honours, Danny told him as she studied the reflections. The old man had the look of westerous about him, and the brown-skin one must weigh twenty stone. The usurper offered a lordship to the man who kills me, and these two are far from home. Or could they be creatures of the warlocks, meant to take me unawares? Ten, Khaleesi, because you're so lovely. Huh? Use it for a looking-glass. Only brass this fine could capture such beauty. It might serve to carry night soil. If you threw it away, I might pick it up, so long as I did not need to stoop. But pay for it? Danny shoved the platter back into his hands. Worms have crawled up your nose and eaten your wits. Eight honours, he cried. My wife will beat me and call me a fool, but I am a helpless child in your hands. Come, eight. <laughs> that is less than it is worth. What do I need with dull brass? When Zarozo and Daxus feeds me off plates of gold. As she turned to walk off, Danny let her glance sweep over the strangers. The brown man was near as wide as he looked in the platter, with a gleaming bald head and the smooth cheeks of a eunuch. A long, curving arrack was thrust through the sweat-stained yellow silk of his belly-band. Above the silk he was naked, but for an absurdly tiny iron-studded vest. Old scars crisscrossed his tree-trunk arms, huge chest and massive belly, pale against his nut-brown skin. The other man wore a traveller's cloak of undyed wool, the hood thrown back. Long white hair fell to his shoulders, and a silky white beard covered the lower half of his face. He leaned his weight on a hardwood staff as tall as he was. Only fools would stare so openly if they meant me harm. All the same, it might be prudent to head back toward Jogo and Ego. The old man does not wear a sword, she said to Jorah in the common tongue, as she drew him away. The brass merchant came hopping after them. Five honours for five, it is yours. It was meant for you. So Jorah said, A hardwood staff can crack a skull as well as any mace. Four, I know you want it. He danced in front of them, scampering backward as they thrust the platter at their faces. Do they follow? Lift that up a little higher, the knight told the merchant. Yes. The old man pretends to linger at a potter's stall, but the brown one has eyes only for you. Two honours! Two! Two! The merchant was panting heavily from the effort of running backward. Pay him before he kills himself, Danny told Sajora, wondering what she was going to do with a huge brass platter. She turned back as he reached for his coins, intending to put an end to this mummer's farce. The blood of the dragon would not be herded through a bazaar by an old man and a fat eunuch. A carthine stepped into her path. A mother of dragons for you. He knelt and thrust a jewel box into her face. Then he took it almost by reflex. The box was carved wood, his mother-of-pearl lid inlaid with jasper and chalcedony. You are too generous. She opened it. 
Within was a glittering green scarab carved from onyx and emerald. Beautiful, she thought. This will help pay our passage. As she reached inside the box, the man said, I'm so sorry, but she hardly heard. The scarab unfolded with a hiss. Danny caught a glimpse of a malign black face, almost human, and an arched tail dripping venom. And then the box flew from her hand in pieces, turning end over end. Sudden pain twisted her fingers. As she cried out and clutched her hand, the brass merchant let out a shriek. A woman screamed, and suddenly the Carthine were shouting and pushing each other aside. Sir Jorah slammed past her, and Danny stumbled to one knee. She heard the hiss again. The old man drove the butt of his staff into the ground. Ego came riding through an egg cellar stall and vaulted from his saddle. Jogo's whip cracked overhead. Sir Jorah slammed the eunuch over the head with a brass platter. Sailors and whores and merchants were fleeing or shouting, or both. Your Grace, a thousand pardons, the old man knelt. It's dead. Did I break your end? She closed her fingers, wincing. I don't think so. I had to knock it away. He started, but her blood riders were on him before he could finish. Ego kicked his staff away, and Jogo seized him around the shoulders, forced him to his knees, and pressed a dagger to his throat. Khaleesi, we saw him strike you. Would you see the color of his blood? Release him. Danny climbed to her feet. Look at the bottom of his staff. Blood of my blood. Sir Jorah had been shoved off his feet by the eunuch. She ran between them, as Arik and Longsword both came flashing from their sheaths. Put down your steel. Stop it. Your grace. Mormont lowered his sword only an inch. These men attacked you. They were defending me. Danny snapped her hand to shake the sting from her fingers. It was the other one, the Carthine. When she looked around, he was gone. He was a sorrowful man. There was a manticore in that jewel box he gave me. This man knocked it out of my hand. The brass merchant was still rolling on the ground. She went to him and helped him to his feet. Were you stung? No, good lady, he said, shaking. Or else I will be dead. But it touched me. When it fell from the box, it landed on my arm. He had soiled himself, she saw, and no wonder. She gave him a silver for his trouble and sent him on his way before she turned back to the old man with a white beard. Who is it? that I owe my life to? You owe me nothing, Your Grace. I am called Arst, and though Belwas named me Whitebeard on the voyage here. Though Jogo had released him, the old man remained on one knee. Ego picked up his staff, turned it over, cursed softly in Dothraki, scraped the remains of the manticore off on a stone, and handed it back. And who is Belwas? she asked. The huge brown eunuch swaggered forward, sheathing his arak. I am a Belawas. Strong Belawas they name me in the fighting pits of marine. Never did I lose. He slapped his belly, covered with scars. I let each man cut me once before I kill him. Count the cuts and you will know how many strong Belawas are slain. Danny had no need to count his scars. There were many. She could see at a glance. 
And why are you here, strong Belwas? From uh, Marine, I am uh, sold to Cahor, and then to Pentas, and the fat man with sweet stink in his hair. He it was who sent strong Belwas back across the sea, and old white beard to serve him. The fat man with sweet stink in his hair. Illyrio, she said. You were sent by Magister Illyrio. We were, your grace, old Whitebeard replied. The Magister begs your kind indulgence for sending us in his stead, but uh, he cannot sit a horse as he did in his youth, and sea travel upsets his digestion. Earlier had spoken in the Valerian of the Free Cities, but now he changed to the common tongue. I regret if we caused you alarm. If truth be told, we were not certain. We expected uh, someone more... Uh, more... Uh... Regal? Danny laughed. She had no dragon with her, and her raiment was hardly queenly. You speak the common tongue well, asked Han. Are you of Westeros? I am. I was born on the Dornish marches, your grace. As a boy... I squired for a knight of Lord Swan's household. He held a tall staff upright beside him, like a lance in need of a banner. Now I squire for Belwas. A bit old for such, aren't you? Sir Jorah had shouldered his way to her side, holding the brass platter awkwardly under his arm. Belwas's hard head had left it badly bent. Not too old to serve my liege, Lord Mormont. Oh, you know me as well. I saw you fight a time or two. At Lannisport, when you near unhorsed the Kingslayer, and on Pike, there as well. <laughs> you do not recall Lord Mormont? Sir Jorah frowned. Your face seems familiar, but there were hundreds at Lannisport and thousands on Pike, and I am no lord. Bear Island was taken from me. I am but a knight. A knight of my queen's guard, Danny took his arm, and my true friend and good counsellor. She studied Arston's face. He had a great dignity to him, a quiet strength she liked. Rise, Arston Whitebeard. Be welcome, strong Belwas. Sir Jorah, you know, Co-Ego and Co-Jogo are blood of my blood. They crossed the red waste with me and saw my dragons born. Horsa boys, Belwas grinned toothily. Belwas has killed many horsa boys in the fighting pitch. They jingle when they die. Ego's Eric leapt to his hand. Never have I killed a fat brown man. Belwas will be the first. Sheathe your steel, blood of my blood, said Danny. This man comes to serve me. Belwas, you will accord all respect to my people or you will leave my service sooner than you'd wish, and with more scars than when you came. The gap-toothed smile faded from the giant's broad brown face, replaced by a confused scowl. Men did not often threaten Belwas, it would seem, unless so girls a third his size. Danny gave him a smile to take a bit of the sting from the rebuke. Now tell me, what would Magister Illyrio have of me, that he would send you all the way from Pentos? He would have dragons, said Belwas gruffly, and the girl who makes them, he would have you. 
Beowulf has the truth of us, your grace, said Arstan. We were told to find you and bring you back to Pentos. The seven kingdoms have need of you. Robert the usurper is dead and the realm bleeds. When we set sail from Pentos, there were four kings in the land and no justice to be had. Joy bloomed in her heart, but Danny kept it from her face. I have three dragons, she said, and more than a hundred in my calisar, with all their goods and horses. It is a no matter, boom Belwas. We take all. The fat man hires three ships for his little silverhead queen. It is so, your grace, Aston Whitebeard said. The great cog... Sedulian is burst at the end of the quay, and the galleys, summer sun, and Jozo's prank are anchored beyond the breakwater. Three heads has the dragon, Danny thought, wondering. I shall tell my people to make ready to depart at once, but the ships that bring me home must bear different names. As you wish, said Arstan. What names would you prefer? Vagar, Daenerys told him, Maraxes, and Balerion. Paint the names on their hulls in golden letters three feet high, Arstan. I want every man who sees them to know the dragons are returned. Arya The heads had been dipped in tar to slow the rot. Every morning when Arya went to the well to draw fresh water for Roose Bolton's basin, she had to pass beneath them. They faced outward, so she never saw their faces. But she liked to pretend that one of them was Joffrey. She tried to picture how his pretty face would look dipped in tar. If I was a crow, I could fly down and peck off his stupid, fat, pouty lips. The heads never lacked for attendance. The carrion crows wheeled about the gatehouse in raucous unkindness and quarrelled upon the ramparts over each eye, screaming and cawing at each other and taking to the air whenever a sentry passed along the battlements. Sometimes the maester's ravens joined the feast as well, flapping down from the rookery on wide black wings. When the ravens came, the crows would scatter, only to return the moment the larger birds were gone. Do the ravens remember Maester Tothmuir? Arya wondered. Are they sad for him? When they quark at him, do they wonder why he doesn't answer? Perhaps the dead could speak to them in some secret tongue the living could not hear. Tothmuir had been sent to the axe for dispatching birds to Castle Rock and King's Landing, the night Harren Hal had fallen, Lucan the armourer for making weapons for the Lannisters, Goodwife Harra, for telling Lady Wentz's household to serve them, the steward for giving Lord Tywin the keys to the treasure vault. The cook was spared, some said because he made the weasel soup, but stocks were hammered together for pretty Pyre and the other women who'd shared their favours with Lannister soldiers. Stripped and shaved, they were left in the middle ward beside the bear pit, free for the use of any man who wanted them. Three fray men-at-arms were using them that morning as Arya went to the well. She tried not to look, but she could hear the men laughing. The pail was very heavy, once full, 
She was turning to bring it back to Kingspire when goodwife Amabel seized her arm. The water went slushing over the side onto Amabel's legs. You did it on purpose, the woman screeched. What do you want? Arya squirmed in her grasp. Amabel had been half-crazed since they'd cut Hara's head off. See there? Amabel pointed across the yard at Pyre. When this Northman falls, you'll be where she is. Let me go. She tried to wrench free, but Amabel only tightened her fingers. He will fall too. Heron Howe pulls them all down in the end. No Tywin's want now. He'll be marching back with all his powers, and then it will be his turn to punish the disloyal. And don't think he won't know what you did. The old woman laughed. I may have a turn at you myself. Horace had an old broom. <laughs> I'll save it for you. <laughs> the handle's cracked and splintery. Arya swung the bucket. The weight of the water made it turn in her hand, so she didn't smash Amabel's head in as she wanted. But the woman let go of her anyway when the water came out and drenched her. Don't ever touch me, Arya shouted, or I'll kill you. You get away. Supping, goodwife Amabel jabbed a thin finger at the flayed man on the front of Arya's tunic. You think you're safe with that little bloody man on your tit, but you're not. The Lannisters are coming. See what happens when they get here. Three quarters of the water had splashed out on the ground, so Arya had to return to the well. If I told Lord Bolton what she'd said, her head would be up next to Hara's before it got dark, she thought as she drew up the bucket again. She wouldn't, though. Once, when there had been only half as many heads, the gendry had caught Arya looking at them. "'Admiring your work?' he asked. He was angry because he'd liked Lucan, she knew. But it still wasn't fair. "'It's still Shanks Walton's work,' she said defensively. "'And the Mummers, and Lord Bolton.' "'And who gave us all them?' "'You, and your weasel soup?' Arya punched his arm. "'It was just hot broth. You hated Sir Amory, too.' "'I ate this lot worse.' Sir Amory was fighting for his lord, but the mummers are cell swords and turn cloaks. Half of them can't even speak the common tongue. Septonot likes little boys. Kyburn does black magic, and your friend Biter eats people. The worst thing was, she couldn't even say he was wrong. The brave companions did most of the foraging for Harrenhal, and Roose Bolton had given them the task of rooting out Lannisters. Vargo Hote had divided them into four bands to visit as many villages as possible. He led the largest group himself and gave the others to his most trusted captains. She had heard Rorg laughing over Lord Vargo's way of finding traitors. All he did was return to places he had visited before under Lord Tywin's banner and seize those who had helped him. Many had been bought with Lannister silver so the mummers often return with bags of coin as well as baskets of heads. A riddle, Shagwell would shout gleefully. If Lord Bolton's goat eats the men who fed Lord Lannister's goat, how many goats are there? One, Arya said when he asked her. No, there's a weasel, clever as a goat. <laughs> the fool tittered. 
Rorg and Biter were as bad as the others. Whenever Lord Bolton took a meal with the garrison, Arir would see them there among the rest. Biter gave off a stench like bad cheese, so the brave companions made him sit down near the foot of the table, where he could grunt and hiss to himself and tear his meat apart with fingers and teeth. He would sniff at Arya when she passed, but it was Rorg who scared her most. He sat up near faithful Erswick, but she could feel his eyes crawling over her as she went about her duties. Sometimes she wished she had gone off across the narrow sea with Jake and Hagar. She still had the stupid coin he'd given her, a piece of iron, no larger than a penny, and rusted along the rim. One side had writing on it, queer words she could not read. The other showed a man's head, but so worn that all his features had rubbed off. He said it was of great value, but that was probably a lie too, like his name and even his face. That made her so angry that she threw the coin away. But after an hour she got to feeling bad and went and found it again, even though it wasn't worth anything. She was thinking about the coin as she crossed the flowstone yard, struggling with the weight of the water in her pail. Nan? a voice called out. Put down that pail and come and help me. Elmar Frey was no older than she was, and short for his age besides. He had been rolling a barrel of sand across the uneven stone, and was red-faced from exertion. Arya went to help him. Together they pushed the barrel all the way to the wall and back again, then stood it upright. She could hear the sand shifting around inside as Elmar pried open the lid and pulled out a chain-mail hauberk. Do you think it's clean enough? As Roos Bolton's squire, it was his task to keep the mail shiny bright. You need to shake out the sand. There's still spots of rust, see? She pointed. You'd best do it again. You do it. Elmar could be friendly when he needed help, but afterward he would always remember that he was a squire and she was only a serving girl. He liked to boast how he was a son of the Lord of the Crossing, not a nephew or a bastard or a grandson, but a true-born son, and on account of that he was going to marry a princess. Arya didn't care about his precious princess and didn't like him giving her commands. I have to bring my lord water for his basin. He's in his bedchamber being leached. Not the regular black leeches, but the big pale ones. Elmer's eyes got as big as boiled eggs. Leeches terrified him, especially the big pale ones that looked like jelly until they filled up with blood. I forgot you're too skinny to push such a heavy barrel. I forgot you're stupid. Aria picked up the pail. Maybe you should get leeched too. There's leeches in the neck as big as pigs. She left him there with his barrel. The Lord's bedchamber was crowded when she entered. Kyburn was in attendance, and Dewar Walton, in his mail shirt and greaves, plus a dozen freys, all brothers, half-brothers and cousins. Roose Bolton lay abed, naked. Leeches clung to the inside of his arms and legs and dotted his pallid chest, long, translucent things that turned a glistening pink as they fed. Bolton paid them no more mind than he did Arya. We must not allow Lord Tywin to trap us here in Harrenhal, Sir Anus Frey was saying as Arya filled the washbasin. A grey-stooped giant of a man with watery red eyes and huge gnarled hands, Sir Anus had brought 
1,500 Frey's swords south to Harrenhal, yet it often seemed as if he were helpless to command even his own brothers. The castle is so large it requires an army to hold it, and once surrounded, we cannot feed an army, nor can we hope to lay in sufficient supplies. The country is ash, the villagers given over to wolves, the harvest burnt or stolen. Autumn is on us, yet there is no food in store and none being planted. We live on forage, and if the Lannisters deny that to us, we will be down to rats and shoe leather in a moon's turn. I do not mean to be besieged here. Bruce Bolton's voice was so soft that men had to strain to hear it, so his chambers were always strangely hushed. What then? demanded Sir Jared Frey, who was lean, balding, and pockmarked. Is Edmure Tully so drunk on his victory that he thinks to give Lord Tywin battle in the open field? If he does, he'll beat them, Arya thought. He'll beat them, as he did on the Red Fork, you'll see. Unnoticed, she went to stand by Kyburn. Lord Tywin is many leagues from here, Bolton said calmly. He has many matters yet to settle at King's Landing. He will not march on Harrenhal for some time. Sir Aenys shook his head stubbornly. You do not know the Lannisters as we do, my lord. King Stannis thought that Lord Tywin was a thousand leagues away as well, and it undid him. The pale man in the bed smiled faintly as the leeches nursed of his blood. I am not a man to be undone, sir. Even if River Run marshals all its strength, and the young wolf wins back from the west, how can we hope to match the numbers Lord Tywin can send against us? When he comes, he will come with far more power than he commanded on the Green Fork. High Garden has joined itself to Joffrey's cause, I remind you. I had not forgotten. I have been Lord Tywin's captive once, said Sir Hustine, a husky man with a square face, who was said to be the strongest of the phrase. I have no wish to enjoy Lannister hospitality again. Sir Harris Haig, who was a fray on his mother's side, nodded vigorously. If Lord Tywin could defeat a seasoned man like Stannis Baratheon, what chance will our boy king have against him? He looked round to his brothers and cousins for support, and several of them muttered agreement. Someone must have the courage to say it, Sir Hostine said. The war is lost. King Rob must be made to see that. Roose Bolton studied him with pale eyes. His grace has defeated the Lannisters every time he has faced them in battle. He has lost the North, insisted Hustine Frey. He has lost Winterfell. His brothers are dead. For a moment Arya forgot to breathe. Ted? Bran? Henrikan? Ted? What does he mean? What does he mean about Winterfell? Joffrey could never take Winterfell, never. Rob would never let him. Then she remembered that Rob was not at Winterfell. He was away in the west, and Bran was crippled, and Rickon only four. It took all her strength to remain still 
and silent, the way Sirio Farrell had taught her, to stand there like a stick of furniture. She felt tears gathering in her eyes and willed them away. It's not true. It can't be true. It's just some Lannister lie. Had Stannish won, all might have been different, Ronald Rivers said wistfully. He was one of Lord Walder's bastards. Stannis lost, Sir Huston said bluntly. Wishing it were otherwise will not make it so. King Rob must make his peace with the Lannisters. He must put off his crown and bend the knee, little as he may like it. And who will tell him so? Bruce Bolton smiled. It is a fine thing to have so many valiant brothers in such troubled times. I shall think on all you've said. His smile was dismissal. The Freys made their courtesies and shuffled out, leaving only Kyburn, Steelshanks Walton, and Arya. Lord Bolton beckoned her closer. I am bled sufficiently, then. You may remove the leeches. At once, my lord. It was best never to make Roose Bolton ask twice. Arya wanted to ask him what Sir Hustine had meant about Winterfell, but she dared not. I'll ask Elmer, she thought. Elmer will tell me. The leeches wriggled slowly between her fingers as she plucked them carefully from the Lord's body, their pale bodies moist to the touch and distended with blood. They're only leeches, she reminded herself. If I close my hand, they'd squish between my fingers. There is a letter from your lady wife. Kyburn pulled a roll of parchment from his sleeve. Though he wore Maester's robes, there was no chain about his neck. It was whispered that he had lost it for dabbling in necromancy. You may read it, Belton said. The Lady Walder wrote from the twins almost every day, but all the letters were the same. I pray for you morning, noon, and night, my sweet lord, she wrote, and count the days until you share my bed again. Return to me soon, and I will give you many true-born sons to take the place of your dear Dummerick and rule the dread fort after you. Arya pictured a plump pink baby in a cradle, covered with plump pink leeches. She brought Lord Bolton a damp washcloth to wipe down his soft, hairless body. I will send a letter of my own, he told the one-time maester. To the Lady Walder. To Sir Helman Tallheart. A rider from Sir Helman had come two days past. Tallheart men had taken the castle of the dairies, accepting the surrender of its Lannister garrison after a brief siege. Tell him to put the captives to the sword and the castle to the torch by command of the king. Then he is to join forces with Robert Glover and strike east towards Duskendale. Those are rich lands and hardly touched by the fighting. It is time they had a taste. Glover has lost a castle and Tallheart a son. Let them take their vengeance on Duskendale. I shall prepare the message for your seal, my lord. Ari was glad to hear that the castle of the Dares would be burnt. That was where they'd brought her when she'd been caught after a fight with Joffrey, and where the queen had made her father kill Sansa's wolf. It deserves to burn. She wished that Robert Glover 
and Sir Helman Tallhart would come back to Harrenhal, though. They had marched too quickly, before she'd been able to decide whether to trust them with her secret. I will hunt today, Bruce Bolton announced, as Kyburn helped him into a quilted jerkin. Is it safe, my lord? Kyburn asked. Only three days past, Septon Utt's men were attacked by wolves. They came right into his camp not five yards from the fire and killed two horses. It is wolves I mean to hunt. I can scarcely sleep at night for their howling. Bolton buckled on his belt, adjusting the hang of sword and dagger. It said that dire wolves once roamed the north in great packs of a hundred or more, and feared neither man nor mammoth. But that was long ago, and in another land. It is queer to see the common wolves of the south so bold. Terrible times breed terrible things, my lord. Bolton showed his teeth in something that might have been a smile. Are these times so terrible, maester? The summer is gone, and there are four kings in the realm. One king may be terrible, but four, he shrugged. Nan, my fur cloak. She brought it to him. My chambers will be clean and orderly upon my return, he told her as she fastened it, and tend to Lady Walner's letter. As you say, my lord. The lord and maester swept from the room, giving her not so much as a backward glance. When they were gone, Arya took the letter and carried it to the hearth, stirring the logs with a poker to wake the flames anew. She watched the parchment twist, blacken, and flare up. If the Lannisters hurt Bran and Rickon, Rob will kill them every one. He'll never bend the knee. Never, never, never. He's not afraid of any of them. Curls of ash floated up the chimney. Arya squatted beside the fire, watching them rise through a veil of hot tears. If Winterfell is truly gone, is this my home now? Am I still Arya? or only Nan, the serving girl, forever and forever and forever. She spent the next few hours tending to the Lord's chambers. She swept out the old rushes and scattered fresh, sweet-smelling ones, laid a fresh fire in the hearth, changed the linens, and fluffed the feather bed, emptied the chamber pots down the privy shaft and scrubbed them out, carried an armload of soiled clothing to the washerwomen, and brought up a bowl of crisp autumn pears from the kitchen. When she was done with the bedchamber, she went down half a flight of stairs to do the same in the great solar, a spare draughty room as large as the halls of many a smaller castle. The candles were down to stubs, so Arya changed them out. Under the windows was a huge oaken table where the Lord wrote his letters. She stacked the books, changed the candles, put the quills and inks and sealing wax in order. A large ragged sheepskin was tossed across the papers. Arya had started to roll it up when the colours caught her eye. The blue of lakes and rivers, the red dots where castles and cities could be found, the green of woods. She spread it out instead. The lands of the trident, said the ornate script beneath the map. The drawing showed everything, from the neck to the Blackwater Rush. There's Harren Hall, at the top of the big lake, she realized. But where's Riveron? Then she saw. It's not so far.
The afternoon was still young by the time she was done, so Arya took herself off to the godswood. Her duties were lighter as Lord Bolton's cup-bearer than they had been under Weiss or even Pink-Eye, though they required dressing like a page and washing more than she liked. The hunt would not return for hours, so she had a little time for her needlework. She slashed at birch leaves till the splintery point of the broken broomstick was green and sticky. Sir Gregor, she breathed, Dunson, Poliver, Raff the sweetling. She spun and leapt and balanced on the balls of her feet, darting this way and that, knocking pine cones flying. The tickler, she called out one time, the hound the next, Sir Ilian, Sir Merrin, Queen Cersei. The bowl of an oak loomed before her, and she lunged to drive her point through it, grunting, Joffrey, Joffrey, Joffrey. Her arms and legs were dappled by sunlight and the shadows of leaves. A sheen of sweat covered her skin by the time she paused. The heel of her right foot was bloody where she'd skinned it, so she stood one-legged before the heart tree and raised her sword in salute. Vela Morgolus, she told the old gods of the north. She liked how the words sounded when she said them. As Arya crossed the yard to the bathhouse, she spied a raven circling down toward the rookery, and wondered where it had come from and what message it carried. Might be it's from Rob. Come to say it wasn't true about Bran and Rickon. She chewed on her lip, hoping. If I had wings, I could fly back to Winterfell and see for myself. And if it was true, I'd just fly away, fly up past the moon and the shining stars and see all the things in old Nan's stories, dragons and sea monsters and the titan of Bravos, and maybe I wouldn't ever fly back, unless I wanted to. The hunting party returned near Evenfall with nine dead wolves. Seven were adults, big grey-brown beasts, savage and powerful, their mouths drawn back over long yellow teeth by their dying snarls. But the other two had only been pups. Lord Bolton gave orders for the skins to be sewn into a blanket for his bed. Cubs still have that soft fur, my lord, one of his men pointed out. Make you a nice warm pair of gloves. Bolton glanced up at the banners, waving above the gatehouse towers. As the stocks, I won't remind us. Winter is coming. Have it done. When he saw Arya looking on, he said, Nan, I want a flagon of hot spice wine. I took a chill in the woods. See that it doesn't get cold. I'm of a mind to sup alone. Barley bread, butter and ball. At once, my lord. That was always the best thing to say. Hot Pie was making oat cakes when she entered the kitchen. Three other cooks were boning fish, while a spit boy turned a boar over the flames. My lord wants his supper and hot spice wine to wash it down, Arya announced. And he doesn't want it cold. One of the cooks washed his hands, took out a kettle, and filled it with a heavy, sweet red. Hot pie was told to crumble in the spices as the wine heated. Arya went to help. I can do it, he said sullenly. I don't need you to show me how to spice wine. He hates me too, or else he's scared of me. She backed away, more sad than angry. 
When the food was ready, the cooks covered it with a silver cover and wrapped the flagon in a thick towel to keep it warm. Dusk was settling outside. On the walls, the crows muttered round the heads, like courtiers round the king. One of the guards held the door to King's pyre. Hope that's not weasel soup, he jested. Bruce Bolton was seated by the hearth, reading from a thick leather-bound book when she entered. Light some candles, he commanded her as he turned a page. It grows gloomy in here. She placed the food at his elbow and did as he bid, filling the room with flickering light and the scent of cloves. Bolton turned a few more pages with his finger, then closed the book and placed it carefully in the fire. He watched the flames consume it, pale eyes shining with reflected light. The old dry leather went up with a whoosh, and the yellow pages stirred as they burned, as if some ghost were reading them. I will have no further need you tonight, he said, never looking at her. She should have gone, silent as a mouse, but something had hold of her. My lord, she asked, will you take me with you when you leave Harrenhal? He turned to stare at her, and from the look in his eyes, it was as if his supper had just spoken to him. Did I give you leave to question me, then? No, my lord, she lowered her eyes. You should not have spoken then, should you? No, my lord. For a moment he looked amused. I will answer you, just this once. I mean to give Harren hell to Lord Vargo when I return to the north. You will remain here with him. But I don't, she started. He cut her off. I am not in the habit of being questioned by servants, Ned. Must I have your tongue out? He would do it as easily as another man might cuff a dog, she knew. No, my lord. Then I'll hear no more from you. No, my lord. Go then. I shall forget this insolence. Arya went, but not to her bed. When she stepped out into the darkness of the yard, the guard on the door nodded at her and said, Storm's coming. Smell the air? The wind was gusting. Flames swirling off the torches mounted atop the walls beside the rows of heads. On her way to the godswood, she passed a wailing tower, where once she had lived in fear of Wees. The Freys had taken it for their own since Harrenhal's fall. She could hear angry voices coming from a window, many men talking and arguing all at once. Elmar was sitting on the steps outside alone. What's wrong? Arya asked him, when she saw the tears shining on his cheeks. My princess, he sobbed, we've been dishonored. Aenys says there was a bird from the twins. My lord father says I'll need to marry someone else or be a septon. A stupid princess, she thought. That's nothing to cry over. My brothers might be dead, she confided. Elmer gave her a scornful look. No one cares about a serving girl's brothers. It was hard not to hit him when he said that. I hope your princess dies, she said, and ran off before he could grab her. In the guard's wood, she found her broomstick sword where she had left it, 
and carried it to the heart tree. There she knelt. Red leaves rustled. Red eyes peered inside her. The eyes of the gods. Tell me what to do, you gods, she prayed. For a long moment there was no sound but the wind and the water and the creak of leaf and limb. And then, far, far off, beyond the godswood and the haunted towers and the immense stone walls of Harrenhal, from somewhere out in the world came the long, lonely howl of a wolf. Goose prickles rose on Arya's skin, and for an instant she felt dizzy. Then, so faintly, it seemed as if she heard her father's voice. When the snows fall, and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives, he said. But there is no pack, she whispered to the weirwood. Bran and Rickon were dead. The Lannisters had Sansa. John had gone to the wall. I'm not even me now. I'm Nan. You are Arya of Winterfell, daughter of the North. You told me you could be strong. You have the wolf blood in you. The wolf blood? Arya remembered now. I'll be as strong as Rob. I said I would. She took a deep breath then lifted the broomstick in both hands and brought it down across her knee. It broke with a loud crack, and she threw the pieces aside. I am a direwolf, and done with wooden teeth. That night she lay on her narrow bed upon the scratchy straw, listening to the voices of the living and the dead whisper and argue as she waited for the moon to rise. They were the only voices she trusted any more. She could hear the sound of her own breath, and the wolves as well, a great pack of them now. They are closer than the one I heard in the godswood, she thought. They are calling to me. Finally, she slipped from under the blanket, wriggled into a tunic, and padded barefoot down the stairs. Bruce Bolton was a cautious man, and the entrance to King's Pyre was guarded day and night, so she had to slip out of a narrow cellar window. The yard was still, the great castle lost in haunted dreams, above the wind keen through the wailing tower. At the forge she found the fires extinguished and the doors closed and barred. She crept in a window, as she had once before. Gendry shared a mattress with two other apprentice smiths. She crouched in the loft for a long time before her eyes adjusted enough for her to be sure that he was the one on the end. Then she put a hand over his mouth and pinched him. His eyes opened. He could not have been very deeply asleep. Please, she whispered. She took a hand off his mouth and pointed. For a moment she did not think he understood, but then he slid out from under the blankets. Naked, he padded across the room, shrugged into a loose, rough-spun tunic, and climbed down from the loft after her. The other sleepers did not stir. "'What do you want now?' Gendry said in a low, angry voice. "'A sword.' "'Black Thumb keeps all the blades locked up. I told you that a hundred times. Is this for Lord Leech?' "'For me.' 
Break the lock with your hammer. They'll break my hand, he grumbled, or worse. Not if you run off with me. Run, and they'll catch you and kill you. They'll do you worse. Lord Bolton is giving Harren Howe to the bloody mummers. He told me so. Gendry pushed black hair out of his eyes. So? She looked right at him, fearless. So when Varga hoats the Lord, he's going to cut off the feet of all the servants to keep them from running away. The smiths, too. That's only a story, he said scornfully. No, it's true. I heard Lord Vargo say so, she lied. He's going to cut one foot off everyone, the left one. Go to the kitchens and wake Hot Pie, and he'll do what you say. We'll need bread or oatcakes or something. You get the swords, and I'll do the horses. We'll meet near the postern in the east wall, behind the Tower of Ghosts. No one ever comes there. I know that gate. It's guarded, same as the rest. So? You won't forget the swords? I never said I'd come. No, but if you do, you won't forget the swords. He frowned. No, he said at last. I guess I won't. Arya re-entered King's Pyre the same way she had left it, and stole up the winding steps, listening for footfalls. In her cell, she stripped to the skin, and dressed herself carefully, in two layers of small clothes, warm stockings, and her cleanest tunic. It was Lord Bolton's livery. On the breast was sewn his sigil, the flayed man of the dreadfort. She tied her shoes, threw a wool cloak over her skinny shoulders, and knotted it under her throat. Quiet as a shadow, she moved back down the stairs. Outside the Lord Solar, she paused to listen at the door, easing it open slowly when she heard only silence. The sheepskin map was on the table, beside the remains of Lord Bolton's supper. She rolled it up tight and thrust it through her belt. He'd left his dagger on the table as well, so she took that too, just in case Gendry lost his courage. A horse neighed softly as she slipped into the darkened stables. The grooms were all asleep. She prodded one with a toe until he sat up gruggily and said, Eh? Was... Lord Bolton requires three horses saddled and bridled. The boy got to his feet, pushing straw from his hair. What? At this hour? Horses, you say? He blinked at the sigil and her tunic. What's he want horses for, in the dark? Lord Bolton is not in the habit of being questioned by servants. She crossed her arms. The stable boy was still looking at the flayed man. He knew what it meant. Three, you say? One, two, three. Hunting horses, fast and sure-foot. Arya helped him with the bridles and saddles, so he would not need to wake any of the others. She hoped they would not hurt him afterwards, but she knew they probably would. Leading the horses across the castle was the worst part. She stayed in the shadow of the curtain wall whenever she could, so the sentries walking their rounds on the ramparts above would have needed to look almost straight down to see her. And if they do, what of it? I'm my lord's own cup-bearer. It was a chill, dank autumn night. Clouds were blowing in from the west, hiding the stars, and the wailing tower screamed mournfully at every gust of wind.
It smells like rain. Arya did not know whether that would be good or bad for their escape. No one saw her, and she saw no one. Only a grey and white cat creeping along atop the guard's wood wall. It stopped and spit at her, waking memories of the Red Keep and her father and Sirio Farrell. I could catch you if I wanted, she called to it softly. But I have to go, cat. The cat hissed and ran off. The Tower of Ghosts was the most ruinous of Harrenhal's five immense towers. It stood dark and desolate behind the remains of a collapsed sept, where only rats had come to pray for near three hundred years. It was there she waited to see if Gendry and Hot Pie would come. It seemed as though she waited a long time. The horses nibbled at the weeds that grew up between the broken stones, while the clouds swallowed the last of the stars. Arya took out the dagger and sharpened it to keep her hands busy. Long, smooth strokes, the way Sirio had taught her. The sound calmed her. She heard them coming long before she saw them. Hot Pie was breathing heavily, and once he stumbled in the dark, barked his shin, and cursed loud enough to wake half of Harrenhal. Gendry was quieter, but the sword he was carrying rang together as he moved. Here I am, she stood. Be quiet, or they'll hear you. The boys picked their way toward her over tumbled stones. Gendry was wearing oil chainmail under his cloak, she saw, and he had his blacksmith's hammer slung across his back. Hot Pie's red round face peered out from under a hood. He had a sack of bread dangling from his right hand and a big wheel of cheese under his left arm. There's a guard on that postern, said Gendry quietly. I told you there would be. You stay here with the horses, said Arya. I'll get rid of him. Come quick when I call. Gendry nodded. Hot Pie said, Hoot like an owl when you want us to come. I'm not an owl, said Arya. I'm a wolf. I'll howl. Alone, she slid through the shadow of the Tower of Ghosts. She walked fast to keep ahead of her fear. And it felt as though Syria Farrell walked beside her, and Yorin, and Jake and Hagar, and Jon Snow. She had not taken the sword Gendry had brought her, not yet. For this, the dagger would be better. It was good and sharp. This postern was the least of Harrenhal's gates, a narrow door of stout oak, studded with iron nails, set in an angle of the wall beneath a defensive tower. Only one man was set to guard it, but she knew there would be sentries up in that tower as well, and others nearby walking the walls. Whatever happened, she must be quiet as a shadow. He must not call out. A few scattered raindrops had begun to fall. She felt one land on her brow and run slowly down her nose. She made no effort to hide, but approached the guard openly, as if Lord Bolton himself had sent her. He watched her come, curious as to what might bring a page here at this black hour. When she got closer, she saw that he was a Northman, very tall and thin, huddled in a ragged fur cloak. That was bad. She might have been able to trick a fray or one of the brave companions, 
but the Dreadfort men had served Bruce Bolton their whole life, and they knew him better than she did. If I tell him I am Arya Stark, and command him to stand aside. No, she dare not. He was a Northman, but not a Winterfell man. He belonged to Roose Bolton. When she reached him, she pushed back her cloak so he would see the flayed man on her breast. Lord Bolton sent me. At this hour? Why for? She could see the gleam of steel under the fur, and she did not know if she was strong enough to drive the point of the dagger through the chainmail. His throat. It must be his throat. But he's too tall. I'll never reach it. For a moment, she did not know what to say. For a moment, she was a little girl again and scared, and the rain on her face felt like tears. He told me to give all his guards a silver piece for their good service. The words seemed to come out of nowhere. Silver, you say? He did not believe her, but he wanted to. Silver was silver, after all. Give it over, then. Her fingers dug down beneath her tunic and came out clutching the coin Jacob had given her. In the dark, the iron could pass for tarnished silver. She held it out and let it slip through her fingers. Cursing her softly, the man went to a knee to grope for the coin in the dirt, and there was his neck right in front of her. Arya slid the dagger out and drew it across his throat, as smooth as summer silk. His blood covered her hands in a hot gush, and he tried to shout, but there was blood in his mouth as well. Valar Magullus, she whispered as he died. When he stopped moving, she picked up the coin. Outside the walls of Harrenhal, a wolf howled long and loud. She lifted the bar, set it aside, and pulled open the heavy oak door. By the time Hot Pie and Gendry came up with the horses, the rain was falling hard. You killed him! Hot Pie gasped. What did you think I would do? Her fingers were sticky with blood, and the smell was making her mare skittish. It's no matter, she thought, swinging up into the saddle. The rain will wash them clean again. Sansa The throne room was a sea of jewels, furs, and bright fabrics. Lords and ladies filled the back of the hall and stood beneath the high windows, jostling like fishwives on a dock. The denizens of Joffrey's court had striven to outdo each other today. Jalabazo was all in feathers, a plumage so fantastic and extravagant that he seemed like to take flight. The High Septon's crystal crown fired rainbows through the air every time he moved his head. At the council table, Queen Cersei shimmered in a cloth of gold gown slashed in burgundy velvet, while beside her Varys fussed and simpered in a lilac brocade. Moonboy and Sedantus wore new suits of motley, clean as a spring morning. Even Lady Tanda and her daughters looked pretty in matching gowns of turquoise silk and vair, and Lord Giles was coughing into a square of scarlet silk trimmed with golden lace. King Joffrey sat above them all, amidst the blades and barbs of the Iron Throne. He was in crimson samite, 
his black mantle studded with rubies, on his head his heavy golden crown. Squirming through a press of knights, squires, and rich townfolk, Sansa reached the front of the gallery just as a blast of trumpets announced the entry of Lord Tywin Lannister. He rode his warhorse down the length of the hall and dismounted before the Iron Throne. Sansa had never seen such armor, all burnished red steel, inlaid with golden scrollwork and ornamentation. His rondels were sunbursts. The roaring lion that crowned his helm had ruby eyes, and a lioness on each shoulder fastened a cloth of gold cloak so long and heavy that it draped the hindquarters of his charger. Even the horse's armor was gilded, and his bardings were shimmering crimson silk emblazoned with the lion of Lannister. The lord of Castle Rock made such an impressive figure that it was a shock when his destrier dropped a load of dung right at the base of the throne. Joffrey had to step gingerly around it as he descended to embrace his grandfather and proclaim him saviour of the city. Sansa covered her mouth to hide a nervous smile. Joff made a show of asking his grandfather to assume governance of the realm, and Lord Tywin solemnly accepted the responsibility, until your grace does come of age. Then squires removed his armour, and Joff fastened the hand's chain of office around his neck. Lord Tywin took a seat at the council table beside the queen. After the destrier was led off and his homage removed, Cersei nodded for the ceremonies to continue. A fanfare of brazen trumpets greeted each of the heroes as he stepped between the great oak doors. Heralds cried his name and deeds for all to hear, and the noble knights and highborn ladies cheered as lustily as cutthroats at a cockfight. Pride of place was given to Mace Tyrell, the lord of High Garden, a once powerful man gone to fat, yet still handsome. His sons followed him in, Sir Loras and his older brother, Sir Garland the Gallant. The three dressed alike in green velvet trimmed with sable. The king descended the throne once more to greet them a great honour. He fastened about the throat of each a chain of roses wrought in soft yellow gold, from which hung a golden disc with the Lion of Lannister picked out in rubies. The roses support the lion, as the might of High Garden supports the realm, proclaimed Joffrey. If there is any boon you would ask of me, ask, and it shall be yours. And now it comes, thought Sansa. Your Grace, said Sir Loras. I beg the honour of serving in your king's guard to defend you against your enemies. Joffrey drew the knight of flowers to his feet and kissed him on his cheek. Done, brother. Lord Tyrell bowed his head. There is no greater pleasure than to serve the king's grace. If I were deemed worthy to join your royal council, you will find none more loyal or true. Joff put a hand on Lord Tyrell's shoulder and kissed him when he stood. Your wish is granted. Sir Garland Tyrell, five years senior to Sir Loras, was a taller, bearded version of his more famous younger brother. He was thicker about the chest and broader at the shoulders, and though his face was comely enough, he lacked Sir Loras's startling beauty. Your Grace, Garland said when the king approached him. I have a maiden sister, Marjorie, the delight of our house. She was to wed Renly Baratheon, as you know, 
but uh, Lord Wendy went to war before the marriage could be consummated, so she remains innocent. Marjorie has heard tales of your wisdom, courage, and chivalry, and has come to love you from afar. I beseech you to send for her, to take a hand in marriage, and to wed your house to mine for all time. King Joffrey made a show of looking surprised. Sir Garland, your sister's beauty is famed throughout the Seven Kingdoms, but I am promised to another. A king must keep his word. Queen Cersei got to her feet in a rustle of skirts. Your Grace, in the judgment of your small council, it would be neither proper nor wise for you to wed the daughter of a man beheaded for treason, a girl whose brother is in open rebellion against the throne even now. Sir, your counsellors beg you, for the good of your realm, set Sansa Stark aside. The Lady Marjorie will make you a far more suitable queen. Like a pack of trained dogs, the lords and ladies in the hall began to shout their pleasure. Marjorie, they called. Give us Marjorie! And no traitor queens! Tyrell! Tyrell! Joffrey raised a hand. I would like to heed the wishes of my people, mother, but I took a holy vow. The high septon stepped forward. Your grace, the gods hold betrothal of solemn, but your father, King Robert of blessed memory, made this pact before the Starks of Winterfell had revealed their falseness. Their crimes against the realm have freed you from any promise you might have made. So far as the faith is concerned, there is no valid marriage contract betwixt you and Sansa Stark. A tumult of cheering filled the throne room, and cries of, Marjorie! Marjorie! erupted all around her. Sansa leaned forward, her hands tight around the gallery's wooden rail. She knew what came next, but she was still frightened of what Joffrey might say, afraid that he would refuse to release her even now, when his whole kingdom depended upon it. She felt as if she were back again, on the marble steps outside the great sept of Baelor, waiting for her prince to grant her father mercy, and instead hearing him command Ilian Payne to strike off his head. Please, she prayed fervently, make him say it, make him say it. Lord Tywin was looking at his grandson. Joffrey gave him a sullen glance, shifted his feet, and helped Sir Garland Tyrell to rise. The gods are good. I am free to heed my heart. I will wed your sweet sister, and gladly, sir. He kissed the garland on a bearded cheek as the cheers rose all around them. Sansa felt curiously light-headed. I am free. She could feel eyes upon her. I must not smile, she reminded herself. The queen had warned her, no matter what she felt inside, the face she showed the world must look distraught. I will not have my son humiliated, Cersei said. Do you hear me? Yes, but... But if I am not to be queen, what will become of me? That will need to be determined. For the moment you shall remain here at court as our ward. I want to go home. The queen was irritated by that. You should have learned by now none of us get the things we want. I have, though, Sansa thought. I am free of Joffrey. I will not have to kiss him, 
nor give him my maidenhood, nor bear him children. Let Marjorie Tyrell have all that, poor girl. By the time the outburst died down, the Lord of Highgarden had been seated at the council table, and his sons had joined the other knights and lordlings beneath the windows. Sansa tried to look forlorn and abandoned, as other heroes of the Battle of the Blackwater were summoned forth to receive their rewards. Paxter Redwine, Lord of the Arbor, marched down the length of the hall flanked by his twin sons, Horror and Slubber, the former limping from a wound taken in the battle. After them followed Lord Mathis Rowan, in a snowy doublet with a great tree worked upon the breast in gold thread. Lord Randall Tarley, lean and balding, a great sword across his back in a jewel scabbard. Sir Kevin Lannister, a thick-set balding man with a close-trimmed beard. Sir Adam Marbrand, coppery hair streaming to his shoulders. The great western lords, Lydon, Craighall, and Brax. Next came four of lesser birth who had distinguished themselves in the fighting. The one-eyed knight, Sir Philip Foote, who had slain Lord Bryce Caron in single combat, the free-rider, Lothar Brune, who cut his way through half a hundred fuss-away men-at-arms to capture Sir John of the Green Apple and kill Sir Brian and Sir Edward of the Red, thereby winning himself the name Lothar Apple-Eater. Willet, a grizzled man-at-arms in the service of Sir Harry Swift, who pulled his master from beneath his dying horse and defended him against a dozen attackers and a downy-cheeked squire named Josman Peckledon, who had killed two knights, wounded a third, and captured two more, though he could not have been more than fourteen. Willet was borne in on a litter, so grievous were his wounds. Sir Kevin had taken a seat beside his brother, Lord Tywin. When the heralds had finished telling of each hero's deeds, he rose. "'It is his grace's wish that these good men be rewarded for their valour. By his decree, Sir Philip shall henceforth be Lord Philip of House Foot, and to him shall go all the lands, rights, and incomes of House Carrot, Lothar Brune to be raised to the estate of knighthood, and granted lands and keep in the riverlands at war's end. To Jasmine Peckledon, a sword and suit of plate, his choice of any war horse in the royal stables, and knighthood as soon as he shall come of age. And lastly, for Goodman Willet, a spear with a silver banded haft, a hauberk of new forged ring mail, and a full helm with visor. Further, the good man's sons shall be taken into the service of House Lannister at Casterly Rock, the elder as a squire, and the younger as a page, with a chance to advance to knighthood if they serve loyally and well. To all this, the king's hand and the small council consent. The captains of the king's warships, Wild Wind, Prince Eamon, and River Arrow, were honoured next, along with some under-officers from God's Grace, Lance, Lady of Silk, and Ram's Head. As near as Sansa could tell, their chief accomplishment had been surviving the battle on the river, a feat that few enough could boast. Hailing the pyromancer, and the masters of the Alchemist Guild received the king's thanks as well, and Halen was raised to the style of lord, though Sansa noted that neither lands nor castle accompanied the title, 
which made the alchemist no more a true lord than Varys was. A more significant lordship by far was granted to Sir Lancel Lannister. Joffrey awarded him the lands, castle, and rights of House Derry, whose last child lord had perished during the fighting in the Riverlands, leaving no true-born heirs of lawful Derry blood, but only a bastard cousin. Sir Lancel did not appear to accept the title. The talk was his wound might cost him his arm or even his life. The imp was said to be dying as well, from a terrible cut to the head. When the herald called, Lord Petar Baelish, he came forth, dressed all in shades of rose and plum, his cloak patterned with mockingbirds. She could see him smiling as he knelt before the iron throne. He looked so pleased. Sansa had not heard of Littlefinger doing anything especially heroic during the battle, but it seemed he was to be rewarded all the same. Sir Kevin got back to his feet. It is the wish of the King's Grace that his loyal counsellor, Pattaya Baelish, be rewarded for faithful service to crown and realm. Be it known that Lord Baelish is granted the castle of Harrenhal, with all its attendant lands and incomes, there to make his seat and rule henceforth, as Lord Paramount of the Trident. Pattaya Baelish and his sons and grandsons shall hold and enjoy these honours until the end of time, and all the lords of the Trident shall do him homage as their rightful liege. The king's hand and the small council consent. On his knees, Littlefinger raised his eyes to King Joffrey. I thank you humbly, Your Grace. I suppose this means I'll need to see about getting some sons and grandsons. Joffrey laughed, and the court with him. Lord Paramount of the Trident, Sansa thought, and Lord of Harrenhal as well. She did not understand why that should make him so happy. The honours were as empty as the title granted to Halin the Pyromancer. Harrenhal was cursed. Everyone knew that and the Lannisters did not even hold it at present. Besides, the lords of the Trident were sworn to Riveron and House Tully, and to the king in the north. They would never accept Littlefinger as their liege. Unless they are made to. Unless my brother and my uncle and my grandfather are all cast down and killed. The thought made Sansa anxious, but she told herself she was being silly. Rob has beaten them every time. He'll beat Lord Baelish, too, if he must. More than six hundred new knights were made that day. They had held their vigil in the great sept of Baelor all through the night, and crossed the city barefoot that morning to prove their humble hearts. Now they came forward, dressed in shifts of undyed wool, to receive their knighthoods from the king's guard. It took a long time, since only three of the brothers of the white sword were on hand to dub them. Mandon Moore had perished in the battle. The hound had vanished. Ares Oakheart was in dawn with Princess Marcella, and Jamie Lannister was Rob's captive. So the King's Guard had been reduced to Balon Swan, Merrin Trant, and Osmond Kettleblack. Once knighted, each man rose, buckled on his sword belt, and stood beneath the windows. Some had bloody feet from their walk through the city but they stood tall and proud all the same, it seemed to Sansa. By the time all the new knights had been given their sirs, the hall was growing restive. 
and none more so than Joffrey. Some of those in the gallery had begun to slip quietly away, but the notables on the floor were trapped, unable to depart without the king's leave. Judging by the way he was fidgeting atop the Iron Throne, Joff would willingly have granted it, but the day's work was far from done. For now the coin was turned over, and the captives were ushered in. There were great lords and noble knights in that company, too. Sar old Lord Celtigar, the Red Crab, Sir Bonifer the Good, Lord Estamont, more ancient even than Celtigar, Lord Varna, who hobbled the length of the hall on a shattered knee but would accept no help, Sir Mark Mullendore, grey-faced, his left arm gone to the elbow, fierce red runnet of Griffin Roost, Sir Dermot of the Rainwood, Lord Willem and his sons, Joshua and Elias, Sir John Fussaway, Sir Timon the Scrapesword, Orain the Bastard of Driftmark, Lord Stademan, called Pennylover, hundreds of others. Those who had changed their allegiance during the battle needed only to swear fealty to Joffrey, but the ones who had fought for Stannis until the bitter end were compelled to speak. Their words decided their fate. If they begged forgiveness for their treasons, and promised to serve loyally henceforth, Joffrey welcomed them back into the king's peace, and restored them to all their lands and rights. A handful remained defiant, however. "'Do not imagine this is done, boy,' warned one, the bastard son of some florent or other. "'The Lord of Light protects King Stannis, now and always. All your swords and all your scheming shall not save you when his hour comes.' "'Your hour is come right now,' Joffrey beckoned to Sir Ilian Payne to take the man out and strike his head off. But no sooner had that one been dragged away than a knight of solemn mien with a fiery heart on his surcoat shouted out, "'Stannis is the true king! A monster sits the Iron Throne, an abomination born of incest!' "'Be silent!' Sir Kevin Lannister bellowed. The knight raised his voice instead. Joffrey is the black worm eating the heart of the realm. Darkness was his father, and death his mother. Destroy him before he corrupts you all. Destroy them all, Queen Whore and King Worm, Vile Dwarf and Whispering Spider, the False Flowers. Save yourselves! One of the gold cloaks knocked the man off his feet, but he continued to shout, The scouring fire will come! King Stannis will return! Joffrey lurched to his feet. I'm king! Kill him! Kill him now! I command it! He chopped down with his hand a furious, angry gesture, and screeched in pain when his arm brushed against one of these sharp metal fangs that surrounded him. The bright crimson samite of his sleeve turned a darker shade of red as his blood soaked through it. Mother! he wailed. With every eye on the king, somehow the man on the floor wrestled a spear away from one of the gold cloaks and used it to push himself back up to his feet. "'The throne denies him!' he cried. "'He is no king!' Cersei was running toward the throne, but Lord Tywin remained still as a stone. He had only to raise a finger, and Sir Meryn Trant moved forward with drawn sword. The end was quick and brutal. The gold cloaks seized the knight by the arms. "'No king!' 
he cried again, as Samarin drove the point of his longsword through his chest. Joff fell into his mother's arms. Three maesters came hurrying forward to bundle him out through the king's door. Then everyone began talking at once. When the gold cloaks dragged off the dead man, he left a trail of bright blood across the stone floor. Lord Baelish stroked his beard while Vares whispered in his ear. Will they dismiss us now? Sansa wondered. A score of captives still waited, though whether to pledge fealty or shout curses, who could say? Lord Tywin rose to his feet. We continue, he said, in a clear, strong voice that silenced the murmurs. Those of you who wish to ask pardon for their treasons may do so. We will have no more follies. He moved to the Iron Throne, and there seated himself on a step a mere three feet off the floor. The light outside the windows was fading by the time the session drew to a close. Sansa felt limp with exhaustion as she made her way down from the gallery. She wondered how badly Joffrey had cut himself. They say the Iron Throne can be perilous cruel to those who are not meant to sit it. Back in the safety of her own chambers, she hugged a pillow to her face to muffle a squeal of joy. Oh, gods be good, he did it. He put me aside in front of everyone. When a serving girl brought her supper, she almost kissed her. There was hot bread and fresh-churned butter, a thick beef soup, capon and carrots, and peaches in honey. Even the food tastes sweeter, she thought. Come dark, she slipped into a cloak and left for the godswood. Sir Osmond Kettleblack was guarding the drawbridge in his white armour. Sansa tried her best to sound miserable as she bid him a good evening. From the way he leered at her, she was not sure she had been wholly convincing. Dantas waited in the leafy moonlight. Why so sad-faced? Sansa asked him gaily. You were there, you heard. Juff put me aside. He's done with me, he's... He took her hand. Oh, Junkle, my poor Junkle, you do not understand. Done with you? They've scarcely begun. Her heart sank. What do you mean? The Queen will never let you go, never. You're too valuable, a hostage. And Joffrey, sweetling, is still king. If he wants you in his bed, he will have you. Only now it will be bastards he plants in your womb instead of true-born sons. No, Sansa said, shocked. He let me go, he— Sir Dantas planted a slobbery kiss on her ear. Be brave. I swore to see you home. And now I can. The day has been chosen. When? Sansa asked. When will we go? The night of Joffrey's wedding. After the feast. All the necessary arrangements have been made. The Red Keep will be full of strangers. Half the court will be drunk, and the other half will be helping Joffrey to bed his bride. For a little while you will be forgotten, and the confusion will be our friend. The wedding won't be for a moon's turn yet. Marjorie Tyrell is at High Garden. They've only now sent for her. You've waited so long. Be patient a while longer. Here, I have something for you. 
Sir Dantas fumbled in his pouch and drew out a silvery spiderweb, dangling it between his thick fingers. It was a hairnet of fine-spun silver, the strand so thin and delicate, the net seemed to weigh no more than a breath of air when Sansa took it in her fingers. Small gems were set wherever two strands crossed, so dark they drank the moonlight. What stones are these? Black amethyst, from Ashai, the rarest kind, a deep true purple by daylight. It's very lovely, Sansa said, thinking, it is a ship I need, not a net for my hair. Lovelier than you know, sweet child. It's, it's magic, you see. It's justice you hold. It's vengeance for your father. Dantas leaned close and kissed her again. It's home. Theon Maester Luan came to him when the first scouts were seen outside the walls. My lord prince, he said, you must yield. Theon stared at the platter of oat cakes, honey, and blood sausage they'd brought him to break his fast. Another sleepless night had left his nerves raw, and the very sight of food sickened him. There has been no reply from my uncle? None, the maester said. Nor from your father, Unpike. Send more birds. It will not serve. By the time each bird reach, send them. Knocking the platter of food aside with a swipe of his arm, he pushed off the blankets and rose from Ned Stark's bed, naked and angry. Or do you want me dead? Is that it, Lewin? The truth now? The small grey man was unafraid. My order serves. Yes, but whom? The realm, Maester Lewin said. And Winterfell. Theon, once I taught you sums and letters, history and warcraft, and might have taught you more had you wished to learn. I will not claim to bear you any great love, no, but I cannot hate you either. Even if I did, as long as you hold Winterfell, I am bound by oath to give you counsel. So now I counsel you to yield. Theon stooped to scoop a puddled cloak off the floor, shook off the rushes, and draped it over his shoulders. A fire. I'll have a fire. And clean garb. Where's Wex? I'll not go to my grave in dirty clothes. You have no hope of holding here, the maester went on. If your lord father meant to send you aid, he would have done so by now. It is the neck that concerns him. The battle for the north will be fought amidst the ruins of Moat Caelin. That may be so, said Theon, and so long as I hold Winterfell, Sir Roderick and Stark's Lord's Bannermen cannot march south to take my uncle in the rear. I'm not so innocent a warcraft as you think, old man. I have food enough to stand a year's siege if need be. There will be no siege. Perhaps they will spend a day or two fashioning ladders and tying grapnels to the ends of ropes, but soon enough they will come over your walls in a hundred places at once. You may be able to hold the keep for a time, but the castle will fall within the hour. You would do better to open your gates and ask for mercy. <laughs> I know what kind of mercy they'll have for me. 
There is a way. I am ironborn, Theon reminded him. I have my own way. What choice have they left me? No, don't answer. I've heard enough of your counsel. Go and send those birds as I commanded, and tell Lauren I want to see him. And Wex as well. I'll have my mail scarred clean and my garrison assembled in the yard. For a moment he thought the maester was going to defy him, but finally Lewin bowed stiffly. Yes, you command. They made a pitifully small assembly. The iron men were few, the yard large. The Northmen will be on us before nightfall, he told them. Sir Roderick Cassell and all the lords who have come to his call. I will not run from them. I took this castle, and I mean to hold it, to live or die as Prince of Winterfell. But I will not command any man to die with me. If you leave now, before Sir Roderick's main force is upon us, there's still a chance you may win free. He unsheathed his longsword and drew a line in the dirt. Those who would stay and fight, step forward. No one spoke. The men stood in their mail and fur and boiled leather, as still as if they were made of stone. A few exchanged looks. Erzan shuffled his feet. Dick Harlaw hawked and spat. A finger of wind ruffled Enderhar's long, fair hair. Theon felt as though he were drowning. Why am I surprised? He thought bleakly. His father had forsaken him, his uncles, his sister, even that wretched creature Reek. Why should his men prove any more loyal? There was nothing to say, nothing to do. He could only stand there beneath the great grey walls and the hard white sky, sword in hand, waiting, waiting. Wex was the first to cross the line. Three quick steps, and he stood at Theon's side, slouching. Shamed by the boy, Black Lauren followed, all scowls. Who else? he demanded. Red Rolf came forward. Crum, Worlag, Tymor and his brothers, Ulf the Ill, Harag, Sheepstealer, four Harlaws, and two Butleys. Kenneth the Whale was the last, seventeen in all. Erzen was among those who did not move, and Stig, and every man of the ten that Asher had brought from deep wood mutt. Go then, Theon told them. Run to my sister. She'll give you all a warm welcome, I have no doubt. Stig had the grace at least to look ashamed. The rest moved off without a word. Theon turned to the seventeen who remained. Back to the walls. If the gods should spare us, I shall remember every man of you. Black Lauren stayed when the others had gone. The castle folk will turn on us soon as the fight begins. I know that. What would you have me do? Put them out, said Lauren. Every one. Theon shook his head. Is the noose ready? It is. You mean to use it? Do you know a better way? Aye. I'll take my axe and stand on that drawbridge and let them come try me. One at a time, two, three. It makes no matter. None will pass the moat while I still draw breath. He means to die, thought Theon. It's not victory once. It's an end worthy of a song. We'll use the noose. As you say, Lauren replied, contempt in his eyes. Wex helped garb him for battle. Beneath his black surcoat and golden mantle, 
was a shirt of well-oiled ringmail, and under that a layer of stiff-boiled leather. Once armed and armoured, Theon climbed the watchtower, at the angle where the eastern and southern walls come together, to have a look at his doom. The Northmen were spreading out to encircle the castle. It was hard to judge their numbers. A thousand at least, perhaps, twice that many. Against seventeen? They brought catapults and scorpions. He saw no siege towers rumbling up the King's Road, but there was timber enough in the Wolfswood to build as many as were required. Theon studied their banners through Maester Lewin's Murrish lens tube. The Serwin battle-axe flapped bravely wherever he looked, and there were tall out trees as well, and mermen from White Harbour. Less common were the sigils of Flint and Karstark. Here and there he even saw the bull moose of the Hornwoods. But no glovers. Asher saw to them. No boltons from the dreadfort. No umbers come down from the shadow of the wall. Not that they were needed. Soon enough the boy Clay Serwin appeared before the gates, carrying a peace banner and a tall staff, to announce that Sir Roderick Cassell wished to parley with Theon Turncloak. Turncloak? The name was bitter as bile. He had gone to Pike to lead his father's longships against Lannisport, he remembered. I shall be out shortly, he shouted down. Alone! Black Lauren disapproved. Only blood can wash out blood, he declared. Knights may keep their truces with other knights, but they are not so careful of their honour when dealing with those they deem outlaw. Theon bristled. I am the Prince of Winterfell, an heir to the Iron Islands. Now go find the girl and do as I told you. Black Lauren gave him a murderous look. Aye, Prince. He's turned against me too. Theon realised. Of late it seemed to him as if the very stones of Winterfell had turned against him. If I die, I die friendless and abandoned. What choice did that leave him but to live? He rode to the gatehouse with his crown on his head. A woman was drawing water from the well, and Gage the cook stood in the doorway of the kitchens. They hid their hatred behind sullen looks and faces blank as slate, yet he could feel it all the same. When the drawbridge was lowered, a chill wind sighed across the moat. The touch of it made him shiver. It is a cold, nothing more, Theon told himself. A shiver, not a tremble. Even brave men shiver. Into the teeth of that wind he rode, under the portcullis, over the drawbridge. The outer gates swung open to let him pass. As he emerged beneath the walls, he could sense the boys watching from the empty sockets where their eyes had been. Sir Roderick waited in the market astride his dappled gelding. Beside him, the direwolf of Stark flapped from a staff borne by young Clay Serwin. They were alone in the square, though Theon could see archers on the roofs of surrounding houses, spearmen to his right, and to his left a line of mounted knights beneath the merman and trident of House Mandalay. Every one of them wants me dead. Some were boys he'd drunk with, diced with, even wenched with, but that would not save him if he fell into their hands. Sir Roderick, Theon reigned to a halt. It grieves me that we must meet as foes. 
My own grief is that I must wait a while to hang you. The old knight spat onto the muddy ground. Theon turned cloak. I am a great joy of pike, Theon reminded him. The cloak my father swaddled me in bore a kraken, not a direwolf. For ten years you have been a ward of Stark. Hostage and prisoner, I call it. Then perhaps Lord Edward should have kept you chained to a dungeon wall. Instead, he raised you amongst his own sons, the sweet boys you have butchered. And to my undying shame, I trained you in the arts of war. Would that I had thrust a sword through your belly instead of placing one in your hand. I came out to parley, not to suffer your insults. Say what you have to say, old man. What would you have of me? Two things, the old man said. Winterfell and your life. Command your men to open the gates and lay down their arms. Those who murdered no children shall be free to walk away. But you shall be held for King Rob's justice. May the gods take pity on you when he returns. Rob will never look on Winterfell again, Theon promised. He will break himself on Moat Caelin, as every southern army has done for ten thousand years. We hold the north now, sir. You hold three castles, replied Sir Roderick. And this one I mean to take back, turn cloak. Theon ignored that. Here are my terms. You have until evenfall to disperse. Those who swear fealty to Balon Greyjoy as their king and to myself as Prince of Winterfell will be confirmed in their rights and properties and suffer no harm. Those who defy us will be destroyed. Young servant was incredulous. Are you mad, Greyjoy? Sir Roderick shook his head. Only vain, lad. Theon has always had too lofty an opinion of himself, I fear. The old man jabbed a finger at him. Do not imagine that I need to wait for Rob to fight his way up the neck to deal with the likes of you. I have near two thousand men with me, and if the tales be true, you have no more than fifty. Seventeen, in truth. Theon made himself smile. I have something better than men. And he raised a fist over his head. The signal Black Lauren had been told to watch for. The walls of Winterfell were behind him, but Sir Roderick faced them squarely and could not fail to see. Theon watched his face. When his chin quivered under those stiff white whiskers, he knew just what the old man was seeing. He's not surprised, he thought with sadness. But the fear is there. This is Craven, Sir Roderick said, to use a child so... This is despicable. Oh, I know, said Theon. It's a dish I tasted myself, or have you forgotten? I was ten when I was taken from my father's house to make certain he would raise no more rebellions. It is not the same. Theon's face was impassive. The noose I wore was not made of hemp and rope, that's true enough, but I felt it all the same. And it chafed, Sir Roderick, it chafed me raw. He had never quite realised that until now, but as the words came spilling out, he saw the truth of them. No harm was ever done you. And no harm will be done your Beth, so long as you... Sir Roderick, 
never gave him the chance to finish. Viper, the knight declared, his face red with rage beneath those white whiskers. I gave you the chance to save your men and die with some small shred of honor, Turncloak. I should have known that was too much to ask of a child killer. His hand went to the hilt of his sword. I ought to cut you down here and now and put an end to your lies and deceits. By the gods I should. Theon did not fear a doddering old man, but those watching archers and that line of knights were a different matter. If the sword came out, his chances of getting back to the castle alive were small to none. Forswear your oath and murder me, and you will watch your little Beth strangle at the end of a rope. Sir Roderick's knuckles had gone white, but after a moment he took his hand off his sword hilt. Truly, I have lived too long. I will not disagree, sir. Will you accept my terms? I have a duty to Lady Catelyn and House Stark. And your own house. Beth is the last of your blood. The old knight drew himself up straight. I offer myself in my daughter's place. Release her and take me as your hostage. Surely the Castellan of Winterfell is worth more than a child. Not to me. A valiant gesture, old man, but I am not that great a fool. Nor to Lord Manderley or Leobold Tallart either, I'll wager. Your sorry old skin is worth no more to them than any other man's. No, I'll keep the girl, and keep her safe, so long as you do as I've commanded you. Her life is in your hands. Gods be good, Theon. How can you do this? You know I must attack, have sworn, if this host is still in arms before my gate when the sun sets. Beth will hang, said Theon. Another hostage will follow her to the grave at first light, and another at sunset. Every dawn and every dusk will mean a death, until you are gone. I have no lack of hostages. He did not wait for a reply, but wheeled Smiler around and rode back toward the castle. He went slowly at first, but the thought of those archers at his back soon drove him to a canter. The small heads watched him come from their spikes, their tarred and flayed faces looming larger with every yard. Between them stood little Beth Cassell, noosed and crying. Theon put his heel into Smiler and broke into a hard gallop. Smiler's hooves clattered on the drawbridge like drumbeats. In the yard he dismounted and handed the reins to Wex. It may stay them, he told Black Lauren. We'll know by sunset. Take the girl in till then, and keep her somewhere safe. Under the layers of leather, steel, and wool, he was slick with sweat. I need a cup of wine. A vat of wine would do even better. A fire had been laid in Ned Stark's bedchamber. Theon sat beside it and filled a cup with heavy-bodied red from the castle vaults, a wine as sour as his mood. They will attack, he thought gloomily, staring at the flames. Sir Roderick loves his daughter, but he is still Castellan, and, most of all, a knight. Had it been Theon with a noose around his neck, and Lord Balon commanding the army without, the war horns would already have sounded the attack, he had no doubt. 
we should thank the gods that Sir Rudrick was not iron-born. The men of the Greenlands were made of softer stuff, though he was not certain they would prove soft enough. If not, if the old man gave the command to storm the castle regardless, Winterfell would fall. Theon entertained no delusions on that count. His seventeen might kill three, four, five times their own number, but in the end they would be overwhelmed. Theon stared at the flames over the rim of his wine goblet, brooding on the injustice of it all. I rode beside Rub Stark in the Whispering Wood, he muttered. He had been frightened that night, but not like this. It was one thing to go into battle surrounded by friends, and another to perish alone and despised. Mercy, he thought miserably. When the wine brought no solace, Theon sent Wex to fetch his bow, and took himself to the old inner ward. There he stood, loosing shaft after shaft at the archery butts until his shoulders ached and his fingers were bloody, pausing only long enough to pull the arrows from the targets for another round. I saved Brand's life with this bow, he reminded himself. Would that I could save my own. Women came to the well, but did not linger. Whatever they saw on Theon's face sent them away quickly. Behind him the broken tower stood, its summit as jagged as a crown, where fire had collapsed the upper stories long ago. As the sun moved, the shadow of the tower moved as well, gradually lengthening, a black arm reaching out for Theon Greyjoy. By the time the sun touched the wall, he was in its grasp. If I hang the girl, the Northman will attack at once, he thought as he loosed a shaft. If I do not hang her, they will know my threats are empty. He knocked another arrow to his bow. There is no way out, none. If you had a hundred archers as good as yourself, you might have a chance to hurl the castle, a voice said softly. When he turned, Maester Lewin was behind him. Go away, Theon told him. I've had enough of your counsel. And life? Have you had enough of that, my lord prince? He raised the bow. One more word, and I'll put this shaft through your heart. You won't. Theon bent the bow, drawing the grey goose feathers back to his cheek. Care to make a wager? I am your last hope, Theon. I have no hope, he thought. Yet he lowered the bow half an inch and said, I will not run. I do not speak of running. Take the black. The night's watch? Theon let the bow unbend slowly and pointed the arrow at the ground. Sir Roderick has served House Stark all his life, and House Stark has always been a friend to the watch. He will not deny you. Open your gates, lay down your arms, accept his terms, and he must let you take the black. A brother of the Night's Watch. It meant no crown, no sons, no wife, but it meant life, and life with honour. Ned Stark's own brother had chosen the watch, and Jon Snow as well. I have black garb aplenty once I tear the krakens off. Even my horse is black. I could rise high in the watch, a chief of rangers, likely even 
Lord Commander, let Asher keep the bloody islands. They're as dreary as she is. If I served at Eastwatch, I could command my own ship. And there's fine hunting beyond the wall. As for women, what wildling woman wouldn't want a prince in her bed? A slow smile crept across his face. A black cloak can't be turned. I'd be as good as any man. Prince Theon! The sudden shout shattered his daydream. Crumb was loping across the yard. The Norsemen! He felt a sudden sick sense of dread. Is it the attack? Maester Lewin clutched his arm. There's still time. Raise a peace banner. They're fighting, Crumb said urgently. More men came up, hundreds of them, and at first they made to join the others, but now they've fallen on them. Is it Asher? Had she come to save him, after all? But Crumb gave a shake of his head. No, these are North men, I tell you, with a bloody man on their banner. The flayed man of the Dreadfort. Reek had belonged to the bastard of Bolton before his capture, Theon recalled. It was hard to believe that a vile creature like him could sway the Boltons to change their allegiance, but nothing else made sense. I'll see this for myself, Theon said. Mester Lewin trailed after him. By the time they reached the battlements, dead men and dying horses were strewn about the market square outside the gates. He saw no battle lines, only a swirling chaos of banners and blades. Shouts and screams rang through the cold autumn air. Sir Roderick seemed to have the numbers, but the Dreadfort men were better led and had taken the others unawares. Theon watched them charge and wheel and charge again, chopping the larger force to bloody pieces every time they tried to form up between the houses. He could hear the crash of iron axe-heads on oaken shields over the terrified trumpeting of a maimed horse. The inn was burning, he saw. Black Lauren appeared beside him and stood silently for a time. The sun was low in the west, painting the fields and houses all a glowing red. A thin, wavering cry of pain drifted over the walls, and a war-horn sounded off beyond the burning houses. Theon watched a wounded man drag himself painfully across the ground, smearing his life's blood in the dirt as he struggled to reach the well that stood at the centre of the market square. He died before he got there. He wore a leather jerkin and a conical half-helm, but no badge to tell which side he'd fought on. The crows came in the blue dust with the evening stars. The Dothraki believe the stars are spirits of the valiant dead, Theon said. Maester Lewin had told him that a long time ago. Dothraki? The horse lords across the narrow seas. Oh, them! Black Lauren frowned through his beard. Savages believe all manner of foolish things. As the night grew darker and the smoke spread, it was harder to make out what was happening below but the din of steel gradually diminished to nothing, and the shouts and war-horns gave way to moans and piteous wailing. Finally, a column of mounted men rode out of the drifting smoke. At their head was a knight in dark armour. His rounded helm gleamed a sullen red, and a pale pink cloak streamed from his shoulders. Outside the main gate he reined up, and one of his men shouted for the castle to open. 
Are you friend or foe? Black Lauren bellowed down. Would a foe bring such fine gifts? Red Helm waved a hand, and three corpses were dumped in front of the gates. A torch was waved above the bodies, so the defenders upon the walls might see the faces of the dead. The old Castellan, said Black Lauren. With Leobald Tallheart and Clay Serwin. The boy lord had taken an arrow in the eye, and Sir Roderick had lost his left arm at the elbow. Maester Lewin gave a wordless cry of dismay, turned away from the battlements, and fell to his knees sick. The great pig Mandalay was too craven to leave White Harbour, or we would have brought him as well, shouted Red Helm. I am saved, Theon thought. So why did he feel so empty? This was victory. Sweet victory, the deliverance he had prayed for. He glanced at Maester Lewin. To think how close I came to yielding and taking the black. Open the gates for our friends. Perhaps tonight Theon would sleep without fear of what his dreams might bring. The Dreadfort men made their way across the moat and through the inner gates. Theon descended with Black Lauren and Maester Lewin to meet them in the yard. Pale red pennons trailed from the ends of a few lances, but many more carried battle-axes and great swords and shields hacked half to splinters. "'How many men did you lose?' Theon asked Red Helm as he dismounted. Twenty or thirty. The torchlight glittered off the chipped enamel of his visor. His helm and gorget were wrought in the shape of a man's face and shoulders, skinless and bloody, mouth open in a silent howl of anguish. Sir Roderick had you five to one. Aye, but he thought as friends. A common mistake. When the old fool gave me his hand, I took half his arm instead. Then I let him see my face. The man put both hands to his helm and lifted it off his head, holding it in the crook of his arm. Reek, Theon said, disquieted. How did a serving man get such fine armor? The man laughed. <laughs> the wretch is dead. <laughs> he stepped closer. The girl's fault. If she had not run so far... His horse would not have lamed, and we might have been able to flee. I gave him mine when I saw the riders from the ridge. I was done with her by then, and he liked to take his turn while they were still warm. I had to pull him off <laughs> and shove my clothes into his hand, calfskin boots and velvet doublet, silver chased sword belt, even my sable cloak. Ride for the dreadfort, I told him. Bring all the help you can. Take my horse, he's swifter. And here, wear the ring my father gave me, so they'll know you came from me. He learned better than to question me. By the term, they put the arrow through his back. I smeared myself with the girl's filth and dressed in his rags. They might have hanged me anyway, <laughs> but it was the only chance I saw. He rubbed the back of his hand across his mouth. And now, my sweet prince, there was a woman promised me. If I brought two hundred men, well, I brought three times as many, and no green boys nor field hands neither, but my father's own garrison. Theon had given his word. This was 
not a time to flinch. Pay him his pound of flesh and deal with him later. Arag, he said, go to the kennels and bring Parla back for... Ramsey. There was a smile on his plump lips, but none in those pale, pale eyes. Snow, my wife called me, before she ate her fingers, but I say, Bolton. <laughs> his smile curdled. So, you'd offer me a kennel girl for my good service. Is that the way of it? There was a tone in his voice Theon did not like. No more than he liked the insolent way the Dreadfort men were looking at him. She was what was promised. She smells of dog shit. I've had enough of bad smells, as it happens. I think I'll have your bed warmer instead. What do you call her? Kyra? Are you mad? Theon said angry. I'll have you... The bastard's backhand caught him square, and his cheekbone shattered with a sickening crunch beneath the lobster's steel. The world vanished in a red roar of pain. Sometime later, Theon found himself on the ground. He rolled onto his stomach and swallowed a mouthful of blood. Close the gates, he tried to shout, but it was too late. The dread fort men had cut down Red Wolf and Kennet, and more were pouring through a river of mail and sharp swords. There was a ringing in his ears and horror all around him. Black Lauren had his sword out, but there were already four of them pressing in on him. He saw Ulf go down with a crossbow bolt through the belly as he ran for the great hall. Maester Lewin was trying to reach him when a knight on a warhorse planted a spear between his shoulders, then swung back to ride over him. Another man whipped a torch round and round his head and then lofted it toward the thatch roof of the stables. Save me the phrase! The bastard was shouting as the flames roared upward. And burn the rest! Burn it! Burn it all! The last thing Theon Greyjoy saw was Smiler, kicking free of the burning stables, with his mane ablaze, screaming, rearing. Tyrion he dreamed of a cracked stone ceiling and the smells of blood and shit and burnt flesh. The air was full of acrid smoke. Men were groaning and whimpering all around him, and from time to time a scream would pierce the air, thick with pain. When he tried to move, he found that he had fouled his own bedding. The smoke in the air made his eyes water. Am I crying? He must not let his father see. He was a Lannister of Castle Rock. A lion? I must be a lion, live a lion, die a lion. He hurt so much, though, too weak to groan. He lay in his own filth and shut his eyes. Nearby, someone was cursing the gods in a heavy, monotonous tone. He listened to the blasphemies and wondered if he was dying. After a time, the room faded. He found himself outside the city, walking through a world without color. Ravens soared through a gray sky on wide black wings, while carrion crows rose from their feasts in furious clouds wherever he set his steps. 
white maggots burrowed through black corruption. The wolves were grey, and so were the silent sisters. Together they stripped the flesh from the fallen. There were corpses strewn all over the tawny fields. The sun was a hot white penny, shining down upon the grey river as it rushed around the charred bones of sunken ships. From the pyres of the dead rose black columns of smoke and white-hot ashes. My work, thought Tyrion Lannister, they died at my command. At first there was no sound in the world, but after a time he began to hear the voices of the dead, soft and terrible. They wept and moaned, they begged for an end to pain, they cried for help, and wanted their mothers. Tyrion had never known his mother. He wanted Shay, but she was not there. He walked alone amidst the grey shadows, trying to remember. The silent sisters were stripping the dead men of their armour and clothes. All the bright dyes had leached out from the surcoats of the slain. They were garbed in shades of white and grey, and their blood was black and crusty. He watched their naked bodies lifted by arm and leg to be carried swinging to the pyres to join their fellows. Metal and cloth were thrown in the back of a white wooden wagon pulled by two tall black horses. So many dead, so very many. Their corpses hung limply, their faces slack or stiff or swollen with gas, unrecognizable, hardly human. The garments the sisters took from them were decorated with black hearts, grey lions, dead flowers, and pale, ghostly stags. Their armour was all dented and gashed, the chainmail riven, broken, slashed. Why did I kill them all? He had known once, but somehow he had forgotten. He would have asked one of the silent sisters, but when he tried to speak, he found he had no mouth. Smooth, seamless skin covered his teeth. The discovery terrified him. How could he live without a mouth? He began to run. The city was not far. He would be safe inside the city, away from all these dead. He did not belong with the dead. He had no mouth, but he was still a living man. No, a lion, a lion, and alive. But when he reached the city walls, the gates were shut against him. It was dark when he woke again. At first he could see nothing, but after a time the vague outlines of a bed appeared around him. The drapes were drawn, but he could see the shape of curved bedposts and the droop of the velvet canopy over his head. Under him was the yielding softness of a feather bed, and the pillow beneath his head was goose-down. My own bed! I am in my own bed! In my own bedchamber! It was warm inside the drapes, under the great heap of furs and blankets that covered him. He was sweating. Fever, he thought groggily. He felt so weak, and the pain stabbed through him when he struggled to lift his hand. He gave up the effort. His head felt enormous, as big as the bed, too heavy to raise from the pillow. His body he could scarcely feel at all. How did I come here? He tried to remember. The battle came back in fits and flashes. The fight along the river. The knight who'd offer up his gauntlet. The bridge of ships. 
Sir Mandon. He saw the dead, empty eyes, the reaching hand, the green fire shining against the white enamel plate. Fear swept over him in a cold rush. Beneath the sheets, he could feel his bladder letting go. He would have cried out if he'd had a mouth. No, that was the dream, he thought, his head pounding. Help me! Someone help me! Jamie! Shay! Mother! Someone! Taisha! No one heard. No one came. Alone in the dark, he fell back into piss-scented sleep. He dreamed his sister was standing over his bed with their lord father beside her, frowning. It had to be a dream, since Lord Tywin was a thousand leagues away, fighting Rub Stark in the west. Others came and went as well. Varys looked down on him and sighed, but Littlefinger made a quip. Bloody, treacherous bastard, Tyrion thought venomously. We sent you to Bitterbridge, and you never came back. Sometimes he could hear them talking to one another, but he did not understand the words. Their voices buzzed in his ears like wasps muffled in thick felt. He wanted to ask if they'd won the battle. We, we must have. Yes, I'd be ahead on a spike somewhere. If I live, we won. He did not know what pleased him more, the victory or the fact he'd been able to reason it out. His wits were coming back to him, however slowly. That was good. His wits were all he had. The next time he woke, the draperies had been pulled back, and Podrick Payne stood over him with a candle. When he saw Tyrion open his eyes, he ran off. No, don't go. Help me. Help, he tried to call, but the best he could do was a muffled moan. I have no mouth. He raised a hand to his face, his every movement pained and fumbling. His fingers found stiff cloth, where they should have found flesh, lips, teeth. Linen! The lower half of his face was bandaged tightly, a mask of hardened plaster with holes for breathing and feeding. A short while later, Pod reappeared. This time a stranger was with him, a maester chained and robed. "'My lord, you must be still,' the man murmured. "'You are grievous hurt, and you will do yourself great injury. Are you thirsty?' He managed an awkward nod. The maester inserted a curved copper funnel through the feeding hole over his mouth and poured a slow trickle down his throat. Tyrion swallowed, scarcely tasting. Too late he realized the liquid was milk of the poppy. By the time the maester removed the funnel from his mouth, he was already spiraling back to sleep. This time he dreamed he was at a feast, a victory feast, in some great hall. He had a high seat on the dais, and men were lifting their goblets and hailing him as hero. Marillion was there, the singer who journeyed with them through the mountains of the moon. He played his wood harp and sang of the imp's daring deeds. Even his father was smiling with approval. When the song was over, Jamie rose from his place, commanded Tyrion to kneel, and touched him first on one shoulder and then on the other with his golden sword, and he rose up a knight. Shay was waiting to embrace him. She took him by the hand, laughing and teasing, calling him 
her giant of Lannister. He woke in darkness to a cold, empty room. The draperies had been drawn again. Something felt wrong, turned around, though he could not have said what. He was alone once more. Pushing back the blankets, he tried to sit, but the pain was too much, and he soon subsided, breathing raggedly. His face was the least part of it. His right side was one huge ache, and a stab of pain went through his chest whenever he lifted his arm. What's happened to me? Even the battle seemed half a dream when he tried to think back on it. I was hurt more badly than I knew. Samandan— The memory frightened him. But Tyrion made himself hold it, turn it in his head, stare at it hard. He tried to kill me. No mistake. That part was not a dream. He would have cut me in half if Pod had not— Pod? Where's Pod? Gritting his teeth, he grabbed hold of the bed hangings and yanked. The drapes ripped free of the canopy overhead and tumbled down, half on the rushes and half on him. Even that small effort had dizzied him. The room whirled around him, all bare walls and dark shadows, with a single narrow window. He saw a chest he'd owned, an untidy pile of his clothing, his battered armor. This is not my bedchamber, he realized, not even the Tower of the Hand. Someone had moved him. His shout of anger came out as a muffled moan. They have moved me here to die, he thought as he gave up the struggle and closed his eyes once more. The room was dank and cold, and he was burning. He dreamed of a better place, a snug little cottage by the sunset sea. The walls were lopsided and cracked, and the floor had been made of packed earth but it had always been warm there, even when they let the fire go out. She used to tease me about this, he remembered. I never thought to feed the fire that had always been a servant's task. We have no servants, she would remind me, and I would say, You have me, I'm your servant. And she would say, A lazy servant, what do they do with lazy servants in Castle Rock, my lord? And I would tell her, They kiss them. <laughs> that would always make her giggle. They do not neither. They beat them, I bet, she would say. And I would insist. No, they kiss them, just like this. I would show her how. They kiss their fingers first, every one, and they kiss their wrists, yes, and inside their elbows. Then they kiss their funny ears. All our servants have funny ears. Stop laughing. And they kiss their cheeks, and they kiss their noses, with a little bump in them, there, so, like that, and then they kiss their sweet brows, and their hair, and their lips, their mm, mouths, so. They would kiss for hours and spend whole days doing no more than lolling in bed, listening to the waves, and touching each other. Her body was a wonder to him, and she seemed to find delight in his. Sometimes she would sing to him. I loved a maid as fair as summer with sunlight in her hair. I love you, Tyrion, she would whisper before they went to sleep at night. I love your lips 
I love your voice and the words you say to me and how you treat me gentle. I love your face. My face? Yes. Yes, I love your hands and how you touch me. Your cock. I love your cock. I love how it feels when it's in me. It loves you too, my lady. I love to say your name. Tyrion Lannister. It goes with mine. Not the Lannister, t'other part. Tyrion and Tysha. Tysha and Tyrion. Tyrion. My lord Tyrion. Lies, he thought. All feigned. All for gold. She was a whore. Jamie's whore. Jamie's gift. My lady of the lie. Her face seemed to fade away, dissolving behind a veil of tears. But even after she was gone, he could still hear the faint, far-off sound of her voice, calling his name. My lord, can you hear me? My lord, Tyrion, my lord, my lord. Through a haze of poppied sleep, he saw a soft pink face leaning over him. He was back in the dank room with the torn bed hangings, and the face was wrong, not hers, too round, with a brown fringe of beard. Do you thirst, my lord? I have your milk, your good milk. You must not fight, no. Don't try to move. You need your rest. He had the copper funnel in one damp pink hand and a flask in the other. As the man leaned closer, Tyrion's fingers slid underneath his chain of many metals, grabbed, pulled. The maester dropped the flask, spilling milk of the poppy all over the blanket. Tyrion twisted until he could feel the lynx digging into the flesh of the man's fat neck. No more, he croaked, so hoarse he was not certain he had even spoken. But he must have, for the maester choked out a reply. On hand, please, my lord. Need your milk and pain. The chain don't on hand, no. The pink face was beginning to purple when Tyrion let go. The maester reeled back, sucking in air. His reddened throat showed deep white gouges where the lynx had pressed. His eyes were white, too. Tyrion raised a hand to his face and made a ripping motion over the hardened mask, and again and again. You, you want the bandages off, is that it? The maester said at last. But I'm not to... That would be most unwise, my lord. You are not yet healed. The queen would... The mention of his sister made Tyrion growl. Are you one of us, then? He pointed a finger at the maester, then coiled his hand into a fist. Crushing, choking, a promise, unless the fool did as he was bid. Thankfully, he understood. I, I will do as my lord commands, to be sure, but uh, this is unwise. Your, your wounds. Do it. Louder that time. Bowing, the man left the room, only to return a few moments later, bearing a long knife with a slender saw-tooth blade, a basin of water, a pile of soft cloths, and several flasks. By then Tyrion had managed to squirm backward a few inches, so he was half sitting against his pillow. The maester bade him be very still as he slid the tip of the knife in under his chin beneath the mask. A slip of the blade here, and Cersei would be free of me, 
he thought. He could feel the blade sawing through the stiffened linen, only inches above his throat. Fortunately, this soft pink man was not one of his sister's braver creatures. After a moment he felt cool air in his cheeks. There was pain as well, but he did his best to ignore it. The maester discarded the bandages, still crusty with potion. Be still now. I must wash out the wound. His touch was gentle, the water warm and soothing. The wound, Tyrion thought, remembering a sudden flash of bright silver that seemed to pass just below his eyes. This is like to sting some, the maester warned as he wet a cloth with wine that smelled of crushed herbs. It did more than sting. It traced a line of fire all the way across Tyrion's face and twisted the burning poker up his nose. His fingers clawed the bedclothes and he sucked in his breath, but somehow he managed not to scream. The maester was clucking like an old hen. It would have been wiser to leave the mask in place until the flesh had knit, my lord. Still, it looks clean. Good, good. When we found you down in that cellar among the dead and dying, your wounds were filthy. One of your ribs was broken. Doubtless you can feel it. The blow of some mace, perhaps, or a fall, it's hard to say. And you took an arrow in the arm, there where it joins the shoulder. It showed signs of mortification and for a time I feared you might lose the limb. But we treated it with boiling wine and maggots, and now it seems to be healing clean. Name! Tyrion breathed up at him. Name! The maester blinked. Why, you are Tyrion Lannister, my lord, a brother to the queen. Do you remember the battle, sometimes with head wounds? Your name! His throat was raw and his tongue had forgotten how to shape the words. I am Maester Balabar. Balabar, Tyrion repeated. Bring me looking-glass. My lord, the maester said, I would not counsel. That might be uh, unwise, as it were, your wound. Bring it, he had to say. His mouth was stiff and sore as if a punch had split his lip. And drink, wine, no puppy. The maester rose, flush-faced, and hurried off. He came back with a flagon of pale amber wine and a small silvered looking-glass in an ornate golden frame. Sitting on the edge of the bed, he poured half a cup of wine and held it to Tyrion's swollen lips. The trickle went down cool, though he could hardly taste it. "'More!' he said, when the cup was empty. Maester Balabar poured again. By the end of the second cup, Tyrion Lannister felt strong enough to face his face. He turned over the glass and did not know whether he ought to laugh or cry. The gash was long and crooked, starting a hair under his left eye and ending up on the right side of his jaw. Three quarters of his nose was gone, and a chunk of his lip. Someone had sewn the torn flesh together with catgut, and their clumsy stitches were still in place across the seam of raw, red, half-heeled flesh. Pretty, he croaked, flinging the glass aside. 
He remembered now. The bridge of boats, Sir Mandon Moore, a hand, a sword coming at his face. If I had not pulled back, that cut would have taken off the top of my head. Jamie had always said that Sir Mandon was the most dangerous of the King's Guard, because his dead, empty eyes gave no hint to his intentions. I should never have trusted any of them. He'd known that Sir Merrin and Sir Boris were his sisters, and Sir Osmond later, but he'd let himself believe that the others were not wholly lost to honour. Cersei must have paid him to see that I never came back from the battle. Why else? I never did Sir Mandan any harm that I know of. Tyrion touched his face, plucking at the proud flesh with blunt, thick fingers. Another gift from my sweet sister. The maester stood beside the bed like a goose about to take flight. My lord, there, there will most like be a scar. Most like? <laughs> His snort of laughter turned into a wince of pain. There would be a scar, to be sure nor was it likely that his nose would be growing back any time soon. It was not as if his face had ever been fit to look at. Teach me not to play with axes. His grin felt tight. Where are we? What, what place? It hurt to talk, but Tyrion had been too long in silence. Ah, you are in Magor's Hellfast, my lord. A chamber over the Queen's ballroom. Her Grace wanted you kept close, so she might watch over you herself. I'll wager she did. Return me, Tyrion commanded. Own bed, own chambers. Where I will have my own men about me, and my own maester too, if I can find one I can trust. Your own, my lord, would not be possible— the king's hand has taken up residence in your former chambers. I am king's hand. He was growing exhausted by the effort of speaking and confused by what he was hearing. Maester Balabar looked distressed. No, my lord, I am. Um, you were wounded near death. Your lord father has taken up those duties now. Lord Tywin, he... here... Since the night of the battle, Lord Tywin saved us all. The small folk say it was King Renly's ghost, but wiser men know better. It was your father and Lord Tyrell, with a knight of flowers and Lord Littlefinger. They rode through the ashes and took the usurper's tennis in the rear. It was a great victory, and now Lord Tywin has settled into the Tower of the Hand to help his grace Set the realm to rights. Gods be praised. Gods be praised, Tyrion repeated hollowly. His bloody father, and bloody Littlefinger, and Renly's ghost. I want. Who do I want? He could not tell Pink Balabar to fetch him Shay. Who could he send for? Who could he trust? Varys? Bronn? Sir Jesselyn? My squire, he finished. Pod, pain. It was Pod on the bridge of boats. The lad saved my life. The boy, 
the odd boy. Odd boy, Patrick Payne. You go, send him. As you will, my lord. Maester Badabar bobbed his head and hurried out. Tyrion could feel the strength seeping out of him as he waited. He wondered how long he had been here, asleep. Cersei would have me sleep forever, but I won't be so obliging. Podrick Payne entered the bedchamber, timid as a mouse. My lord? He crept close to the bed. How can a boy so bold in battle be so frightened in a sick room? Tyrion wondered. I, I meant to stay by you, but the maester sent me away. Send him away. Hear me? Talks hard. Need a dream wine. Dream wine, not milk of the puppy. Go to Franken. Franken, not Badabar. Watch him make it. Bring it here. Pod stole a glance at Tyrion's face, and just as quickly averted his eyes. Well, I cannot blame him for that. I want, Tyrion went on, mine own guard, Bronn. Where's Bronn? I made him a knight. Even frowning hurt. Find him. Bring him. As you say, my lord, Bronn. Tyrion seized the lad's wrist. Sir Mandon. The boy flinched. I n never meant to c c c c Dead? You're certain? Dead? The boy shuffled his feet sheepishly. Drowned. Good. Say nothing. Of him? Of me? Any of it? Nothing. By the time his squire had left, the last of Tyrion's strength was gone as well. He lay back and closed his eyes. Perhaps he would dream of Tysha again. I wonder how she'd like my face now, he thought bitterly. John When Corrin Halfhand told him to find some brush for a fire, John knew their end was near. It will be good to feel warm again, if only for a little while, he told himself while he hacked bare branches from the trunk of a dead tree. Ghost sat on his haunches, watching, silent as ever. Will he howl for me when I'm dead? As Bran's wolf howled when he fell, John wondered. Will Shaggy Dog howl far off in Winterfell, and Grey Wind, and Nymeria, wherever they might be? The moon was rising behind one mountain, and the sun sinking behind another, as John struck sparks from flint and dagger, until finally a wisp of smoke appeared. Corrin came and stood over him as the first flame rose up, flickering from the shavings of bark and dead dry pine needles. As shy as a maiden on her wedding night, the big ranger said in a soft voice, and near as fair. Sometimes a man forgets how pretty a fire can be. He was not a man you'd expect to speak of maids and wedding nights. So far as John knew, Corrin had spent his whole life in the watch. Did he ever love a maid or have a wedding? He could not ask. Instead, he fanned the fire. When the blaze was all a crackle, he peeled off his stiff gloves to warm his hands and sighed, wondering if ever a kiss had felt as good. 
the warm spread through his fingers like melting butter. The half-hand eased himself to the ground and sat cross-legged by the fire, the flickering light playing across the hard planes of his face. Only the two of them remained of the five rangers who had fled the Skirling Pass, back into the blue-gray wilderness of the Frostfangs. At first John had nursed the hope that Squire Dalbridge would keep the wildlings bottled up in the pass, but when they'd heard the call of a far-off horn, every man of them knew that the squire had fallen. Later they spied the eagle soaring through the dusk on great blue-gray wings, and Stone Snake unslung his bow, but the bird flew out of range before he could so much as string it. Eben spat and muttered darkly of wargs and skin changes. They glimpsed the eagle twice more the day after, and heard the hunting horn behind them echoing against the mountains. Each time it seemed a little louder, a little closer. When night fell, the half-hand told Eben to take the squire's garron, as well as his own, and ride east for Mormont with all haste, back the way they had come. The rest of them would draw off the pursuit. "'Send John,' Eben had urged. "'He can ride as fast as me. "'John has a different part to play. "'He is half a boy still.' "'No,' said Corrin. "'He is a man of the night's watch.' "'When the moon rose, Eben parted from them. "'Stone Snake went east with him a short way, "'then doubled back to obscure their tracks, "'and the three who remained set off toward the southwest. "'After that the days and nights blurred one into the other. "'They slept in their saddles,' and stopped only long enough to feed and water the garrons, then mounted up again. Over bare rock they rode, through gloomy pine forests and drifts of old snow, over icy ridges and across shallow rivers that had no names. Sometimes Corrin or Stone Snake would loop back to sweep away their tracks, but it was a futile gesture. They were watched. At every dawn and every dusk they saw the eagle soaring between the peaks, no more than a speck in the vastness of the sky. They were scaling a low ridge between two snow-capped peaks when a shadow-cat came snarling from its lair, not ten yards away. The beast was gaunt and half-starved, but the sight of it sent Stone Snake's mare into a panic. She reared and ran, and before the ranger could get her back under control, she had stumbled on the steep slope and broken her leg. Ghost ate well that day, and Corrin insisted that the rangers mix some of the garron's blood with their oats to give them strength. The taste of that foul porridge almost choked John, but he forced it down. They each cut a dozen strips of raw stringy meat from the carcass to chew on as they rode, and left the rest for the shadow cats. There was no question of riding double. Stone Snake offered to lay in wait for the pursuit and surprise them when they came. Perhaps he could take a few of them with him, down to hell? Corrin refused. If any man in the night's watch can make it through the frost fangs alone, and afoot, it is you, brother. You can go over mountains that a horse must go around. Make for the fist. Tell Mormont what John saw and how. Tell him that the old powers are waking that he faces giants and wargs and worse. Tell him that the trees have eyes again. 
He has no chance, John thought, when he watched Stone Snake vanish over a snow-covered ridge, a tiny black bug crawling across a rippling expanse of white. After that, every night seemed colder than the night before, and more lonely. Ghost was not always with them, but he was never far either. Even when they were apart, John sensed his nearness. He was glad for that. The half-hand was not the most companionable of men. Corrin's long grey braid swung slowly with the motion of his horse. Often they would ride for hours without a word spoken. The only sounds, the soft scrape of horseshoes on stone, and the keening of the wind which blew endlessly through the heights. When he slept, he did not dream, not of wolves, nor his brothers, nor anything. Even dreams cannot live up here, he told himself. Is your sword sharp, Jon Snow? asked Corrin Halfhand across the flickering fire. My sword is Valyrian steel. The old bear gave it to me. Do you remember the words of your vow? Yes. They were not words a man was like to forget. Once said, they could never be unsaid. They changed your life forever. Say them again with me, Jon Snow. If you like. The voices blended as one beneath the rising moon, while ghosts listened and the mountains themselves bore witness. Night gathers, and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch for this night and all the nights to come. When they were done, there was no sound but the faint crackle of the flames and a distant sigh of wind. John opened and closed his burnt fingers, holding tight to the words in his mind, praying that his father's gods would give him the strength to die bravely when his hour came. It would not be long now. The Garrens were near the end of their strength. Corrin's mount would not last another day, John suspected. The flames were burning low by then, the warmth fading. The fire will soon go out, Corrin said. But if the wall should ever fall, all the fires would go out. There was nothing John could say to that. He nodded. We may escape them yet, the ranger said. Or not. I'm not afraid to die. It was only half a lie. It may not be so easy as that, John. He did not understand. What do you mean? If we are taken, you must yield. Yield? He blinked in disbelief. The wildlings did not make captives of the men they call the crows. They killed them, except for... They only spare oath-breakers, those who join them, like Mance Raider. And you? No! He shook his head. Never, I won't. You will. I command it of you. Command it, but... Our honour means no more than our lives, so long as the realm is safe. Are you a man of the Night's Watch? Yes, but there is no but, 
Jon Snow, you are, or you are not. Jon sat up straight. I am. Then hear me. If we are taken, you will go over to them, as the wildling girl you captured once urged you. They may demand that you cut your cloak to ribbons, that you swear them an oath on your father's grave, that you curse your brothers and your lord commander. You must not balk. Whatever is asked of you, do as they bid you. But in your heart, remember who and what you are. Ride with them, eat with them, fight with them, for as long as it takes, and watch. For what? John asked. Would that I knew, said Corrin. Your wolf saw their diggings in the valley of the milkwater. What did they seek in such a bleak and distant place? Did they find it? That is what you must learn before you return to Lord Mormont and your brothers. That is the duty I lay on you, Jon Snow. I'll do as you say, Jon said reluctantly. But you will tell them, won't you? The old bear, at least. You'll tell him that I never broke my oath. Corrin Halfhand gazed at him across the fire, his eyes lost in pools of shadow. When I see him next, I swear it. He gestured at the fire. More wood. I want it bright and hot. John went to cut more branches, snapping each one in two before tossing it into the flames. The tree had been dead a long time, but it seemed to live again in the fire, as fiery dancers woke within each stick of wood to whirl and spin in their glowing gowns of yellow, red, and orange. Enough, Corrin said abruptly. Now we ride. Ride? It was dark beyond the fire. The night was cold. Ride where? Back. Corrin mounted his weary garron one more time. The fire will draw them past, I hope. Come, brother. John pulled on his gloves again and raised his hood. Even the horses seemed reluctant to leave the fire. The sun was long gone, and only the cold silver shine of the half-moon remained to light their way over the treacherous ground that lay behind them. He did not know what Corrin had in mind, but perhaps it was a chance. He hoped so. I do not want to play the oath-breaker, even for good reason. They went cautiously, moving as silent as man and horse could move, retracing their steps until they reached the mouth of a narrow defile, where an icy little stream emerged from between two mountains. John remembered the place. They had watered the horses here before the sun went down. The water's icing up, Corrin observed as he turned aside. Else we'd ride in the stream bed. But if we break the ice, they're like to see. Keep close to the cliffs. There's a crook a half mile on that will hide us. He rode into the defile. John gave one last wistful look at their distant fire and followed. The farther in they went, the closer the cliffs pressed to either side. They followed the moonlit ribbon of stream back toward its source. Icicles bearded its stony banks, but John could still hear the sound of rushing water beneath the thin, hard crust. A great jumble of fallen rock blocked their way part way up, where a section of the cliff face had fallen, but the sure-footed little garrons were able to pick their way through. Beyond, 
the walls pinched in sharply, and the stream led them to the foot of a tall, twisting waterfall. The air was full of mist, like the breath of some vast, cold beast. The tumbling waters shone silver in the moonlight. John looked about in dismay. There is no way out. He and Curran might be able to climb the cliffs, but not with the horses. He did not think they would last long afoot. Quickly now, the half-hand commanded. The big man, on the small horse, rode over the ice-slick stones right into the curtain of water and vanished. When he did not reappear, John put his heels into his horse and went after. His garron did his best to shy away. The falling water slapped at them with frozen fists, and the shock of the cold seemed to stop John's breath. Then he was through, drenched and shivering, but through. The cleft in the rock was barely large enough for man and horse to pass, but beyond, the walls opened up, and the floor turned to soft sand. John could feel the spray freezing in his beard. Ghost burst through the waterfall in an angry rush, shook droplets from his fur, sniffed at the darkness suspiciously, then lifted a leg against one rocky wall. Corrin had already dismounted. John did the same. You knew this place was here. When I was no older than you, I heard a brother tell how he followed a shadow cat through these falls. He unsaddled his horse, removed her bitten bridle, and ran his fingers through her shaggy mane. There is a way through the heart of the mountain. Come, Dawn, if they have not found us, we will press on. The first watch is mine, brother. Corrin seated himself on the sand, his back to a wall, no more than a vague black shadow in the gloom of the cave. Over the rush of falling water, John heard the soft sound of steel on leather that could only mean that the half-hand had drawn his sword. He took off his wet cloak, but it was too cold and damp here to strip down any further. Ghost stretched out beside him and licked his glove before curling up to sleep. John was grateful for his warmth. He wondered if the fire was still burning outside, or if it had gone out by now. If the wall should ever fall, all the fires would go out. The moon shone through the curtain of falling water to lay a shimmering pale stripe across the sand, but after a while that too faded and went dark. Sleep came at last, and with it nightmares. He dreamed of burning castles, and dead men rising unquiet from their graves. It was still dark when Curran woke him. While the half-hand slept, John sat with his back to the cave wall, listening to the water and waiting for the dawn. At break of day they each chewed a half-frozen strip of horse meat, then saddled their garrons once again and fastened their black cloaks around their shoulders. During his watch the half-hand had made a half-dozen torches, soaking bundles of dry moss with the oil he carried in his saddlebag. He lit the first one now, and led the way down into the dark, holding the pale flame up before him. John followed with the horses. The stony path twisted and turned, first down, then up, then down more steeply. In spots it grew so narrow it was hard to convince the garrons they could squeeze through.
By the time we come out, we will have lost them, he told himself as they went. Not even an eagle can see through solid stone. We will have lost them, and we will ride hard for the fist and tell the old bear all we know. But when they emerged back into the light, long hours later, the eagle was waiting for them, perched on a dead tree a hundred feet up the slope. Ghost went bounding up the rocks after it, but the bird flapped its wings and took to the air. Corrin's mouth tightened as he followed its flight with his eyes. Here is as good a place as any to make a stand, he declared. The mouth of the cave shelters us from above, and they cannot get behind us without passing through the mountain. Is your sword sharp, John Snow? Yes, he said. We'll feed the horses. They've served us bravely, poor beasts. John gave his garron the last of the oats and stroked his shaggy mane while Ghost prowled restlessly amongst the rocks. He pulled his gloves on tighter and flexed his burnt fingers. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. A hunting horn echoed through the mountains, and a moment later John heard the baying of hounds. They will be with us soon, announced Corin. Keep your wolf in hand. Ghost, to me, John called. The dire wolf returned reluctantly to his side, tail held stiffly behind him. The wildlings came boiling over a ridge not half a mile away. Their hounds ran before them, snarling, grey-brown beasts with more than a little wolf in their blood. Ghost bared his teeth, his fur bristling. Easy, John murmured, stay. Overhead, he heard the rustle of wings. The eagle landed on an outcrop of rock and screamed in triumph. The hunters approached warily, perhaps fearing arrows. John counted fourteen, with eight dogs. Their large, round shields were made of skins stretched over woven wicker and painted with skulls. About half of them hid their faces behind crude helms of wood and boiled leather. On either wing, archers notched shafts to the strings of small wooden horn bows, but did not loose. The rest seemed to be armed with spears and mauls. One had a chipped stone axe. They wore only what bits of armor they had looted from dead rangers or stolen during raids. Wildlings did not mine or smelt, and there were few smiths and fewer forges north of the wall. Corin drew his longsword. The tale of how he had taught himself to fight with his left hand, after losing half of his right, was part of his legend. It was said that he handled blade better now than he ever had before. John stood shoulder to shoulder with the big ranger and pulled Longclaw from its sheath. Despite the chill in the air, sweat stung his eyes. Ten yards below the cave mouth, the hunters halted. Their leader came on alone, riding a beast that seemed more goat than horse from the shore-footed way it climbed the uneven slope. As man and mount grew nearer, John could hear them clattering. Both were armoured in bones, cow bones, sheep bones, the bones of goats and oryx and elk, the great bones of the hairy mammoths, and human bones as well. Rattleshirt, Corin called down. I said polite. To crows I be the lord of bones. 
the rider's helm was made from the broken skull of a giant, and all up and down his arms bear claws had been sewn to his boiled leather. Curran snorted. I see no lord, only a dog dressed in chicken bones who rattles when he rides. The wildling hissed in anger, and his mount reared. He did rattle. John could hear it. The bones were strung together loosely, so they clacked and clattered when he moved. It's your bones I'll be rattling soon, half hand. I'll bowl the flesh off you and make a burney from your ribs. I'll carve your teeth to cast me runes and eat me oaten porridge from your skull. If you want my bones, come get them. That, Rattleshirt seemed reluctant to do. His numbers meant little in the close confines of the rocks where the Black Brothers had taken their stand. To winkle them out of the cave, the wildlings would need to come up two at a time. But another of his company edged a horse up beside him, one of the fighting women called Spearwives. We are four and ten to two crows, and eight dogs to your wolf, she called. Fight or run, you are ours. Show them, commanded Rattleshirt. The woman reached into a blood-stained sack and drew out a trophy. Eben had been as bald as an egg, so she dangled the head by an ear. He died brave, she said. But he died, said Rattleshirt. Same like you. He freed his battle-axe, brandishing it above his head. Good steel it was, with a wicked gleam to both blades. Eben was never a man to neglect his weapons. The other wildlings crowded forward beside him, yelling taunts. A few chose John for their mockery. Is that your wolf, boy? A skinny youth called, unlimbering a stone flail. He'll be my cloak before the sun is down. On the other side of the line, another spearwife opened her ragged furs to show John a heavy white breast. Does a baby want his mama? <laughs> Come have a shot at this boy. The dogs were barking too. They would shame us into folly. Corrin gave John a long look. Remember your orders? Beloit, we need to flush the crows. Rattleshirt bellowed over the clamour. Feather them! No! The word burst from John's lips before the bowman could loose. He took two quick steps forward. We yield! They warned me bastard blood was craven. He heard Corrin half-hand say coldly behind him. I see it is so. Run to your new masters, coward. Face reddening, John descended the slope to where Rattleshirt sat his horse. The wildling stared at him through the eye-holes of his helm, and said, The free folk have no need of cravens. One of the archers pulled off her sewn sheepskin helm and shook out a head of shaggy red hair. This is the bastard of Winterfell, who spared me. Let him live. John met Igrit's eyes and had no words. Let him die, insisted the Lord of Bones. The black crow is a tricksy bird. I trust him not. On a rock above them, the eagle flapped its wings and split the air with a scream of fury. The bird hates you, John Snow, said Igrit, and well he might. He was a man, 
before you killed him. I did not know, said John truthfully, trying to remember the face of the man he had slain in the past. You told me Mance would take me. And he will, Egret said. Mance is not here, said Rattleshirt. Ragwile got him. The big spearwife narrowed her eyes and said, If the crow would join the free folk, let him show us his prowess and prove the truth of him. I'll do whatever you ask. The words came hard, but John said them. Rattleshirt's bone armor clattered loudly as he laughed. Then kill the half-hand, bastard. As if he could, said Corrin. Turn, Snow, and die. And then Corrin's sword was coming at him, and somehow Longclaw leapt upward to block. The force of impact almost knocked the bastard blade from John's hand and set him staggering backward. You must not balk, whatever is asked of you. He shifted to a two-handed grip, quick enough to deliver a stroke of his own, but the big ranger brushed it aside with contemptuous ease. Back and forth they went, black cloaks swirling, the youth's quickness against the savage strength of Corrin's left-hand cuts. The half-hand's lungsaw seemed to be everywhere at once, raining down from one side and then the other, driving him where he would, keeping him off balance. Already he could feel his arms growing numb. Even when ghost teeth closed savagely around the ranger's calf, somehow Corrin kept his feet. But in that instant, as he twisted, the opening was there. John planted and pivoted. The ranger was leaning away, and for an instant it seemed that John's slash had not touched him. Then a string of red tears appeared across the big man's throat, bright as a ruby necklace, and the blood gushed out of him, and Corrin half-hand fell. Ghost's muzzle was dripping red, but only the point of the bastard blade was stained, the last half-inch. John pulled the direwolf away and knelt with one arm around him. The light was already fading in Corrin's eyes. Sharp, he said, lifting his main fingers. Then the hand fell, and he was gone. He knew, John thought numbly. He knew what they would ask of me. He thought of Samuel Tarley then, of Gren and Dolores Ed, of Pip and Toad back at Castle Black. Had he lost them all, as he had lost Bran and Rickon and Rob? Who was he now? What was he? Get him up! Rough hands dragged him to his feet. John did not resist. Do you have a name? Igret answered for him. His name is John Snow. His Eddard Stark's blood of Winterfell. Ragwar laughed. Who would have thought it? Corrin half pan slain by some lordling's by-blow. Got him! That was Rattleshirt, still a horse. The eagle flew to him and perched atop his bony helm, screeching. He yielded, Egret reminded him. Aye, and slew his brother, said a short, homely man in a rust-eaten iron half-helm. Rattleshirt rode closer, bones clattering. The wolf did his work for him. It were foully done. The half-hand's death was mine. 
We all saw how eager you were to take it, mocked Ragwile. Here's a warg, said the Lord of Bones, and a crow. I like him not. A warg he may be, Egret said, but that has never frightened us. Others shouted agreement. Behind the eye holes of his yellowed skull, Rattleshirt's stare was malignant, but he yielded grudgingly. These are a free folk indeed, thought John. They burned Corran Halfhand where he'd fallen, on a pyre made of pine needles, brush, and broken branches. Some of the wood was still green, and it burned slow and smoky, sending a black plume up into the bright hard blue of the sky. Afterward, Rattleshirt claimed some charred bones, while the others threw dice for the ranger's gear. Egret won his cloak. Will we return by the Skirling Pass? John asked her. He did not know if he could face those heights again, or if his garron could survive a second crossing. No, she said. There's nothing behind us. The look she gave him was sad. By now, Mance is well down the milk water, marching on your wall. Bran The ashes fell like a soft grey snow. He padded over dry needles and brown leaves to the edge of the wood, where the pines grew thin. Beyond the open fields he could see the great piles of man-rock stark against the swirling flames. The wind blew hot and rich, with the smell of blood and burnt meat, so strong he began to slaver. Yet as one smell drew them onward, others warned them back. He sniffed at the drifting smoke. Men, many men, many horses, and fire, fire, fire. No smell was more dangerous, not even the hard, cold smell of iron, the stuff of man-claws and hard-skin. The smoke and ash clouded his eyes, and in the sky he saw a great winged snake, whose roar was a river of flame. He bared his teeth, but then the snake was gone. Behind the cliffs, tall fires were eating up the stars. All through the night the fires crackled, and once there was a great roar and a crash that made the earth jump under his feet. Dogs barked and whined, and horses screamed in terror. Howls shuddered through the night. The howls of the man-pack, wails of fear and wild shouts, laughter and screams. No beast was as noisy as man. He pricked up his ears and listened, and his brother growled at every sound. They prowled under the trees as a piney wind blew ashes and embers through the sky. In time, the flames began to dwindle, and then they were gone. The sun rose grey and smoky that morning. Only then did he leave the trees, stalking slow across the fields. His brother ran with him, drawn to the smell of blood and death. They padded silent through the dens that men had built of wood and grass and mud. Many and more were burned, and many and more were collapsed. Others stood as they had before. Yet nowhere did they see or sent a living man. Crows blanketed the bodies and leapt into the air screeching when his brother and he came near.
the wild dogs slunk away before them. Beneath the great grey cliffs, a horse was dying noisily, struggling to rise on a broken leg and screaming when he fell. His brother circled round him, then tore out his throat while the horse kicked feebly and rolled his eyes. When he approached the carcass, his brother snapped at him and laid back his ears, and he cuffed him with a forepaw and bit his leg. They fought amidst the grass and dirt and falling ashes beside the dead horse, until his brother rolled on his back in submission, tail tucked low. One more bite at his upturned throat, then he fed and let his brother feed and licked the blood off his black fur. The dark place was pulling at him by then, the house of whispers where all men were blind. He could feel its cold fingers on him. The stony smell of it was a whisper up the nose. He struggled against the pull. He did not like the darkness. He was wolf. He was hunter and stalker and slayer, and he belonged with his brothers and sisters in the deep woods running free beneath the starry sky. He sat on his haunches, raised his head, and howled. I will not go, he cried. I am wolf. I will not go. Yet even so, the darkness thickened, until it covered his eyes and filled his nose and stopped his ears, so he could not see or smell or hear or run. And the grey cliffs were gone, and the dead horse was gone, and his brother was gone, and all was black and still and black and cold, and black, and dead, and black. Bran? A voice whispered softly. Bran? Come back. Come back now, Bran. Bran! He closed his third eye and opened the other two, the old two, the blind two. In the dark place, all men were blind, but someone was holding him. He could feel arms around him, the warmth of a body snuggled close. He could hear Hodor singing, Hodor, 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 quietly to himself. Bran, it was Mira's voice. You are thrashing, making terrible noises. What did you see? Winterfell. His tongue felt strange and thick in his mouth. One day... When I come back, I won't know how to talk any more. It was Winterfell. It was all on fire. There were horse smells and steel and blood. They killed everyone, Mira. He felt her hand on his face, stroking back his hair. You're all sweaty, she said. Do you need a drink? A drink, he agreed. She held a skin to his lips, and Bran swallowed so fast the water ran out of the corner of his mouth. He was always weak and thirsty when he came back, and hungry too. He remembered the dying horse, the taste of blood in his mouth, the smell of burnt flesh in the morning air. How long? Three days, said Jojen. The boy had come up soft foot, or perhaps he had been there all along, in this blind black world, Bran could not have said. We were afraid for you. I was with Summer, Bran said. Too long, 
You'll starve yourself. Mira dribbled a little water down your throat, and we smeared honey on your mouth, but it is not enough. I ate, said Bren. We ran down an elk and had to drive off a tree cat that tried to steal him. The cat had been tan and brown, only half the size of the direwolves, but fierce. He remembered the musky smell of him and the way he had snarled down at them from the limb of the oak. The wolf ate, Jojen said. Not you. Take care, Bran. Remember who you are. He remembered who he was all too well. Bran the boy. Bran the broken. Better Bran the beastling. Was it any wonder he would sooner dream his summer dreams, his wolf dreams? Here, in the chill, damp darkness of the tomb, his third eye had finally opened. He could reach summer whenever he wanted, and once he had even touched Ghost and talked to John, though maybe he had only dreamed that. He could not understand why Jojen was always trying to pull him back now. Bran used the strength of his arms to squirm to a sitting position. I have to tell Usher what I saw. Is she here? Where did she go? The wilding woman herself gave answer. Nowhere, my lord. I have had my fill of blundering in the black. He heard the scrape of a heel on stone, turned his head toward the sound, but saw nothing. He thought he could smell her, but he wasn't sure. All of them stank alike, and he did not have Summer's nose to tell one from the other. Last night I pissed on a king's foot. Usher went on. Might be it was morning, who can say? I was sleeping, but now I'm not. They all slept a lot, not only Bran. There was nothing else to do. Sleep and eat and sleep again, and sometimes talk a little, but not too much, and only in whispers, just to be safe. Usher might have liked it better if they had never talked at all, but there was no way to quiet Rickon or to stop Hodor from muttering, Hodor, 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 endlessly to himself. Usher, Bran said, I saw Winterfell burning. Off to his left, he could hear the soft sound of Rickon's breathing. A dream, said Usher. A wolf dream, said Bran. I smelled it too. Nothing smells like fire or blood. Whose blood? Men? Horses, dogs, everyone. We have to go see. This scrawny skin of mine's the only one I got, said Usher. That squid prince catches hold of me. They'll strip it off my back with a whip. Mira's hand found Brand's in the dark and gave his fingers a squeeze. I'll go if you're afraid. Brand heard fingers fumbling at leather, followed by the sound of steel on flint. Then again... A spark flew, caught. Usher blew softly. A long, pale flame awoke, stretching upward like a girl on her toes. Usher's face floated above it. She touched the flame with the head of a torch. Bran had to squint as the pitch began to burn, filling the world with orange glare. The light woke Rickon, who sat up yawning. When the shadows moved, it looked for an instant as if the dead were rising as well. Leanna and Brandon, Lord Rickard Stark, their father, Lord Edwile, his father, 
Lord Willem and his brother Artus the Implacable, Lord Donor and Lord Beren and Lord Rodwell, one-eyed Lord Jonal, Lord Bath and Lord Brandon, and Lord Cregan, who had fought the Dragon Knight. On their stone chairs they sat with stone wolves at their feet. This was where they came, when the warmth had seeped out of their bodies. This was the dark hall of the dead, where the living feared to tread. And in the mouth of the empty tomb that waited for Lord Eddard Stark, beneath his stately granite likeness, the six fugitives huddled around their little cache of bread and water and dried meat. Little enough left, Usher muttered as she blinked down on their stores. I'll need to go up soon to steal food in any case, or we'll be down to eat in Hodor. Hodor, Hodor said, grinning at her. Is it day or night up there? Usher wondered. I've lost all count of such. Day, Bran told her, but it's dark from all the smoke. My lord is certain. Never moving his broken body, he reached out all the same, and for an instant he was seeing double. There stood Usher, holding the torch, and Mira, and Jojen, and Hodor, and the double row of tall granite pillars, and long dead lords behind them, stretching away into darkness. But there was Winterfell as well, grey with drifting smoke, the massive oaken iron gates charred and askew, the drawbridge down in a tangle of broken chains and missing planks. Bodies floated in the moat, islands for the crows. Certain, he declared. Osher chewed on that a moment. I'll risk a look, then. I want the lot of you close behind. Mira, get Bran's basket. Are we going home? Rickon asked excitedly. I want my horse. I want apple cakes and butter and honey and shaggy. Are we going where shaggy dog is? Yes, Bran promised. But you'll have to be quiet. Mira strapped the wicker basket to Hodor's back and helped lift Bran into it, easing his useless legs through the holes. He had a queer flutter in his belly. He knew what awaited them above but that did not make it any less fearful. As they set off, he turned to give his father one last look, and it seemed to Bran that there was a sadness in Lord Eddard's eyes, as if he did not want them to go. We have to, he thought. It's time. Osher carried her long oaken spear in one hand and the torch in the other. A naked sword hung down her back, one of the last to bear Micken's mark. He had forged it for Lord Eddard's tomb to keep his ghosts at rest, but with Micken slain and the ironman guarding the armory, good steel had been hard to resist, even if it meant grave robbing. Mira had claimed Lord Rickard's blade, though she complained that it was too heavy. Brandon took his namesakes, the sword made for the uncle he had never known. He knew he would not be much use in a fight, but even so the blade felt good in his hand. But it was only a game, and Bran knew it. Their footsteps echoed through the cavernous crypts. The shadows behind them swallowed his father 
as the shadows ahead retreated to unveil other statues. No mere lords, these, but the old kings in the north. On their brows they wore stone crowns. Torrance Stark, the king who knelt. Edwin, the spring king. Theon Stark, the hungry wolf. Brandon the burner, and Brandon the shipwright. Jorah and Jonas. Brandon the bad. Walton, the moon king. Adirian, the bridegroom. Iron. Benjamin the sweet, and Benjamin the bitter. King Edric Snowbeard. Their faces were stern and strong, and some of them had done terrible things. But they were Starks, every one, and Bran knew all their tales. He had never feared the Crips. They were part of his home, and who he was, and he had always known that one day he would lie here too. But now he was not so certain. If I go up, will I ever come back down? Where will I go when I die? Wait, Usher said, when they reached the twisting stone stairs that led up to the surface and down to the deeper levels where kings more ancient still sat their dark thrones. She handed Mira the torch. I'll grope my way up. For a time they could hear the sound of her footfalls, but they grew softer and softer until they faded away entirely. Hodor, said Hodor nervously. Bran had told himself a hundred times how much he hated hiding down here in the dark, how much he wanted to see the sun again, to ride his horse through wind and rain. But now that the moment was upon him, he was afraid. He felt safe in the darkness. When you could not even find your own hand in front of your face, it was easy to believe that no enemies could ever find you either, and the stone lords had given him courage. Even when he could not see them, he had known they were there. It seemed a long while before they heard anything again. Bran had begun to fear that something had happened to Usher. His brother was squirming restlessly. I want to go home, he said loudly. Hodor bobbed his head and said, Hodor! Then they heard the footsteps again, growing louder, and after a few minutes, Usher emerged into the light, looking grim. Something is blocking the door. I can't move it. Hodor can move anything, said Bran. Usher gave the huge stable boy an appraising look. Might be he can. Come on, then. The steps were narrow, so they had to climb in single file. Usher led. Behind came Hodor, with Bran crouched low on his back so his head wouldn't hit the ceiling. Mira followed with a torch, and Jojen brought up the rear, leading Rickon by the hand. Around and around they went, and up and up. Bran thought he could smell smoke now, but perhaps that was only the torch. The door to the crypts was made of ironwood. It was old and heavy, and lay at a slant to the ground. Only one person could approach it at a time. Osha tried once more when she reached it, but Bran could see that it was not budging. Let Hodor try. They had to pull Bran from his basket first, so he would not get squished. Mira squatted beside him on the steps, one arm thrown protectively across his shoulders, as Osha and Hodor traded places. Open the door, Hodor, 
Bran said. The huge table boy put both hands flat on the door, pushed and grunted. How dare! He slammed a fist against the wood, and it did not so much as jump. How dare! Use your back, urged Bran, and your legs. Turning, Hodor put his back to the wood and shoved. Again. Again. Hodor! He put one foot on a higher step, so he was bent under the slant of the door and tried to rise. This time the wood groaned and creaked. Hodor! The other foot came up a step, and Hodor spread his legs apart, braced and straightened. His face turned red, and Bran could see cords in his neck bulging as he strained against the weight above him. Hodor! 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 From above came a dull rumble. Then suddenly the door jerked upward, and a shaft of daylight fell across Bran's face, blinding him for a moment. Another shove brought the sound of shifting stone, and then the way was open. Osher poked her spear through and slid out after it, and Rickon squirmed through Mira's legs to follow. Hodor shoved the door open all the way and stepped to the surface. The reeds had to carry Bran up the last few steps. The sky was a pale grey, and smoke eddied all around them. They stood in the shadow of the first keep, or what remained of it. One whole side of the building had torn loose and fallen away. Stones and shattered gargoyles laid strewn across the yard. They fell just where I did, Bran thought when he saw them. Some of the gargoyles had broken into so many pieces it made him wonder how he was still alive at all. Nearby some crows were pecking at a body crushed beneath the tumble stone, but he lay face down, and Bran could not say who he was. The first keep had not been used for many hundreds of years, but now it was more of a shell than ever. The floors had burned inside it, and all the beams. Where the wall had fallen away, they could see right into the rooms, even into the privy. Yet behind, the broken tower still stood, no more burned than before. Jojen Reed was coughing from the smoke. Take me home, Rickon demanded. I want to be home. Hodor stumped in a circle. Hodor, he whimpered in a small voice. They stood huddled together with ruin and death all around them. We made noise enough to wake a dragon, Osher said, but there's no one come. The castle's dead and burned just as Bran dreamed, but we had best— She broke off suddenly at a noise behind them, and whirled with her spear at the ready. Two lean, dark shapes emerged from behind the broken tower, padding slowly through the rubble. Rickon gave a happy shout of, Shaggy! And the black direwolf came bounding toward him. Summer advanced more slowly, rubbed his head against Bran's arm, and licked his face. We should go, said Jojen. So much death will bring other wolves besides Summer and Shaggy Dog, and not all on four feet. Eh, soon enough, Usher agreed. But we need food, and there may be some survive this. Stay together. Mira, keep your shield up and guard our backs. 
it took the rest of the morning to make a slow circuit of the castle. The great granite walls remained, blackened here and there by far, but otherwise untouched. But within, all was death and destruction. The doors of the great hall were charred and smouldering, and inside the rafters had given way, and the whole roof had crashed down onto the floor. The green and yellow panes of the glass gardens were all in shards. The trees and fruits and flowers torn up or left exposed to die. Of the stables, made of wood and thatch, nothing remained but ashes, embers, and dead horses. Bran thought of his dancer and wanted to weep. There was a shallow, steaming lake beneath the library tower, and hot water gushing from a crack inside. The bridge between the bell tower and the rookery had collapsed into the yard below, and Maester Lewin's turret was gone. They saw a dull red glow shining up through the narrow cellar windows beneath the great keep, and a second fire still burning in one of the storehouses. Usher called softly through the blowing smoke as they went, but no one answered. They saw one dog, worrying at a corpse, but he ran when he caught the scents of the direwolves. The rest had been slain in the kennels. The maester's ravens were paying court to some of the corpses, while the crows from the broken tower attended others. Bran recognized Poxy Tim, even though someone had taken an axe to his face. One charred corpse, outside the ashen shell of Mother Sept, sat with his arms drawn up and his hands balled into hard black fists, as if to punch anyone who dared approach him. If the guards are good, Usher said in a low, angry voice, the others will take them that did this work. It was Theon, Bran said blackly. No, look. She pointed across the yard with her spear. That's one of his iron men. And there. And there's Greyjoy's warhorse, see? The black one with the arrows in him. She moved among the dead, frowning. And here's Black Lauren. He had been hacked and cut so badly that his beard looked a reddish brown now. Took a few with him, he did. Usher turned over one of the other corpses with her foot. There's a badge. A little man. All red. The flayed man of the dreadfort, said Bran. Summer howled and darted away. The guards would. Mira Reed ran after the direwolf, her shield and frog spear to hand. The rest of them trailed after, threading their way through smoke and fallen stones. The air was sweeter under the trees. A few pines along the edge of the wood had been scorched, but deeper in the damp soil and green wood had defeated the flames. There is a power in living wood, said Jojen Reed, almost as if he knew what Bran was thinking. A power strong as fire. On the edge of the black pool, beneath the shelter of the heart tree, Maester Lewin lay on his belly in the dirt. A trail of blood twisted back through damp leaves where he had crawled. Summer stood over him, and Bran thought he was dead at first. But when Mira touched his throat, the maester moaned. Hodor, said Hodor mournfully. Hodor. Gently, they eased Lewin onto his back. He had grey eyes and grey hair, and once his robes had been grey as well. 
but they were darker now, where the blood had soaked through. Bran, he said softly, when he saw him sitting tall on Hodor's back. And Rickon, too, he smiled. The gods are good. I knew. Knew, said Bran uncertainly. The legs, I could tell. The clothes fit, but the muscles in his legs. Poor lad. He coughed, and blood came up from inside him. You vanished in the woods. How, though? We never went, said Bran. Well, only to the edge, and then doubled back. I sent the wolves on to make a trail, but we hid in father's tomb. The crypts, Lewin chuckled, a froth of blood on his lips. When the maester tried to move, he gave a sharp gasp of pain. Tears filled Bran's eyes. When a man was hurt, you took him to the maester. But what could you do when your maester was hurt? We'll need to make a litter to carry him, said Usher. No use, said Lewin. I'm dying, woman. You can't, said Rickon angrily. No, you can't. Beside him, Shaggy Dog bared his teeth and growled. The maester smiled. Hush now, child. I'm much older than you. I can die as I please. Hodor, down, said Bran. Hodor went to his knees beside the maester. Listen, Lewin said to Usher, the princes, Rob's heirs, not, not together. Do you hear? The wilding woman leaned on her spear. I safer apart, but where to take them? I thought might be these servants. Maester Lewin shook his head, though it was plain to see what the effort cost him. Serwin boy's dead. Sir Roderick, Leobald Tallheart, Lady Hornwood, all slain, Deepwood fallen, Moat Caelan, soon Torrent Square, iron men on the stony shore, and east the bastard of Bolton. Then where? asked Usher. White Harbour, the Umbers. I do not know. War everywhere, each man against his neighbour, and winter's coming. Such folly, such black, mad folly. Maester Lewin reached up and grasped Bran's forearm, his fingers closing with a desperate strength. You must be strong now, strong. I will be, Bran said, though it was hard. So Roderick killed, the Maester Lewin, everyone, everyone. Good, the Maester said. Good boy, your, uh, your father's son, Bran, now, go. Usher gazed up at the weirwood, at the red face carved in the pale trunk. And leave you for the guards? I beg... The maester swallowed. Um, uh, a drink of water and another boon, if you would. Aye, she turned to Mira. Take the boys. Jojen and Mira led Rickon out between them, 
Hodor followed. Low branches whipped at Bran's face as they pushed between the trees, and the leaves brushed away his tears. Usher joined them in the yard a few moments later. She said no word of Maester Lewin. Hodor must stay with Bran to be his legs, the wilding woman said briskly. I will take Rickon with me. We'll go with Bran, said Jojen Reed. I, I thought you might, said Archer. Believe I'll try the east gate and follow the king's road a ways. We'll take the hunter's gate, said Mira. Hodor, said Hodor. They stopped at the kitchens first. Osher found some loaves of burnt bread that were still edible, and even a cold roast fowl that she ripped in half. Mira unearthed a crock of honey and a big sack of apples. Outside they made their farewells. Rickon sobbed and clung to Hodor's leg until Usher gave him a smack with the butt-end of her spear. Then he followed her quick enough. Shaggy Dog stalked after them. The last Bran saw of them was the dire wolf's tail as it vanished behind the broken tower. The iron portcullis that closed the hunter's gate had been warped so badly by heat it could not be raised more than a foot. They had to squeeze beneath its spikes, one by one. "'Will we go to your lord father?' Bran asked, as they crossed the drawbridge between the walls. "'To Greywater Watch?' Mira looked to her brother for the answer. "'Our road is north,' Jojen announced. At the edge of the wolfswood, Bran turned in his basket for one last glimpse of the castle that had been his life. Wisps of smoke still rose into the grey sky, but no more than might have risen from Winterfell's chimneys on a cold autumn afternoon. Soot stains marked some of the arrow loops, and here and there a crack or a missing merlon could be seen in the curtain wall. But it seemed little enough from this distance. Beyond the tops of the keeps and towers still stood as they had for hundreds of years, and it was hard to tell that the castle had been sacked and burned at all. The stone is strong, Bran told himself. The roots of the trees go deep, and under the ground the kings of winter sit their thrones. So long as those remained, Winterfell remained. It was not dead, just broken. Like me, he thought. I'm not dead either. This is Roy Dutrice. We hope you've enjoyed this production of A Clash of Kings, Book Two of A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin. To find out more about the complete Books on Tape catalogue of unabridged audiobooks, call our customer service department at the number on this package or visit us online at booksontape.com. A Clash of Kings Book Two of A Song of Ice and Fire Copyright 1999 by George R. R. Martin Published by arrangement with Random House Audio Publishing Group, a division of Random House Incorporated Production Copyright 2004 
Books on Tape, Incorporated. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.